Welcome to the What is Truth podcast with Greg Fernandez Jr. We're going to begin this, as we always should, with a prayer. Matthew 6, 9 through 6, 13. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Welcome back to the What is Truth podcast with Greg Fernandez Jr. We are going to look at Phil Haney today. This is uh, going to be a long one here. It's about over a little over five hours. No biggie, right? <laughs> We're going to look at some of Phil Haney's speeches. And of course, if you have no idea who Phil Haney is, Philip Haney, Phil Haney, let me just give you a, a little brief little brief view here. So Phil Haney was found shot to death in Plymouth, California on Friday, February 21st, 2020. Was it a murder or was it a suicide? We have all of the documents. If you want to download those, you can go to my website, whatistruth911.wordpress.com. That's whatistruth911.wordpress.com. And you will be able to find all of the documentation that we have so far, that I have so far, and um, the crime scene photos, which I have uploaded to YouTube, if you want to check those out on my YouTube channel, Greg Fernandez Jr. They're still floating out there. We also have a Justice for Philip Haney Facebook group. So if you're on Facebook, just look up Phil Haney or Philip Haney DHS Whistleblower, and you will find him there. But let's get right into this here. So, of course, obviously, we're all going to ask the question, who is Philip Haney, the DHS whistleblower? Well, we're going to go through some of his speeches, starting with this one here. This one was on the Whitestone Christian Ministries website. The name of the video on YouTube is called Jihad and Operative Verbs from the Quran, Philip Haney. This is dated uh, 5-12-2016. And here's a little synopsis. This is an analysis of why Islamic terrorists claim to be justified by the Quran, as presented by Philip Haney, a retired Homeland Security officer and author of the book, See Something, Say Nothing, which is really interesting. It's a great title. Remember the See, see Something, Say Something thing? Well, this guy wrote a great book. It's out there. Philip Haney, See Something, Say Nothing. But let's get right into this. This is about one hour and 17 minutes. I want to talk a little bit about some of the operative verbs that our adversaries use. <clears throat> that word right there is just simple Quran. That's what it says in Arabic. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what the ideology of uh, of, a, of a of a religion, if you will, a theology that first and foremost, if you don't remember anything else tonight that I tell you, and by the way, I can send you, as I always do, I send you the PowerPoint. You don't have to worry about trying to remember everything. We'll send it to you. And you can walk yourself back through with all the sources and the links and what I call master the subject yourself, if you wish to. I know I always talk a little bit about 
the tendency to become afraid or to become angry. It's the natural inclination of us as, as people to be either afraid or angry. But we're not authorized according to the Bible to be either. You ever thought about that? So if that's the case, then what do we have left? Respond with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding in the spirit of the Lord. The only reason we can, only way we can overcome the natural tendency to be angry or fearful is to be spirit-filled. Because it's contrary to the nature, but the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Nothing that we do, even the best possible motive, quote-unquote, or good project that we might be involved with, if we do it out of the motivation of anger, it will not sustain into eternity. It'll evaporate, wood, hay, and stubble. However, we're facing an ideology, a theology that is explicitly motivated by anger. Vindictiveness, vengeance, and revenge. The complete, exact opposite. And I almost forgot the starting point of this premise is that Islam teaches that the crucifixion never happened. But it's not just a passive statement. In other words, they don't allow you to... It, it's not that they just say it doesn't, didn't happen. You are accused of blasphemy if you insist that it did happen. So it's not just a passive statement. If, in other words, we don't think it really happened, but you're free to believe that if you want to. No, it's another dimension deeper. We only, not only do we emphatically insist that it didn't happen, you are not allowed to believe that it happened. And if you do, what will happen to you is what you're seeing in the Middle East today. Which remarkably seems to be uh, pretty low on the radar, doesn't it, in terms of what do you think is going to happen if, you, or let me start over, are we exempt from that? We have been essentially so far, haven't we? But are we, ultimately? So that's what this is going to be about a little bit. <coughs> there we go. This is the center of the theological and social-political universe of Islam. Inside of that is the Kaaba. It's a stone that they believe fell from heaven. It's actually a meteorite. It's been in existence for at least 1,400 years, if not longer, because it was there when Muhammad came on the scene 1,400 years ago. And what are these people doing? They're walking around it. And what are they doing? They're casting away their sins. I mean, just objectively, is there anything in the Bible that commands us to walk around a stone enshrined in a... Kabab means square. So this is part of the Hajj that you hear about. The oops, went out of it. Let's see. Okay. Now, as I said, it's the center of the theological universe. It's like the center of an atom. The entire Islamic world rotates around this nucleus 
of the Hajj in Saudi Arabia, the keeper of the two holy places and the largest supporter of what they call Dawah, promotion of Islam, what we call terrorism in the world. One person's moderate or one person's patriot is another person's terrorist. And we can't even come to terms with what these words mean you know, in the West versus in the Islamic world. What they call a freedom fighter is what we call a terrorist. So this is just a little list of uh, the different words we're going to cover today. And the one you probably recognize the most is that one right there. We hear a lot about that. This one here occurs 40 times in the Quran. This word right here, expel, drive out, or displace, Quraysh, occurs 40 or four times more than the word jihad. And this other word here, qatl, means slaughter or kill, also occurs four times more frequently in the Quran than the verb jihad. All these years we've been arguing like squirrels in a cage over the subtle meanings of the word jihad when in fact these two verbs, as you'll see, we'll go over a little bit more, Quraysh and Ketel, are magnitudes more violent than the verb jihad. Magnitudes more violent because this one means to displace or drive out violently, to push you violently off like being something slamming into you and pushing you off the road. When you hear about driving the Jews into the sea, you've heard that phrase before? This is the verb they're talking about, to displace them, to push them away, shove them away violently. And this one here is even worse. It means to slaughter. It actually means to grotesquely obliterate, to stomp you into the ground like a snail run over by a tank. They are very violent verbs. I asked a Coptic Christian one time when I used to work in passport processing when they come, people come from overseas, from Egypt, I asked him, tell me what does this verb mean? Because there's a verb, iteration of this root verb, it's called fakdaluhum. It's not a cuss word, but it sounds like one. But I asked him, what does that mean? Tell me, you know, Muhammad, what is that word? He says, very nasty word. Very nasty word. It's so nasty because it's not, it's violent. The, the obscenity of the verb is that it's so violent. It's beyond anything that we can imagine in our culture, except for just stomping a bug, crushing the life out of something. And if you think that I'm exaggerating, take the power haunt and go ahead and look them all up and you'll find that, if anything, I'm understating. So here we'll look at the first one, jihad, striving for the cause of Allah. The verb is often, trans there's various ways that they translate it in English. Because these are what I call industrial strength verbs or like ramen noodles, just add water, poof. There's a lot of different adjectives compressed into the meanings of these verbs. They have probably been teased apart and studied more than any other document in the history of the world except for one, which would be the Bible itself. Because these, these words are supposedly from heaven 
as they were spoken by Allah pre-existing. There's no alternation, alteration involved, allowed. And uh, you have to take them exactly as they are written. So we are, the Muslims are advised to fight hard against who? Every time you hear the argument, what do they always try to say about jihad? That it's a peaceful interior thing, striving for your own betterment. Well, explicitly right in the Quran it says just the opposite. That it's a violent battle against the disbelievers and the hypocrites. The hypocrites are Muslims. How many times have you heard President Obama say, oh, they kill more Muslims than they do non-Muslims? The reason why is because they consider them this, munafikina, hypocrites. And they have the death sentence on them just as much as these people, the unbelievers. And be what toward them? Contrast that with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, should not be couraged, jihaded, kufard, and all the rest, but they should have life. It's an incredibly, it's as opposite as you can possibly get. And where is their refuge? Hell, and wretched is their destination. Not much hope. Remember when the passage in the gospel when it says then they will kill you and they say that they're doing God a service this is that these people will kill us and insist that they're doing God a service does what I'm saying to you now seem exaggerated overstated does it seem like it meshes in with what you're seeing on the news pretty much every night This is the, the, uh, this is the uh, Hadith, the Sirah, and the Quran. These three major components of what is called Sharia law, overall Islamic theology, you will see, depending on how you want to divide it up, there's somewhere around 30 to 50% of the entire Quran, Hadith, and Sirah that are essentially devoted to jihad. Keeping in mind now, that that verb only occurs 40 times in the Quran. Those other two, two verbs that I t will get to occur four times more often and their magnitude's more violent. See what I mean about putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable? <laughs> That's what we've been doing. We haven't even barely touched the true nature of the adversary that we face. Remember why I said, don't be afraid and don't be angry. Now you're starting to understand, right? Why would you be angry? Because we've been deliberately misinformed. That should make you angry. But not in the way that, of nature, nature. How are you supposed to respond to something like that? In times past, God winked at this ignorance, but now commands men everywhere to repent. Don't take it wrong. I'm not calling you ignorant or that you need to repent. What I'm saying is it's not an excuse. Ignorance is like a, a cup, a paper cup full of water. What will eventually happen to that paper cup full of water? It will soften the paper and you'll lose it all. That's how dependable the defense of ignorance is. Remember the passages about cisterns that hold no water? 
That's what it's talking about. The Lord tried over and over and over and over again to show the people the Babylonians are right on the next hill. Get ready, they're coming. Nah, they're not coming. In fact, you prophets, you whistleblowers, you, you uh, watchmen on the wall, we're going to lock all of you up. We're sick of you. Just leave us alone so we can enjoy our lives. Stop giving, being warmongers and trying to scare the little kids by telling them these horrible stories about the Babylonians coming over the next hill. Here's the next bird. I talked about this one a little bit. This one here, the slaughter. And kill him. And that's what that says right there. Wa, the first little letter is wa. Fakteluhum. And kill them wherever you overtake them. What does that imply? Wherever you overtake them. What do you have to do to catch up with somebody that's 20 minutes ahead of you down I-75? You've got to go high speed after him, don't you? You've got to be focused, deliberate, and intentional. This is an accidental. This is purposeful. Wherever you overtake them and expel them, there's the courage word. I'm just not emphasizing it. Wherever they have expelled you for fitna is worse than slaughter. This one's going to really mess with your head. Fitna is worse than slaughter. What does that mean? Would somebody like to try to tell me? I'll say what fitna is is opposition to Islam. This. So what does that mean? Fitna is worse than slaughter. It means that opposition to Islam is a greater crime than them killing us. It takes a minute to wrap your head around that. Because it's counterintuitive to the way we look at things in the world. Because we, we value the life of every individual. Our solution to problems is not kill people just so we don't have to deal with them anymore. Fitna is worse than slaughter. You can say unbelief if you want to because sometimes they translate it that way is worse than being killed. The crime of unbelief is a greater crime than them murdering you for it. And that is why you see this wholesale killing of people in the Middle East because fitna is worse than slaughter. You guys doing okay? Yeah. Hanging in there? Yeah. Is it making sense? Yeah. It kind of brings things into a clearer focus, doesn't it, in terms of what you see on the news. And then you see our leaders stand up and say, Islam is a religion of peace, and this does not represent the true beliefs of Islam. Who do you suppose is actually correct? This or them? And how do you think the people in the Middle East look at our leaders who insist on standing up in front of us and misinforming us about the most basic principles of their belief. They think we're stupid. stupid as, as um, a bunch of dumb clucks. Do not fight them until they fight you, but if they fight them, then kill them. Such is the recompense of the disbelievers. What do you think Osama bin Laden did? Exactly that. He was offended because the Americans in the West were in his, the land of, of, of Saudi Arabia and that was a catalyst to do, employ this operative verb. Let me talk about this, my concept of the catalyst. You have, a t you have a big flask like in the chemistry lab, you know, with Peabody and Sherman 
bubbling things, big old thing, nasty green gas inside this large jar. And sitting in the middle of that cloud of green gas is a blob of soft metal that, called sodium. It looks kind of like butter just sitting there. And what will happen with those two elements, chlorine and sodium, when they're in a container? Nothing. These are elements. They don't react. They need a catalyst. So in this case, with chlorine and sodium, the catalyst is water, amazingly enough. When you drop water, in this case, the water doesn't put out the fire, it starts a fire. It creates an exothermic reaction, kabumo. And there's a product form from it. It's called somebody? Salt. The thing that we need for life is created by an exothermic reaction of a poisonous green gas and a soft butter-like metal. Nothing at all like the original nature. Only God could do something like that, couldn't he? So, this is one of the elements. The fitna, the opposition, is the catalyst. When you combine this verb and that verb together, with fitna, you have a big giant reaction, which is what are we seeing in the world today? A big giant reaction. Because these operative verbs are being catalyzed by the presence of the West, i.e., the opposition to Islam. Stop, no more. That's right there as the catalyst. And now they go from passive infiltration to overt violent warfare. And that's why you always see this gradation of, of events that now we're starting to see glimmers of here in North America. From the semi-invisible to hardly ever occurs to all of a sudden you see things like what happened in San Bernardino. Which then again, we, we our leaders stand up in front of us and tell them, don't worry, it doesn't have anything to do with Islam at all. Is that true? One of the two is not. This is either not true <coughs> or the narrative is not true. Which one are we going to choose? Which is the safer one to err on? I'd err on this side. I take this at face value. Now can you imagine what it must have been like to be an active duty federal counterterrorism specialist inside the government to encounter the power of a narrative like this? That's why I'm always talking about integrity, because they will come after you. <coughs> They had to discredit me. If they were able to discredit me, then they could have discredited everything that I said, including talks like this. I wouldn't be standing up in front of you because you would read in the news that I had been charged with something, embezzling, chasing women, drinking too much, doing drugs, you name it. One of those common things that younger guys often get in trouble for and I wouldn't be standing here talking to you because I would have been discredited. Right? You wouldn't come and listen to me, would you? If the, if the caveat to my story was that he was indicted for X something something, right? But I wasn't. And now it's too late. Why? Because they can't go back and change history. And the history is over there in that little box right there, the books.
my friend today who is a supervisor in one of the major dramas of the whole story when they deleted the records related to the San Bernardino shootings called me well he actually called me the morning after Megyn Kelly which was December 10th of 2015 right after San Bernardino and he says Haney are those the 67 records yeah they are you mean the 67 records from the ones that they deleted in our case yeah they are oh my god all I can think about now is the families of those people that were killed this is a hardcore kid I kick the door down throw them on the ground handcuff them you know Iraq war veteran street cop kind of guy and it changed his life I said how does it feel to have destiny come right up to you stare you straight in the eye and ask you what are you going to do now and have done the right thing he said it makes me feel really good and it makes me feel really mad now he's going to stand there like a immovable rock like moral rock out there in California if and when the time ever does come that the tsunami of accountability comes sweeping across this administration somebody will eventually have to answer for what happened but it won't be him because he did the right thing he would not re remove the records so they superseded our procedures and they went into the system and they deleted them they obliterated them just like these verbs because to them Islamophobia which is like fitna opposition to the political narrative is worse than the attacks that happen in our country it's like a formula fear of Islamophobia fear of political correctness space fear of jihad fear of attack and in a mathematical formula what's in the middle either an equal sign a greater sign or a lesser than sign which one is there now fear of political correctness being called an Islamophobe is what than jihad greater than my job and guys like me and you in this room actually if you want to participate in what I'm calling a grassroots campaign is to change that equation so how are we going to do it I'll tell you about that in a minute once we get through don't let me forget though okay this is a free-form talk I'm going off the slides but every talk I do is always different I don't have a can talk because I I try to respond to the time and the moment of, and the group of people that are that were gathered together and listen to the Lord while I'm trying to talk about factual information and like a river follow the course down as gravity pulls the river down to the ocean how far are we from the ocean right now if the river allegorically is a prophetic river where are we do you suppose I say we're down by Mobile somewhere wouldn't you about to go into the great blue ocean this verse by the way 2191 is the basis for virtually every single fatwa that you hear a declaration of jihad against America because all the components of the global Islamic movement are compressed into this one verse which is that the deen the religion of Allah will prevail in the earth Islam is really a religion of peace by the way 
comma, pause for effect. Just, just not right now. That there's always, there's always an exception clause in Islam that they never tell you. And the exception clause is, Islam is a religion of peace is, just not right now. They don't tell you that part. It will be when Sharia law is established around the whole world. Is America an exception? Is North America an exception? No? Okay, here's the other one. Of the, this is the other one of those op, the uh, elements in the Petri dish. This is to push away. Kill them wherever you are taken and spell them, drive them out from where they expelled you. By the way, these words are, they're, they're recurring in the same passage. Talk about kill, 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 push, push, push. All in the same verse. Expel them, drive them out. That is the motivating factor of ISIS. That's the motivating factor of Hamas. That's the motivating factor of Boko Haram. And Taliban. All of them are exactly the same strategy. There is no difference between any of the groups. What is different, complicated and kaleidoscopic are the tactics. Just for a, what is your goal going to be when we're done tonight? Simple, what is your goal going to be? Go home. That's it. Yeah. See, this stuff is so simple, it's complicated. Your goal is to go home. Okay? That's your strategy. Go home. That's also yours. It's every one of us. But what is different about it are the tactics. The tactics. How will you do it? And if, we, if this was Groundhog Day and we did this over and over and over every single day, even with Groundhog Day, there wouldn't be a single day that when you left here in your car, that we, you would go home exactly the same way every single time and arrive at the front door at exactly the price, precise second every single time because there are too many variables. That's tactics. The fact that we don't even understand the distinction between strategy and tactics is why, in my opinion, we're not prevailing in this conflict. We don't understand the difference between fighting at war strategically versus tactically. Because if you fight a war tactically, they change like a kaleidoscope. By the time you aim in on the target for those shooters, the target's already moved. You never get a beat on the target. But what if I know where you live? Then what will I do? I'll just send one of my guys to your house and wait for you to show up. It's a lot simpler way to fight a war, isn't it? If I know what your intention is, I just set somebody prepared to intercept you when you get home. That's, we don't do that. And what is our defense? Constitution. We can talk about this without even talking about warfare, not even getting into spiritual warfare. What is our defense? The Constitution. Why? Because this is not a First Amendment issue. It's not a freedom of speech issue. It's an Article 6 issue. Article 6 says that the Constitution will be the supreme law of the land. Very simple. Article 6 is one of the shortest articles in the whole Constitution. But our country has never been challenged on that basis in the whole history. There are virtually no 
legal precedents in court for a direct overt challenge to Article 6. It was unimaginable that it would ever happen. Well, not completely unimaginable because the Founding Fathers built these provisions into the Constitution. However, have you ever heard anybody address this threat from an Article 6 orientation? No. They always talk about freedom of religion. But freedom of religion doesn't give you the freedom to do this and to try to overthrow the constitutional republic that we live in and supplement it with Sharia law, which they're doing whether they say so or not in public. Because this is one thing you can try to take a note on. Look up the organization called the Assembly of Muslim Jurists of America, AMJA, Assembly of Muslim Jurists of America. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? <coughs> sort of not. Not too threatening. How about Majama Fukaha Sharia Bi Amrikia? Did you hear a word in there? Yeah. Majama Fukaha Sharia Bi Amrikia, the group of lawyers promoting Sharia in America. Wait a minute, that's not freedom of speech. That's Article 6. That's the most dangerous of all the Muslim Brotherhood front groups in the United States, but most people have never heard of it, and it's on purpose. It's not only is it a North American organization, it's a global organization. Every couple years they have a thing called Ishtama, where they go and they all sit around a big table and they talk about, okay, what are some of the challenges that the Muslim community is meeting in North America? Should they work for the government? Should they join the military? Should they be part of the police? Can men have four wives? And so on. Okay, we're going to come up with a fatwa, an explanation to the, public, to the Muslim community in America on how to deal with whether they should work for the government or not. That's AMJA. Okay, everybody in the global community, everybody agree? Good. Good to go. When we go back, we will publish the fatwa for the community in North America, and they will abide by it. If you don't believe me on that, just go to their website and look up what they just posted on marriage law. The stuff is as real as it gets. And the fact that we don't know it is deliberate. We're in a different era now. We're facing a different threat. It's the threat that says that Christ was never crucified and that if you believe that, we will kill you for it. Are you willing to stand up for what you believe? Now's the time. I'm not being melodramatic. It's not theoretical. My adversaries in the government overplayed their hand. I know what they're capable of doing because I saw them do it. You think about it. What happened within the administration is they brought these people like Ben Rhodes that's been in the news a lot lately. Anybody been following that? An overt liar and deceiver. A master at it. Good at it. Like a magician. Really good at what he does and pulling tricks on people. They bring him, guys like him into the administration and they give them assignments. The first stronghold, the for, for, play, first place of protection they went after were the law enforcement agencies within the federal government. The FBI, the CIA, the DC, CBP, guys like me. Why? 
Can somebody tell me why they would go after them first? Disarm law enforcement. Then there's nobody standing in their way. So who was among the very first in that small circle of federal law enforcement that the administration went after first? Me. Because I was contradicting the narrative by having pesky PowerPoints like this. Contradicting the narrative that Islam is a religion of peace. Mr. Haney, you're reckless. Mr. Haney, that's impossible. Mr. Haney, that's really scary. Well, I can understand if a regular everyday person says that, but not one that's two or three grades higher than me. You don't have the permission to tell me that this is really scary when you're standing there with the H&K P2040 caliber on your side. You're supposed to be standing up for the country, not telling me that it's scary. You okay, hon? So then after that, they went from the federal law enforcement circle to the national, meaning state, meaning premier organizations like the New York Police Department, and disarmed them. And then they morphed that into what you see now with the border problem. Once they disarmed the law enforcement officers and ICE and Border Patrol and CBP and cops on state level, it wouldn't have mattered if we had a wall 90 foot high around the country. There's nobody watching the gate. Because they told all of us, put your hands behind your back, we're going to handcuff you. You cannot make cases based on affiliation with religious groups, parentheses Islam. Otherwise, we will come after you, which they did. And they weren't kidding about it. Fitna. We talked about fitna. Fitna is one of those ramen noodle words. It's got all kinds of adjectives. You just add water and poof. It's but I say this. This is what fitna is. Opposition to the advance of Islam. And you know what that we who are not Muslims have to do to make them offended? To defend Islamic world? It's called breathing. That's what we have to do. That's all we have to do is breathe. And we're an offense to them. You guys really do need to look, up, look into this ideology that motivates the people in the Islamic world. How does a Muslim become a hypocrite? By not following Sharia. And, I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, the recent events of the Department of Justice turning over the mastermind of the Benghazi attack. Did you hear about that? Yeah, and they're, they're, they've already excluded the death sentence exactly. from this trial. Exactly. With, what on what basis? Who's making these decisions? Exactly. What are your thoughts on that? It took him, what, four years, three or four years, when, they, when he was walking up and down the main streets in Benghazi yeah. to finally apprehend him. And then what they, when they finally did, the first thing they did is basically <coughs> extend him constitutional civil rights and civil liberties and tell him, we're not going to seek the death penalty. Do you think that has to do with some of the, the things going on with our political system, a lot of the, the, the inputs that you're talking about? Well, I'll tell when they were talking about Tashveen Malik in the San Bernardino, the woman who was married to Saeed Farouk, they said in public on Fox and CNN 
The reason we didn't query her social media, does anybody remember? Yeah. What was it? It said it was, they didn't query her social media because they were afraid of violating her civil rights and civil liberties. This is a foreign national. The daughter of a Pakistani businessman who is working, living in Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, Syed Farooq is a Hafiz. Anybody know what a Hafiz is? The guy that memorizes the Quran. Now, if you are certified as having memorized the entire Quran, is that something you can get from the University of Phoenix? <laughs> no. You do it through the Shura Council, the community within your mosque that you go to, the Imam and the families and the whole community. They certify you, which means what? If I could stand here and verbatim quote from in the beginning, the Lord created the heavens and the earth all the way. Let it be so, Lord, even so come quickly. Every single word, including numbers and all of it. What would you think? <coughs> yeah, I'd be a person of notoriety and prestige. Said Farak was a Hafiz. That's why I was able to marry the daughter of a rich man, Tashbin Malik. He wasn't just their average guy. And when his imam said to the American public, I didn't know him, he was lying. Broad-faced lying, right? And we swallowed it, we took it, because we don't know the difference between our right hand and our left hand when it comes to this kind of issue. He lied to us, and he did, and he was able to, he did it. Said Farouk was a person of prestige and notoriety. He was a great catch for the daughter of that wealthy man. In other words, a good, pious young man, be a great husband. By the way, he was planning attacks with Enrique Marquez before he ever met Tashfin Malik, because that's what Enrique Marquez is in jail for right now, plotting attacks with Syed Farouk that were unsuccessful. And what would be the natural question for that? FBI? Yeah. If you know there's plots with plural, how long was it going on? How many were there? Who else was involved? Why didn't you stop him? Right? These are the questions that are sitting there like apples on a tree, waiting for somebody to grab. But we don't, except for a few people. And what happens if you see something and say something? Read the book. That's what happens. Who? No, but I think the progressive leftists have the same world view that they, they are perfectly comfortable with lying if that's what's necessary to accomplish their political goal. No problem whatever. Look how many times they've done it. The guy that did the health care parading up and down the stage bragging about how stupid people were. And now we have Ben Rose, the architect of the Iran deal, who did exactly the same thing. These people were drawn into the administration like iron to a magnet. They were sought after and then they were cultivated and encouraged to do it. Haram means forbidden. I'm just going to walk through because like I said, if you like, we can send you the PowerPoint. Hijra. Hijra means to immigrate. 
There's a mosque in Washington, D.C. called Dar al-Hijra, House of Immigration. But most people don't realize that if you immigrate in the name of Allah, Fisa Bil Allah, you receive the same reward in heaven as the Mujahideen, the guys with the guns. The Muhajirun receive the same reward as the Muhajideen, the fighters. That means they're coming when they immigrate with a deliberate and intentional purpose in mind. It's not accidental, and they're not coming here to learn to like hot dogs and watermelon. There's a reason why they're doing it. Because they know they're assured in their heart, mind, and soul that their reward for coming here or anywhere that's not a Muslim country is the same reward in heaven as the guys with the guns. This is part of jihad. Just a different kind. Another tactic. Kufar. There's really no way to translate into English what this word actually means, at least in terms of the emotional impact of it, unless I let loose with a bunch of obscenities. You just take the most concentrated word, the words that people would say to one another when they're the most possibly angry that you can imagine. That's the content emotionally of this word in Arabic when they call us that. Yeah. So these are actually surahs that we're reading. Yeah, okay. I just pulled them right out on purpose, just so when somebody like asked me that question, which I used to get a lot, yeah. Haney, that's you're exaggerating. Yeah. All right, you go look up, read two two twenty six. In fact, there it is, right there. Have fun. <laughs> that's <perfect. laughs> yeah. So I, I, I link everything. My little dots and lines and everything means something. That's it in Arabic. That's it in uh, English. To scheme or to plot. And they, the disbelievers, that's us, scheme and plot it. That's how we see everything. They see everything that we do, including Iran deal, Middle East peace deals. We're scheming and plotting for our own advantage. But Allah also planned and he is the best of schemers. Allah's nature is to deceive and mislead people. So why would they not think that it was all right to do it? That's why the Imam could stand up in front of the cameras and say, I didn't know him. When he's the one that certified the guy as a Hafiz. And not only that, he also forgot to mention that his brother is the Imam of the same masjid in San Diego that Anwar al-Alaki was before he assumed room temperature. Rabat, stronghold. You have believed, preserve, endure, and remain constant, strong, and fear Allah that you may be successful. Rabat, but what, is there a capital of a country in the world called Rabat? It's Morocco. Rabat, Morocco, it's, Rabat means stronghold. It's a masjid. It's a mosque. A mosque is a stronghold for the success of the Muslim community. They are both offensive and defensive strongholds. That's why they put the tower up so you can see them from pretty far down the road. That's why that one in Washington, D.C., which is, I believe, now the largest mosque in the United States, inaugurated by 
the Prime Minister of Turkey is a gigantic existential middle finger because they're telling us we're right here. We've set up our robot right in your capital city. Salafah, you heard the word Salafi, Salafi Muslim. That's not radical. It means original. If we went back and we, we, let's say we bought an apartment complex and we all, you know, pooled our resources, bought the apartment complex and shared and lived together communally or semi-communally, would that be radical? Isn't there a model for that in the book of Acts? All they that believed or had that sold their lands and their goods and had all things in common and gathered together and broke their bread and gladness, meeting in the temple and in houses daily, and the Lord added to them such as should be saved. Those were Salafi. These were people that were original. That's what are Salafi. And next time you heard that word, it's not radical. It means go back to the original. Spirit-filled believers, that's Salafi in a positive application. Is that radical? Well, I guess it depends on how you want to define it, but it's not really supposed to be. And here's a great one, Takiyah. Some of you might have heard of this one, deliberate dissemin dis deception. They are justified to lie to us if they are in fear of opposition or persecution, like the Imam. The reason why he lied so reflexively because he was in fear from, uh, from them as a precaution. So it's a really great system. Every opportunity for the basis qualities of humankind are embedded into the theology. It'll, it allows you to kill people if you're angry. It allows you to lie if you're afraid. All for the sake of protecting, supposedly, the religion of Allah. And here's one, if anybody ever tells you that the word terrify or terrorist is not in the Quran, they're lying to you. Because it says, you prepare by steeds of war that you may terrify the enemy of Allah. And your enemy, your enemy that's your personal one, by the way. In other words, you don't even know who they are. And that's again why they can kill large numbers of people, because they say that. Oh well, there were probably besides them others that were in that group, so we're good, we're covered. Terhubina, that means to terrify. So the word terrorist is in the Quran. You will hear that now that I've mentioned it. In some news release, they will say that. Islam is a religion of peace. Terrorism is not in the Quran. It's not true. And I think that's it as far as the slides go. How about questions? Um, Mike here, so for anyone who would like to ask a question so that we can record it. Ah, here we go. Some people say that Obama is a Muslim and some say he's not. What do you think? My wife's over there smiling because she's heard this like a bunch of times. <laughs> and she knows what I'm going to answer. I have a great answer for it. It's a classic biblical question to answer a question. Remember God Godfather Part 3? And Robert Duvall, lawyer, Tom, 
He played the lawyer for the Corleone family. And uh, Marco Corleone calls him into the office, says, Tom, we're going to be starting a new project. You know, something, whatever it was in Las Vegas, maybe, I forget. But you can't be part of it directly. And remember why? Because you're not part of the family. The question is, was Tom a member of the Mafia? Technically. Did it really matter? Technically, no. Because what did Tom do all those years? He helped them achieve their strategic goals through advising them on the best tactics to use to achieve their strategic goal. So he, is it really, does it really matter? Has he helped them? Does it matter exactly if he's technically is or isn't? It's a safe way of answering because I'm in the public arena and the last thing I need is to be attacked for accusing Obama of being a Muslim when I can't prove it. I wouldn't have survived being a whistleblower and being investigated nine times if I had made those kind of, of what would you call it, abstract, <laughs> subjective, non-provable statements. So I don't. I think up questions to answer questions and I'll let you come, people come to their own conclusion. I mean, you read, it's exactly the same answer as should we pay taxes to Caesar. What was the answer? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God's what is God's. Did he answer the question? Yes and no. Because it's a paradox. Perceived goal. Perceived goal. What, is, what do they think they're going to receive? Party till it's like it's 1999. <laughs> what was that? Now? Party till it's like it's 1999. That's Prince. That was one of his famous songs. Um, what was the nature of the documents that got deleted? The nature of the document was what we call biometrics: names, birthdays passports, addresses, family names, the very core key stuff that any law enforcement agency no, needs to do to build a case. What do you, why do you give your ID to the bank when you're going to cash a check? Exactly. What if that information doesn't exist? If you're a criminal, that's great, right? But if you're not, it's not so great. So if you're a policeman and you're trying to develop a case on a network of people and there's no substantive biometric information in there, you have a hard, pretty hard time figuring out who they are, which, by the way, leads us right to the door of the problem we're having now with the immigration problem. We don't know who these people are because there are no biometrics on them. So what they did, as I told you, inner core, Ben Rhodes and people like that go after the law enforcement officers in the federal agencies first, disarm them, then go after the state law enforcement officers, disarm them. And, they, and when they took records, when they removed the records that I put in, they're only, it's only a precursor, a harbinger of what they did on a macro global level. When they showed their disdain for that kind of information at that level, 
what they were doing just in the same way as they've refused to protect the border. The fact that we don't secure our border is a blind spot in our worldview that has echoed its way through every other domestic and foreign policy that we have. What will happen if you drive in a blind, with a blind spot in your mirror and just insist that it doesn't exist? What will inevitably happen to you? You're going to careen into somebody, right? And if you survive it, you'll be lucky. Well, we have blind spots in our immigration policy be deliberately and the precursor of it started with guys like me where they took this information out. Once they got away with doing that, they're wide open. I, I guess I'm probably stating what is maybe so obvious to everybody else here, but not to me, is I don't get why they would do that. Like, what is, I don't understand what the objective is that, of that is. What's yeah. the purpose of that? They feel that um, the civil rights and civil liberties supersede law. Okay. That the good that they're doing of bringing these people in is higher, that fitna is greater than the harm that it causes. The, the, the crime of not acknowledging their civil rights and civil liberties is a much greater crime than any subsequent damage that might occur. That's their worldview. Well, I know I don't want it to sound self-serving. That's the reason why I went through the trouble of writing the book. Either get it, read it, put a review if you like it, send it out to your friends, start talking, find something in the story you can grab because there's going to be something for everybody to grab a hold of. And then number four, call your congressman, both state and national, and tell them that's enough. It's time for you to do something about this. And you might not know it. You might think it takes thousands. It doesn't. You know how many it takes for a congressman's office to start noticing a trend? That many. Ten calls. Yes, they could do it, but they could take the handcuffs off of law enforcement, so to speak, and let us simply do our jobs. You ask anybody in Border Patrol or ICE or CBP or FBI, and they will all tell you if they're able to do it without somebody looking over their shoulder, they will tell you exactly the same thing. The story is exactly the same across all the agencies. They're not able to do their job. They're told, let people go, let people in. You know, some variation of that theme. It is a common story. It would not be hard for any of you to find lists that long on Google or Yahoo of similar kinds of stories. My story is not unique in one respect. What's re unique about it is I was a founding member. I was there from the very first day. And the other unique thing is I had a lot of experience already in the Middle East. And the third unique thing is that I'm a nerd. <laughs> and I keep track of everything. And uh, you'll see in the back of the book there's about six or seven copies of letters that I got that are, some of them are so preposterous that you wouldn't, if, when you read the transcript of what I wrote in the book, you're going to think that I was, you're going to be tempted to think I made it up. That's why I put the letters in the back. Because I call it the rubber band theory. 
you have to stretch your rubber band of your mind way out here past your normal limit to, to accept it. But what's your natural inclination to do? Let it go. Comes back to its resting state of normalcy. It takes a lot more energy and courage to leave that thing out there and accept that this that things really are, you know, this way. But then you have to respond to it. So those are four easy things. Find a way to get involved in the story. Tell other people. Post a review on Amazon. Because if we can push the book to number one, what will happen? It generates its own kind of momentum and it goes nationwide. I'm calling it the nationwide grassroots campaign. Everybody can be part of it. If you ever wondered that question, gee, what can I do? Now you know. There's something you can do. Yeah, it's I, a grassroots mm, movement. I want to do it. Phil, if, let me make just a quick statement on that. I, if, for you all don't know <laughs> Philip, I've known Philip for a long time. And what he's saying is he's not here to promote his book. He's here to save our nation. If you know what he went through and how this has all happened, you would understand that it's not about trying to make a fortune or, or promoting a book. If you know how the guy lives and who he is, you'll know that that's not his issue. No. He is really saying that we've got to get attention on this situation, and it has to happen immediately yeah. because elections and different things are coming up. We and have six months to get out there. Now I'm I'm more than fifty percent optimistic that things are going to go the way we hope they will. But that's not the time to to rest easy. Now's the time to engage. And the whole argument we're having about whether we should vote or how we should vote is really simple. This is a constitutional republic, not a church board. Vote for the person who you feel is most likely to stand up and defend the Constitution. Amen. That's the country that we live in. Amen. This argument about biblical values is important but secondary because we don't live in a government like a church board. It's a constitutional republic. That's where we found ourselves living at our lives in this country in this time. Use wisdom, redeem the time. Remember what I said about ignorance. These arguments that we keep hearing, oh, I'm not gonna vote for Trump because you know he's a heathen. Well, then what are you saying? Either you're not gonna vote at all or you're gonna let Clinton come in. Do you think between the two, which of the two candidates is more likely to stand up and defend the values of the Constitution. It's easy on that basis, isn't it? Uh -huh. And then may God give us the grace to, to have, find, have the wherewithal to recover ourselves. Because if we don't, what do you suppose is going to happen? You're going to see some of that in living color, right in your own neighborhood. So my question is, scripturally, how are we as Christians supposed to respond and combat what the terrorists are doing and the enemies that are coming against us? Helmet of salvation. Breastplate of shield. What do you think we're given this stuff for? For fun? 
We're, this is spiritual. This is spiritual warfare. Graduate PhD level here. We're talking about the battle is all around us. What are we equipped for? You have to become wise as serpent and harmless as doves. The way you're going to understand this is first of all start to gain a mastery of the subject. Can you develop a set of apologetics that will disarm that from a scriptural perspective? If you can, wonderful, start doing it. If you can't, wonderful, start doing it. Because that's the answer to your question. This is a spiritual warfare. You, you should be able to walk literally, encounter somebody who is thoroughly convinced that that's the correct worldview and disarm them. Can you do it? That's really the question. And that's the answer to your question. How will you disarm the adversary? By the word of God. Applied through your life and the gifts that you have and the people that you encounter. <coughs> That's the answer. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, what is the difference now versus when you were employed um, with you being able to open up with information and why uh, why weren't others doing the same after they got out of the government or something like that? Yeah, why you, Philip? <laughs> Versus somebody else. Yeah. There are a lot of people that were involved. I basically, if this is a stage right here, there, there's a whole kaleidoscope of people. This went on for 13 to 15 years. A whole huge kaleidoscope of people came on and off the stage over the years and I basically stood in the same place the whole time and every day was a different cast of characters or every week or every month and there were a few like James Steve you that came I encountered starting around 09 when I hit the wall I had a major moral crisis because that's when they told me to start modifying the records in this system and I really did not no, I knew spiritually and in my heart what was right. I didn't know how to do it up here because I had to do it and survive. Or I had to find the answer that would allow me to survive. And there were always at least one or two along the way, but the vast majority, and I must say, up in two, including Congress, who I visited 45 times. I also went to the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General and presented my case to him and to this day there has not been one investigation that's been brought up by anybody in Congress. Oddly enough, virtually every story in the book is still going on. None of them have actually been resolved. So I'm technically still a whistleblower. But they're making it easier for me every day because things like Ben Rhodes and these other issues that come out basically see. I told you. That's my case. Right there. You just made it for me. Argument's over. Case closed. So is it kind of, is it like when you first, um, oh, thank you. <laughs> when you first uh, 
like you get hired on, is there like a signature or something that you're not allowed to share the information? It's like when you're in jury duty, you know, while the court case is going on, you're not allowed to share anything if you're a part of the jury, but afterwards you can open up and tell what happened. Um, that's the perils of being a whistleblower. As one thing that I told Ted Cruz's crew, I say crew, staff, I went in one day and I was talking to him and all of a sudden you know, I said, you know, I learned something from this whole process. And they're all looking at me just like you are now because I paused on purpose and I said, what I learned from this whole process is there is no process. <laughs> they laughed just like we did because you know humor is still legal so I try to use it whenever I can but the point is there is no room 243 where you can go and knock on the door get an appointment fill out a couple forms and please come back in a couple weeks and we'll help you it doesn't exist you're you are at the peril you're in peril and danger all along the way because it culminated with the Department of Justice convening a grand jury to find probable cause to indict me and put me in jail. That's how serious they were. While I'm seeing at exactly the same time when that was all going on, our SF-65, our secret clearance documents, all got hacked out of where? Department of Homeland Security. The very same agency I was a part of allowed itself all the secret material on all the guys like me has been hacked. There's no such thing as security for me. Somebody <coughs> has it all. And did that even create a ripple on the water? Nope. Went right over. Just like it never happened. Now I have free credit check for life. Courtesy of American taxpayers. Uh, Philip. Yes. It's okay if I can just... I'd sort of like to address the question that she asked about why, Philip, because I've been there. I've been there. I guess we've been there for a while. Don't, don't run off. I've been there long enough to see that the hand of God was on this man. And I, he was doing this before he ever got into Homeland Security. I mean, he was trained and equipped, strangely enough, in a totally different field that is totally applicable to what he's doing now. God had prepared him every step of the way, and I've watched it happen, that he has led him. I mean, if there is such thing as a, as a male Esther for such a time as this, he is truly a, an Ezekiel 33 watchman. But he is called and appointed to that role because he has done this on his own time. Understand when he's testifying before Congress, he did it around his job. He took vacation and went up there. None of the things that he's doing right now had anything to do with his job. They just accused him and said, hey, you're using the material. That's why he does what he does here. Everything he has is open source. Because as he says, Islam is, has to tell you what they're going to do. And so they do. They publish it. It's all out there. So he simply went and collected it and said, that what they're saying is the truth. You hear from Iran all the things that they're saying? That's because that's what they're going to do. And, and he collected all of that. So they tried to indict him for using this secret information and so on. But they have yet to ever find anything to indict him on. And I've been there. They've tried very hard to shut him down every way. He's, he read some of the letters that were so preposterously ridiculous 
in their language that I, if you had one too many shots of tequila, you wouldn't still be able to make it up, <laughs> what, what they wrote. Because it's just like, this is like, I tell people it's like living in Alice in Wonderland where the Mad Hatter has a 45. That's what it's like. It's not, it's funny, but it's not really funny. We are always told that the average Muslim is peaceful. It's just the radical Muslim that we are fighting, which is the minority of Muslims. And I think that's why they got so upset when Trump said he wanted to stop the Muslims from coming into our country because that's not what they want us to believe. They want us to believe it's this small radical group. What do you think would happen? But out of everything that you've shown tonight, if they're a Muslim and they go by the Quran, they're not not peaceful. Can you imagine renouncing John 3.16? It's inconceivable, isn't it? What do you think would happen if Megyn Kelly read, take that one, that verse right there, emphatically, clearly, and precisely read that verse on TV? What do you think would happen? Well, yeah, maybe even that. Probably. For what reason? Bye, folks. That means fitna is greater than slaughter. See, that's just a secular way of doing it. The fear of ratings going down is greater than the fear of actually preventing attacks. This isn't a question so much, but just something that is so disturbing. Um, our son went to a, a he goes to KS, um, KSU, and he um, went to a history class. And the first day, the professor brought out select quotes from the Quran. Well, first of all, his world history had started at 600 AD, so they could conveniently start with Muhammad. Mm-hmm. And he brought out quotes from the Quran, which were not those quotes, quotes from the Bible, and just made these kids think that there's nothing wrong with uh, Islam. And he did what I thought was interesting, the first day of class, Mm -hmm. so there was no chance for parents like us or anybody else to counter it. And, I mean, within one class, actually, we had to work on him for a while once he got home. He was like... Saying we weren't open-minded. I mean, this is a conservative, awesome Christian kid. And in one class, they just about destroyed 20 years of work. It's just so well, upsetting. Well, if you look at it from a spiritual perspective, think about the power of a deception, of an ideology that emphatically insists that the crucifixion never happened. Think about that. A historical event... Just take the spiritual part out of it. It is well known, documented numerous different ways from different sources other than the Bible, but including the Bible, 
and has been able to pers insist emphatically that it never happened. You're talking about principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Steve saw, well, I can't remember if you were there, when I, I forgot the name of the school we were at. We had a, we had a real life example of it, didn't we? He invited me, or his friend who is a professor, Muslim, at what college? Yeah, and we actually went into his class, right? And he let me talk. Big mistake. <laughs> yeah. And he kept saying that, oh, there was not going to be any overthrow. The Muslim Brotherhood weren't going to try to overthrow Egypt. And I finally came, I, at the end of the class, I said, why don't you invite me back in one year and we'll reconvene and we'll talk about what we said here tonight. Still waiting. That was uh, four years ago. And uh, the class was just sitting there watching us go back and forth. And I have to believe that that might have been an antidote. Yeah. Because uh, it was really quite remarkable, wasn't it? Wow. It was. Philip, do you, do you see the irony of civil rights and civil liberties being used to defend Islam? because they don't believe in the same definition of civil rights and civil liberties that we do. Yeah, they have to see what's going on in the other countries. They do. And it's so violent. How can they want to bring it here? That's what they're doing. They want to destroy America. Because that... is what they believe, meaning... It's a powerful belief system. It's not just belief or faith. It's also social, legal. Every aspect of your life is surrounded by it. There's no option. There's no quiet space from it. You, it's everything. You know how many times, what foot you're supposed to go through the bathroom to enter the bathroom with? You will if you follow Sharia. You know how many times you're supposed to do personal hygiene down to the number you will if you know Sharia how about uh, in your married life how would you like to have a system of rules and regulations of cans and cannot do's posted right up there looking over your shoulder like big brother you will if you follow Sharia uh, okay. go ahead Greg and then we'll Finish up here. Uh, I come from a military family. Uh, you remember the 2009 Fort Hood shooting? Mm -hmm. um, Hassan, Nadal Hassan, I think was his name. He was a United States major. Um, I know everybody in my family's had to go through security clearances. Uh, I was secret. My son is secret. Um, and I'm sure that an officer had to have a similar security clearance. You as being part of... Homeland Security had to go through that. You know how intensive that was. They went back three generations. My question is, is how can somebody with this kind of ties to, to the Islamic community and kill these innocent soldiers right in our own military base Not do only this that, with he that told, kind of clearance? He told his colleagues 
through PowerPoint presentations multiple times exactly what he believed and what he intended to do, not specifically on that day, but laid the groundwork for it. And he was, there were men that, there were officers that were concerned about it and it was brushed under, under the carpet. This was all going on at the same time they, that they were deleting information out of the system from me. Yeah, it's like, as I said, it permeated its way through all of the, I'll call it law enforcement, including military, because it's a form of law enforcement, across the whole government, like toxic gas. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. video really helped me understand a lot more about the Islamic terror and really brought me back to those days when all this was was happening um, and the, some of the interesting things about the Quran um, Philip Haney does a great job there so I hope you enjoyed that one if you're still with us here we are going to continue on to video number two you're going to listen to the audio of this now this is from counter jihad video on YouTube counter jihad video the title of this one is XDHS Whistleblower Philip Haney Testifies on America's Willful Blindness to Jihad. This one is about uh, seven and a half minutes. This is from the Ted Cruz hearing, Islamic Terror, Philip Haney's Testimony. So um, you can look that up. This one actually took place on, it looks like, um, well, the video is dated uh, June 29th, 2016. I try to get these all in order um, and so we know that this definitely happened in June of 2016. So pay close attention to what Philip Haney is going to testify in front of the Senate hearing here. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, thank you very much for the opportunity to testify here today. Also, I'd like to express my appreciation for the patience of the members on the committee and Senator Coons while obtaining a copy of my written testimony. I'd like to start with a visual aid. This is the Homeland Security Advisory Council Countering Violent Extremism Subcommittee Interim Report for 2016. My colleague referred to it earlier as a, a, a suggesting that we should refrain from using words like UMA or jihad, or sharia. I would like to also show you another visual aid, and this is what is called the Words Matter Memo that was published in January of 2008. And my story today is going to be what happened between these two documents, these two touchstone documents, 2008 and 2016, because it was during that period of time that what we know now as the countering violent extremism policy came to be. And one of the expressions of that policy is what we heard all about in the media in a few days after the Orlando shootings, that Attorney General Lynch was going to release partial transcript of Orlando 911 calls with all references to Islamic terrorism removed. That is a con condensation of what was actually happening behind the scenes with subject matter experts like myself who were sworn officers to protect our country from threat, both foreign and domestic. 
between these two dates, 2008 and 2016, came what I call the first great purge. When I was ordered by the Department of Homeland Security headquarters to modify a euphemism, removing all linking information out of approximately 820 text subject records in our law enforcement system that almost exclusively had to do with Muslim Brotherhood Network here in the United States. I was told to remove all unauthorized references to terrorism, that I was no longer allowed to do what are called memorandums of information received, what we call MOIRs, no more text records, no more research, and no more special treatment from the agency. But during that time, hundreds of law enforcement actions had been taken in the three-year period when those 820-plus records were still in the law enforcement system. At exactly the same time, a controversial inaugural meeting took place on January 27th and 28th 2010 between American Muslim leaders and the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano, which was hosted by the Department of Homeland Security Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. It was controversial because several of the individuals attended the invitation only conference in DC were known affiliates of at least two of the same Muslim Brotherhood front groups that had just been named as unindicted co-conspirators in the largest terrorism trial in the history of the United States, the Holy Land Foundation trial. Also that spring, at least six individuals with known affiliations to the Muslim Brotherhood front groups were appointed to the Countering Violent Extremism CVE Working Group, which was convened under the authority of the Homeland Security Advisory Council. I would like to show you now the logo of the Muslim Brotherhood, the moderate organization that this administration chose to ally itself with. Across the middle it says Al-Iqwan Al-Muslimin, which means the Brothers of the Muslim or the Muslim Brotherhood. And at the bottom, taken from Quran 860, is the word Wayayuda, which means prepare yourselves to terrify your adversaries with steeds of war or weapons of war. That is the motto of the Muslim Brotherhood. By the spring of 2010, we had come to the point that a CBP officer was literally moving, linking information, meaning the dots, on Muslim Brotherhood-linked individuals from texts while the administration was bringing the very same individuals into positions of influence to help create and implement our counterterrorism policy, both in the domestic arena and in the foreign policy arena, as evidenced in our overt support of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, Libya, Algeria, and Syria. Fast forward to August 30, 2011, when the Tablighi Jamaat Court uh, case that I worked on was approved by the Chief Counsel of Department of Homeland Security. And this is an icon of the Tablighi Jamaat movement, one of the largest in the world. Outside of the United States, it's called the Army of Darkness. I began a TDY assignment needing temporary duty at the National Targeting Center in November of 2011. Within six months, we had instituted 1,200 law enforcement actions on the case that we had started. But in September of 2012, what I call the second great purge, when the administration removed 67 linking records out of that case that had direct ties both to the San Bernardino Mosque, Darulum al-Islamiyah San Bernardino, and the Islamic Center of Fort Pierce down in Florida. In other words, the network that we had worked on at NTC is tied directly to the terrorist attacks that we've seen recently. 
At the end of my career, I was relieved of my service weapon. All access to text was cut off and suspended. My secret clearance was revoked, and I was sequestered for 11 months while the, re while the results of three simultaneous investigations from three different branches of the government were concluded. In July of 31 of last year, I retired honorably. In conclusion, the threat of Islamic terrorism does not just come from a network of armed organizations such as Hamas and ISIS who are operating over there somewhere in the Middle East. In fact, branches of the same global network have been established here in America, and they are operating in plain sight, especially among those of us who have been charged with the duty of protecting our country from threats both foreign and domestic. The goal, meaning the strategy of the global Islamic movement, is based on Quran 2, 191 through 193, and is actually quite simple, to establish Sharia law everywhere in the world, including here in America. And there is an organization in the United States that's actively doing that. It's called the Assembly of Muslim Jurists of America. Very benign-sounding name, but in Arabic it is Majama Fukaha al-Sharia bi-Amrikiya the group of lawyers implementing Sharia law in the United States, which is unconstitutional. The threat that we face today that continues growing despite the willful blindness of those who insist on pretending otherwise are not the tactical methods of violent extremism, terrorism, or even operative verbs such as jihad, but rather the historical and universally recognized Islamic strategic goal of implementing Sharia law everywhere in the world so that no other form of government, including the United States Constitution, is able to oppose its influence over the lives of those who must either submit to its authority, become second-class demi-citizens, or perish. Thank you very much for uh, your attention. So I think if you wanted to know who Philip Haney is, I think that seven-minute video really helps you understand some of the basics there. And his speeches, uh, I've listened to all of them or watched them all really, but listening to them I think is just as good. Hopefully the audio is not too bad here. Next we're going to look at one. This one is dated August 29, 2016. This is from Michael Cummins' uh, YouTube channel, and the title of this video is Philip Haney at Medef. C-O, M-E-D-E-F-C-O. So this was recorded at a meeting for the Metro Detroit Feet, sorry, this was recorded at a meeting of Metro Detroit Freedom Coalition, M-E-D-E-F-C-O. Then there's a website link here, Medco, uh, let's see, what, what do we have here? M-E-D-E-F-C-O.com. And here is what the description of the video says. Department of Homeland Security whistleblower Philip Haney is a retired charter member of DHS, frontline officer and intelligence expert, who courageously spoke up and reported about the people and organizations that are a threat to our nation. When he did this, his intelligence information was eliminated, and he was investigated by the very agency assigned to protect the country. Mr. Haney's insider eyewitness account is supported by internal memos and documents. He exposes a federal government capitulation to an enemy within and punishing those who reject its narrative. Mr. Haney discloses how the federal government's policies are disarming, handcuffing, and blindfolding law enforcement. Find the complete PowerPoint presentation here. That is at HTTP, and you just type in securemichigan.org, securemichigan.org. All right, let's get right into this. This one is about an hour and 30 minutes. Well worth the time. 
Filippini uh, felt compelled to act selflessly and place the public interest ahead of his own and uh, warn us uh, of uh, the threat from uh, within, really. And his message is, uh, has relevance for all Americans, although he does seem to enjoy a, a special audience among law enforcement uh, due to his uh, originating from Department of Homeland Security. But uh, tonight we're going to hear a warning from him of how leftist uh, policies intended to inflict uh, global chaos on Western democracies uh, is underway and how those policies are intended to impede uh, those governments in maintaining order and retaining their uh, unique identities and values. Uh, so Mr. Filippini is going to describe uh, the, that aspect of it uh, as it relates to uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security. So please welcome a great American, a man of courage, Mr. Philippine. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, everyone, for coming. It's been quite an honor to travel around the United States and meet my fellow citizens. See if I can move over where it won't reverb. Okay. Thank you very much for coming out. What I'll talk about tonight is not an easy subject to discuss. I have found, though, traveling around and I'm on what I call the Midwest tour right now. I've been in nine states. I'm going to Ohio in the morning. I'll finish up in Cleveland, then Columbus, and then Cincinnati, and then go on back down to where I live in the metro Atlanta area for a day or two, and then off to DC for two big meetings, up to Rutland, Vermont, where they're doing what I call parachuting. Refugees are unvetted immigrants into a community without any involvement from the community at all. And that's happening all over. I just heard from a colleague of mine in Duluth. When I was there a few days ago, I gave them a homework assignment. I said, watch in the media for the first indication that somebody in the Islamic community is going to ask for exemption to be made about polygamy. And because it's part of the, their religion. And I couldn't believe it. He said, you were right, Philip. It's already happening. We found out that some of the Syrian immigrants are bringing in two and three wives with them. How are we going to respond to that? Are we going to make an exemption or an exception? Look the other way. So these kind of intrusions, these... these um, insertions into our public life are going to become more and more common until we find a constitutionally based way to respond to them. I wanted to um, read something from here. You can see that in the back of the book I put an appendix. There's quite a few letters that I put in the back of the book because I don't blame you for finding it difficult to believe that what I'm telling you is true. I don't blame you at all. 
So I tried to preempt that or to remedy that by putting the actual letters in the back of the book from the Department of Homeland Security, both the good ones and the bad ones. But this one is the original certificate that we received for the, as founding members of the Department of Homeland Security. It was signed by Tom Ridge, Washington, D.C., March 1st, 2003. It's a 24-word mandate. As a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security, our mandate was dedicated to preventing terrorist attacks within the United States, reducing America's vulnerability to terrorism, and maintaining the Man, minimizing the damage from potential attacks and natural disasters. 24 words. I'd like to know if anybody has ever heard anybody in the administration quote those original founding words. Not even one time. Why do you suppose that is? It was very straightforward at the beginning what the Department of Homeland Security was created for. And those of us who were there on the ground on that day when we all took the vow to protect our country from threat, both foreign and domestic, it was very clear to all of us why we were there. And the purpose of the Department of Homeland Security was no mystery whatsoever. It's very straightforward. And I would like to ask how many people in the room have taken that vow, either in terms of law enforcement or military or some other capacity. And has, are any of you, even if you're not active duty, do, do, have any of you retired from your vow? Yeah. Meaning, do you still feel that it's in effect? Yeah. And that you would have called upon or the opportunity intruded or presented itself, you would respond based on that vow? Well, that's how I feel. That's why I'm standing in front of you. Because I am retired from federal law enforcement I'm no longer active duty with the Department of Homeland Security, but my vow is still in active duty. And therefore, if you take the vow willingly as a person of integrity, with your right hand raised, there's something that you never again can do once you raise your right hand and take the vow, and that is to cover your face. You're not allowed to do that. You cannot, if you're a person of integrity. I'd like to read something from the Const uh, in Declaration of Independence. And I was reading this a few days ago and I came across a phrase that really turned the key for me of understanding what is motivating the people, what I call our adversaries. I don't even use R and D, Republican and Democrat. I use adversaries and allies. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And it struck me while I was reading it, the phrase, the right of the people to alter or abolish it. 
and it hit me. That's what our adversaries are trying to do. Alter or abolish the form of government that we live under. And they have a natural ally. When I say they, I mean the progressive leftists. They have a natural ally, and that is the global Islamic movement. And as we will discuss as we go along, why would they want to alter or abolish the form of government that we live under? Because as you will see, according to Sharia law, it is in direct opposition to any form of man-made government, including the U.S. Constitution. So there you have it. Two ideologies, one secular, one religious, quote-unquote, who have exactly the same purpose, the same strategy, is to alter or abolish it. Because they see it as oppressive, discriminatory, biased, and so on. And what do you hear constantly, the refrain from the left? That our former government was founded by slave-owning, discriminating white men, and that the whole structure of our country is flawed. And that they, therefore, have taken it upon themselves to alter or abolish the form of government we live in. And that is called hope and change. That's what it is. So the title of my talk today is Strategy and Tactics of the Global Islamic Movement, Operative Verbs from the Quran. Have we ever heard the phrase from the government, words matter? So, if words matter, as we're told so often, then why don't we just take them at their word and dis discuss some of the meanings of these words. What, what do they really mean? Words brought the universe into creation. Words have the power of life and death, it says according to the Bible. So, why don't we examine some of those words? And by the way, let's talk just a minute before I go forward about the distinction between strategy and tactics. And I'll give you a really easy illustration. When we're all finished tonight, what will our strategy be? Each one of us. It's really quite simple. Go home. That's our strategy. The complicated part, the kaleidoscopic part about it is how will you do it? Because there is an infinite number, not really infinite, but a, wide, a large variety of different ways that you can choose to go home. You can go to the left or the right or straight, the other way. But, but in any way you do it, that's the tactical. That's the tactics, the way, the method that you use to accomplish your strategy, which is to go home. And if all of us here were here for a month straight, sitting in exactly the same seat that we are now, and we all left at exactly the same time, let's say 9.25, and we all went out the door, None of us would ever get home any of those 30 days at exactly the same time. Why not? Because of the infinite number of variables that intrude themselves along the way that affect the course you take and the time it takes to get there. But despite of all those variables, your strategy never changes, does it? No. And it's the same way with the global Islamic movement. Their strategy is really quite simple, Sharia law. But what is complicated and kaleidoscopic about it is the tactics that they use. The tactics range in a spectrum all the way from polite conversation, persuasion called dawah, to intimidation and coercion, 
Like somebody talked about the Muslim Mafia in western Detroit, all the way to violence with swords and guns. It's a whole spectrum, but those are all tactics. But the strategy is the same in every case, and that means that every Islamic group operating in the world today, Hamas, <coughs> Hezbollah, Lashka Taiba, Tablig and Jamaat, ISIS, you name it, Boko Haram, they do not argue about their strategy. The strategy is the same, implementation of Sharia. What is different, debatable, and then some, sometimes even they fight over, is the tactics, how to go about it. And there are two main groups, and one of them is what I call the Godzilla approach, and that is Godzilla stomps on buildings and eats trains for lunch, right? Mm -hmm. and the, in, the, in the Godzilla movies, they're always shooting howitzers and cannons at them, and everybody's running around like ants. What if there was another small little venomous little creature in the Godzilla movie that slithered in under the door and comes in and bites us in the feet or something. Well, we die from that too, right? His foot comes down and we get squished or the snake under the door bites us in the foot. But they're both reptiles and they're both working for the same strategy. So we have the ISIS kind, the Boko Haram kind, the Hezbollah kind, the Hamas kind, but we also have the Tablighi Jamaat kind, the case I worked on with the 67 deleted records. And we have the Muslim Brotherhood kind, which are the snake under the door. But they're all motivated by the same gravitational force, the same power that keeps them all in the orbit of the world that they live in, like planets orbiting around the sun, and that is the goal to implement Sharia law. Because as from their world view, Islam is a religion of peace. Comma, pause for effect, that's what we say in law enforcement. Just not right now. And why not just right now? Because there is opposition to the implementation of Sharia law in different places in the world. But most notably, it's in the English-speaking part of the world, including us. That's why the headquarters of all these organizations are gradually being moved into Western English-speaking countries because we are the last bastion of resistance against the global influence of Sharia law. And above and among all of those countries, United States of America is by far the strongest in opposition to the forces of Sharia law. And we're all here tonight called on to play a part in that and what I didn't remember to mention when I ask you about the vow is that I would like to suggest that all of us take the vow of a citizen to stand up and defend our country from threat, both foreign and domestic. It's not just the job of the military or law enforcement. This is a country of our government of foreign by the people. And according to the Declaration of Independence, the Lord himself created government. If the Lord himself, and in Romans 8, instituted government, then by default, we are called on to participate in the process. We don't have the option of schlepping our way through life in a state of ignorance. It's unauthorized. We're violating the, the, the rules of the ki coming kingdom if we allow ourselves to meander through life in a state of ignorance like children. Remember what it says? Don't be children. Be men of understanding. 
children and guile, but men of understanding. So here is the icon, an animated icon, and I would like to just to pretend that you're all my colleagues at the Department of Homeland Security National Targeting Center, what I call the Secret Squirrel Division of Homeland Security, where I used to work. And I hand you this, and I say, I want you to analyze this and give me a briefing in 20 minutes. Is this a threat to our country? Should, is this something that we can, should be concerned about? I want you to tell me, give me a briefing, what is it? So, what do we see there? We're doing what we call a first level analysis. The world, okay, good. And it's rotating. Swords, a couple swords, right? Okay, the Quran, someone said Quran. Why do you say that? What is the evidence that that's actually the Quran? See, you have implicit bias, according to uh, the Attorney General. You're not supposed to make those assumptions. That's the answer. Yep. So the overwhelming visual evidence is that it is a very plausible premise, right? You can build a case built on probable cause that that's the Quran, because you have articulable facts. Now I'm talking like a cop, right? That's what you have to do. Now what else do we see that we haven't mentioned yet? That's right. Okay. You think those words are important? Or should we just ignore it, right? Okay, if they're important, then what are you going to do? How are you going to find out what they mean? Somebody's got to tell you, right? I'll help you. So let's look at, let's start with the words this time around. Middle right, the word on the right there in the middle in white, that's alikwan. Alikwan. The one on the right is al-Muslamin. That's alikwan al-Muslamin. That is the brothers of the Muslim, Islamic. This is the Muslim Brotherhood's icon. Have you ever heard of the Muslim Brotherhood before? Have you ever heard of CARE? Yeah. Council on American Islamic Relations. How about Walid Dawood? Dawood Walid. That's him. That's his organization. How about Islamic Society of North America? How about the guy in Canton, Michigan named Ali Suleiman Ali? That's him too. Okay, what about the word down at the bottom? That is Yayuda. It means prepare. Prepare to do what? It means prepare to terrify your enemies and defeat them in war. That's what it says. It's from Quran 860. I'll unfall the spoils of war. We're going to see it a little bit later. By the way, before I forget, work with your coordinator for the event. Write your email down. Maybe he has all yours already. And I, you can have the PowerPoint. You don't have to worry about trying to write everything down or memorize it all. It's designed for you to learn from. So when you have it, then you can go back, check what I'm saying, come to your own conclusions, all the URLs and the uh, citations. Oh, I just messed up. Didn't mean to push that button. <coughs> Now I might have to restart it. That's what Hillary said. <laughs> okay, what I was trying to say is the uh, URLs and everything are in the PowerPoint slides so you can go back and look it all up. So we'll wait for this and I'll talk. Hopefully it'll come back up in a minute.
We were talking about the Muslim Brotherhood icon, the verse from Quran 8.60 that says prepare to defeat them and terrify them in war. Remember the two swords, what do they mean? Why two? Well, it's implementation in Sharia internally and enforcement and promotion of Sharia law externally. So yeah, it does have to do with war. It basically implies that everything up to and including the sword is authorized to accomplish the goal that is implied in that icon. And then what about the Quran itself? What does it imply if the people that made this icon put the Quran in there, then what does that imply? Well, yeah, authorization, approval. In other words, it's a direct contradiction to what we hear constantly, that Islam is a religion of peace. That these people are hijacking the peaceful religion of Islam and that terrorism has nothing whatsoever to do with Islam. But it does. Mm -hmm. The swords are clean, but who holds the handles? They're, they have blood on their hands. Yeah. So I kind of like to put in that red meaning that's bloodshed there. I'll keep that in mind next time. And then the earth itself. Did you notice when it was rotating that were there an exclusion zone in North America? In other words, we're exempt from the influence of the intention of this icon? No. So what does it all taken together mean? Is there, is there a threat implied there? Okay. So we get to the point now of the real lesson and that is why would this administration form a formal alliance with this organization and bring them into positions of authority and influence both in the domestic arena vis-a-vis -vis counterterrorism and in the foreign counterterrorism arena as well? Why would they do that? Is it because maybe they didn't know? Money. No, you can't say they didn't know. Why? How many people have heard of the Holy Land Foundation trial? Well, the Holy Land Foundation trial was a turning point in the history of counterterrorism in America because that was the point when the U.S. government through the Department of Justice proved irrefutably that these same groups I mentioned before, CARE, Islamic Society of North America, North American Islamic Trust, were irrefutably tied to support of Hamas and that they were all part of the Muslim Brotherhood Network operating in the United States. So, they cannot say they didn't know. Before 2008, maybe plausibly you could give them a little slack. But afterward, you can't cut them any slack at all because it was proven in federal court that these groups were tied to support of Hamas. Has anybody ever been upgraded by uh, Windows 10? Yes. You see why my computer's so slow? Because it messed it all up. So we're getting back there. So the whole impression of that animated icon is to convey the strategic and tactical goals of the global Islamic movement. That's the point of it.
darn thing. Well, I'll keep going. Maybe it'll pop up in a minute. Okay, so we covered this, so the, the overall impression, let me ask you, did, how many people knew before we started that that was the icon of the Muslim Brotherhood? A few. How come all of us don't know it? It's just a rhetorical question, it's not a criticism. We should all know this kind of thing, shouldn't we? And that leads me to another observation I've made during the time I've traveled around. That is, there are three reasons why people are upset across the country. The first one is, understandably, this is an upsetting topic, just on face value. When you start to understand and realize what these people really intend to do, it's upsetting. The second reason people are upset is that no one told them about it before. Here we are 15 years down the road from 9-11, and we still don't know the most basic components of this ideology. Why not? If Islam is such a religion of peace, then what are we so afraid of? Where's all the reluctance and hesitancy? And this is uh, Allah is our objective, the Prophet is our leader, the Quran is our constitution, Jihad is our way, dying in the way of Allah is our highest aspiration, Allahu Akbar. That is the motto of the Muslim Brotherhood. Is there anything in that you can see that's even remotely moderate? But we are called, told constantly, the White House, remember when they used to put up petitions on the White House and they said they'd be the most transparent government ever? And then they asked people to, to sign the petitions and they would take action based on the, uh, the requests of the American citizen? Well, they did it with the Muslim Brotherhood to designate them as a terrorist organization back in 2011. They collected more than 240,000 signatures and the Obama administration said they could find no evidence that the Muslim Brotherhood had anything to do with violence whatsoever. And that they had, as James Clapper, Defense Intelligence Agency said, they are a secular organization with no global agenda who have renounced violence. That's what he said in front of Congress, the Oversight Committee. Now, Allahu Akbar, remember Omar Mateen in Orlando? When he called 9-11, that's what he was shouting on the phone. And Loretta Lynch redacted it from the transcript because she said she did not want people to be re-victimized. That's what her reason was. But the real reason why they redacted it is because they have this narrative that there's nothing to do between Islam and terrorism. And because they always say that Allahu Akbar is just a phrase of respect toward God, has nothing to do with jihad or violence. So Omar Mateen was not cooperating with the narrative when he killed those people. And so the government chose to erase it, or try to. It wasn't surprising to me because they did it in cases that I worked on clear as early as 2009. And we'll get to that as we go. They set a precedent. I was a harbinger. I was one of the very first people in the government that they came after because I was a subject matter expert, meaning a specialist in the detection of these groups, the study of these groups, and the individuals and the organizations affiliated. 
and I put all this information into the network, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of records. Another reason why the administration can't say they didn't know. And basically they had three options at the point when, when they started inviting members of the Muslim Brotherhood into the administration, they had three options. To first of all, ignore the information, the derogatory information that was already in the system before they ever started inviting these individuals in. The second one was to delete it. Because when they found out that ignoring it wasn't enough because some of the people, the records were actually working and people affiliated with the administration were being what we call secondary, sent into the little room for additional questioning. Well, they called their contacts in the executive branch of the government and raised a big stink. And the government responded by saying, okay, well, we'll take the information out of the record so you don't have the inconvenience of being secondary. And that was the second step they took. They deleted it. The third step they took was to come after the people to put it in the system in the first place. And it's like a pyramid. There was a small group of subject matter experts up at the top of the pyramid just for the sake of an illustration that they knocked off one at a time. I was the first one they went after. And ironically, if that's the right word, amazingly, I survived more longer than all the rest of them put together. They, they came after me in 06. I spent 10 years under virtually constant investigation from this administration. One time under the Bush, eight times under the Obama, while the, my other colleagues, one by one, got discredited and pushed out of their positions of teaching counterterrorism threat doctrine in either the Department of Defense or the FBI or DHS or any of the other agencies in the government affiliated in some way or another with counterterrorism. And along the way, I learned that the only way I would survive it was to document every single thing that happened. To write it down and put it in writing and literally send it up the chain of command. I didn't expect them necessarily to respond, but I put it in the record so that they couldn't say, well, did you try? Did you follow procedure? You bet. I did. My first career was entomology. I was an agricultural field entomologist. In other words, a nerd. And what do nerds do? They write everything down, right? Well, not only that, I was a, I was a, what you might call a supercharged nerd. I took shorthand. And I wrote everything people said down. And oftentimes I'd be doing it right in front of them and they'd say, Haney, what are you writing? Everything you're saying. 110 words a minute. That's the average talking speed of a person. Right now I'm talking about 110 a minute. Because when you write and when you do that for a living, you get to judge how fast people are talking and how fast you have to write to keep up with them. I took it in high school. I was the only boy in a class of 17 girls and I never went out with one of them once. So that tells you what a nerd I was. Sharia is self-defined. I brought up about being an entomologist just to tell you that I was a scientist before I was a counterterrorism specialist. And I used the same approach in, as I did when I was in science. And the reason why I traveled around so much in the Middle East was because of my career in science and I, I worked in the Middle East. I started, started studying Quranic Arabic and the strategy and tactics of the global Islamic movement way before 9-11. And I lived in places like Yemen and Jordan and Egypt 
and Eritrea, meaning whereas Mara, the highest capital in Africa is, over there in the Horn of Africa, and saw Islamic culture up close and personal. So I started studying the language in the Quran and learning the theology, because I studied biblical languages as well, Greek and Hebrew. And then the Lord showed me way, way back, I want you to start studying the Quran because I want you to be balanced. I want you to understand all of what's going on in the Middle East, including Islam itself. So that was way before 9-11, and there was no market value for it. Nobody cared about that kind of stuff until 9-11 happened, and then everything changed overnight. And what I used to do is now invisible, and what was before invisible is now out in front. Sharia law defines itself as a legal system governing Islam, derived from the Hadith and tradition. It is a compilation of moral, civil, and religious law as opposed to any human legislation, except for the U.S. Constitution. Does that say that? No. Nope. And the verb oppose, is that a passive verb? No, it's an action verb. It's an assertive verb. Islam opposes aggressively any other form of human government, including the U.S. Constitution. What I'm trying to show you is the pervasive, if you will, influence of Sharia in the Islamic world, which is now beginning to emerge right in front of us here. We don't need to read all of this. This is from Sayyid Qutb, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. And he called Christianity a hideous schizophrenia. His ideology was based on hatred of Christianity. He called Christianity fitna, which is uh, opposition, something that needs to be removed, a block. And down at the bottom it says, the mission of Islam is to repair the world by bringing about the rule of God's law on earth. What is God's law on earth? That's right. All this is is another way of defining what I'm telling you, that the strategy of the global Islamic movement. By the way, the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, the Muslim Brotherhood, is an Arab revivalist movement. That's what it was created for, to bring back the caliphate. ISIS is just Muslim Brotherhood ideology in action. It is, the, you might say, the, the Muslim Brotherhood's Godzilla. But Muslim Brotherhood has all these other creatures that are being sent out into the world as well. Here's the three things that he hated, just for a Christian audience. Jesus was not crucified, that's Quran 173. Calling Jesus the Son of God is blasphemy, it's a death sentence. And Muhammad is the paraclete, the parakletos in Greek there. The Holy Spirit. Did you know that? How many people knew that? Mm -hmm. If you're going to have interfaith dialogue, these three points should be the first thing on the table. Because if you can't get past this, then you have no dialogue. It's a monologue. And it's being controlled by the other side. You have to address these things first. Otherwise, you're, there's no point. You're not accomplishing anything. You're compromising. If you have a religion that believes implacably that Jesus was not crucified. What does the Bible say about that? If you don't believe it, he's crucified. Among other things, we are, our religion is in vain and we are of all men most miserable. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So we are foolish. There's no 
if Islam is true, we are fools because we're believing something that isn't true. But they do believe in Jesus. Yes, but not in terms of an atonement. Correct. Yeah. Nor did they believe that he died on the cross. He, he did go into heaven. He is supernatural in that respect, but not with any atoning quality. And actually he's going to come back and announce the Mahdi coming up. And then he's going to kill all the Christians that don't submit to Islam. But to me the one is the most serious is that teaching that Muhammad is the paraclete. The one who was promised in John 14 and 16 that would never leave us or forsake us. So that's important to know. Whenever you view Islam, regardless of how else you might look at it, you should know that. It's in direct opposition to the very core of what we believe. In our world, what does Sharia law look like? Well, this is a flowchart. If it was an animated icon like the first one, you would see it ebb and flow day by day. But all it really does is show you the gravitational force of the desire to implement Sharia law in one particular geographical area we call Iraq or Iran or Syria. In the old days, before 1917, in the Sykes-Picot Agreement, there were no borders in the Middle East. It was called Al-Shams, the place of the sun. And that's what IS in ISIS means, the place of Al-Shams, the place of the sun. What they're trying to do is go back before to the time before the West was ever really involved in the Middle East at all. That again is why the Muslim Brotherhood was founded. It's called Al-Arab al-Arabiya, the Arab revival. We called it during the uprising in Egypt and across the Middle East, the Arab Spring, but that's a mistranslation. Again, talking about the importance of the meanings of words. We were constantly told that it was a democratic uprising to implement you know, freedom and, and democracy in the Middle East, but that's not what it was at all. It was an Arab revival movement. And the leaders of it knew it and said so plainly from the very beginning. But our administration, because they were allied with the Muslim Brotherhood, promoted a false narrative about what it really was. But when the time came and the Muslim Brotherhood found the opportunity, they literally pushed the young people that drove that Arab Spring in Egypt off the stage and co-opted the entire movement. And Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who had not been in Egypt for 30 years, when Mubarak conceded and stepped down and they claimed victory, they gathered in Tahrir Square by the hundreds of thousands and they shouted at the top of their voice, Rahim, Shahadin, Milyonin, Al-Quds, Rahim, Shahadin, Milyonin, Al-Quds. We will march to Jerusalem to die as martyrs by the millions. They declared to us what their intention was all along. They didn't say, long live George Washington, or Up, long live Abraham Lincoln. They said they were going to go to Al-Quds, the holy city, and die by the millions. And the Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi was standing right there on the platform, like a king, with all these hundreds of thousands of her men raising their face, fists like that. While the CNN commentator, one of the most surreal things I've ever seen in my life, was commenting over the top of the roar saying, isn't it wonderful democracy has come to Egypt? While these people are shouting at the top of their voice that they're going to conquer Jerusalem. That's what you call an existential disconnect. 
And here first, a little more Hebrew. Lo yishama od hamas which means in English, no longer will you hear the sound of violence in your land. The reason why I bring it up is because Hamas, amazingly enough, is violence. The red word over at the top, the little square letter, the three, that's Hamas. In, in Hebrew it means violence, in Arabic it means zeal. And the last letter, this one here, is a C, Kaf, and it means yours. So really the argument's actually been settled. The land is theirs, the one who the Lord gave to. The controversy is between today, the 24th of August 2016, and what will happen when that actually does finally become true. That's what we're looking at, and we're part of it. We're, we're in the middle of a great controversy, an everlasting hatred, that God basically does not have the right to choose who we will have a relationship with. But we've been grafted into that same covenant we're part of it. And we need to recognize that because the adversary that is raging in the world as per Psalm 2 intends to overthrow that covenant. They can rage against the Lord, the land, and His people, but they can't see the Lord. So who do they rage against? The land and the people. And this here, again, you can have the PowerPoint, so I won't spend a whole lot of time in each slide. But this comes from the uh, coup, Erdogan and coup last month. Yusuf al-Qaradawi, the same guy I just mentioned a minute ago, standing on the stage in Egypt, endorsed Erdogan in the, in the coup and said he was the rightful ruler of the global Ummah. Ummah means mother or community. And declared through this organization they would only fight against those who are hostile to the Islamic nation. Who would that be? anybody that opposes Sharia law. The whole thing in Turkey was an effort to push Sharia back and live a more secular democratic life and it was ruthlessly put down. Tens of thousands of people died. And virtually all professionals through all strategy of Turkish society lost their jobs or pushed out. This just happened a month ago. That's the power of Sharia law, friends. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And this is an, an article that was written. What is Sharia law? Should we be scared about it? Notice the dates. I always use recent information. Well, the article is very condescending and dismissive, as though people who are concerned about Sharia law have no basis for their fears, and we're just being Islamophobic. And that ties into uh, what I call the con-con at the DNC, waving the Constitution in front of us, as though we don't know what that constitution means, while all the while he actually is a Sharia promoter. You say, that's a bold statement, Mr. Haney? Well, there's the paper he wrote. Juristic Clarification of Sources of Islamic Law. Qazir Muzam Khan, Houston Journal of International Law, Autumn 1983, Volume 6, Number 1. This is the guy that waved the constitution in front of us at the DNC. You talk about audacious obscenity. He's a pro-Sharia promoter, standing in front of us pretending like he's a constitutional supporter. We're being misled and deceived blatantly right in front of us. These are not the droids you're looking for, but we need to not let Jedi mind trick be working on our... And this is the way you're going to do it. 
is by understanding information like what I'm showing you. Then you know about the Glenn Beck case is being sued by a person that doesn't exist? Yeah. Well, Al Harvey was at the scene of the Boston bombing. And uh, I won't go into the long story, but Janet Napolitano lied to Congress, said that he didn't exist, that there was no person or subject of interest and no person that was going to be deported. The only problem was is that I knew she was lying because why? I had the evidence in my hand. I provided it to the, the House Committee on Homeland Security through their secure facts. The committee knew she lied. They did not hold her accountable. And then it got leaked on to Glenn Beck's show and he held it up to the camera. And the person, Al Harby, who's the subject of the plaintiff in the lawsuit, is suing him for slander and discrimination, which are capital offenses, defamation. Capital offenses according to Sharia law. We have come to the point where our own administration is letting a foreign national sue an American citizen over what he said on the American media and claim and ordered about 10 days ago that he should reveal his confidential sources. What do you think the Saudi Arabian government is going to do with information on confidential sources? Who, by the way, happen to be two law enforcement officers. I think you probably already guessed who one of them is, right? Actually, it's a semantic flaw because I didn't actually provide anything to Glenn Beck. I provided it to the House Committee on Homeland Security but it got leaked out of their committee. And what is this case going to do about whistleblowers, which I was, confidential sources? How about the complicated fact that once I was a law enforcement, now I'm civilian? What about the First Amendment? Yeah, what about the, uh, the faith of confidential sources? There's a lot in this case. Today, when I was at the other location, I was taking calls from the lawyers they're not going to reveal the names. They're going to seek a way to settle the case without revealing the names. And they were asking me for more background on what this particular charge that Al Harvey had, which is called, we call it 3B, terrorism charges. And I told them there's three components. There's actual involvement in real terrorism with guns and stuff. There is affiliation with people who are known terrorists and then there's financial support. And so they're going to put in some more paperwork and see if they can mediate or come to an agreement on how to settle the case without revealing the names of the sources. But I'm particularly upset with the administration and even people with R's after their name because they knew. And they let my, me and my colleagues suffer the effects of what I call invisible shrapnel. Because when Janet Napolitano lied, she pulled the trigger on the third bomb of the Boston Marathon bombing and it shredded people like myself. She has not been held accountable. She's now the Chancellor of the University of California. But the people who took the hit for the administration's incompetence and abrogation of duty are people like myself and my colleague. This one is, uh, you ever heard of grooming gangs in the UK or rape gangs in the rest of Europe? Well, the, the uh, leadership in Europe's solution is for women not to provoke the rape gangs. They're not going to deal with that because they might violate the sensibilities and the civil rights and civil liberties of these new immigrant classes. So they're telling the women that it's on you to protect yourself. And where does this come from? What does this have to do with Sharia law anyhow? 
you might ask. Well, here's what it has to do. It's from the Quran. Not to mention, according to the U.S. Southern Command in 2015, there 331,000 immigrants came across the southwestern border. Of that, 30,000 were from countries of terrorist concern. And so you say, why? Well, big deal. Well, here's the verse in the Quran. Chapter 4, verse 3. What your right hand possesses is authorized to the Quran that when you come into an infidel land, a non-Islamic country, you can take anyone you want to. As it says, you can marry three or four women. This is the verse where it comes to authorizing marriage of four women. But then the rest of the verse says, but if you fear that you will not be just, then marry only, that's in brackets, one of those your right hand possesses. This is more suitable that you may not incline to injustice. How convenient. If you, if you can't take care of four wives, just capture one and use her as a sex slave. Pretty grotesque, I know. But this is the facts. This is why this kind of stuff is going on all over the world. And now I heard somebody call it the Muslim Mafia is in western Detroit. And that's the kind of thing. Watch out for human trafficking and sex slavery right here in the United States. But I would suggest, and I'm sure there are some that have been involved in one way or another, you need to be really careful about getting involved because if you don't have a strong heart, it will break you. This is a hideously obscene thing. And when you get involved in the lives of women that have been abused like this, you better have a strong heart because it will mess up your life if you don't. You should be called to it. It's not something that you should take lightly. On the other hand, there are people do have, who do have the grace to do it, and they should. <clears throat> you think that Donald Trump is crazy because he said the Obama administration founded ISIS? <clears throat> you wouldn't think so if you listened to Claire McCaskill. He said, she said Trump and Putin founded ISIS. <laughs> this is the level of deception, disinformation, and misinformation that we're receiving in this world today. It's like a, that in the movies where that white toxic gas comes across the floor. If it touches you, it'll turn you into a zombie. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit speaking to the community of faith. That's the only one that'll keep us sober-minded in this confusing world that we live in. Otherwise, you're ho it's hopeless. There's no way you can stand up against this kind of disinformation if you don't know that what they're saying is a total lie. So to, to prove the point, here's the, here's the answer to my question. The Defense Intelligence Agency published a report in August of 2012, a month before Benghazi, and told that three things were happening from Benghazi. A, they were sending small shipments of arms to the coast of Syria. B, they were giving those small shipments of arms that wouldn't be detected to three main groups opposing Assad, Al-Nusra Front, Al-Qaeda of Iraq, and the Muslim Brotherhood. And when I read that, I realized no wonder I was always in so much trouble. I was targeting the very organization that this administration had formed an alliance with. And number three is they encouraged him to take eastern Syria as a buffer. Between Assad and the Iranian regime, and did they do it? Yeah. You bet. Then what did they do after that? They took Western Iraq. This is ISIS. 
we created ISIS. Now we're dealing with the consequences of these policies. They're called immigrants. They're actually unvetted immigrants. <laughs> Nobody actually knows who they are. They know who they are, believe me. They know exactly who they are, what family they were born in, what city they were born in. Their grandparents and names back five generations. Believe me, they know who they are. But when they come on here, they adopt this persona that they are, that they are unnamed, uh, lost all their paperwork, and then they take all the hands out, handouts because that is called civilizational jihad or settlement jihad. Their mandate is to plunder us. That's what Anwar al-Awlaki's legacy was. You remember him? The reason why he's so important in history is because he translated the abstract concepts of different forms of jihad to the English-speaking world so that they could see through the veil and understand concisely and appropriate, or correctly what the strategy and tactic of the global Islamic movement actually is in English. That was his legacy. Just in case you might be thinking that none of what I'm talking about really has much to do with us here, I'm not, I don't think you really feel that way, but just in case you did, let's do another analysis. What's that icon have in similarity to the first one we looked at? Mm -hmm. There's some Arabic, there's a world, there's a Quran again. The Quran says if you lack knowledge, seek out those who have it. So what would that imply? That the people that are in this organization are the ones who have the knowledge. The mosque is there, yes. The uh, wheat, those things on the side, that is a symbol of Al-Arab, Al-Arabiya, what I already mentioned, the Arab revival. That's the same symbolism that is in the Holy Land Foundations icon. So there's a continuity through all these icons. This is Muslim Brotherhood, by the way. So somebody read for me the uh, words in English. Not that ominous, I suppose, really, just if you take it at face value. So let's look at what the words in Arabic, remember this is your second briefing you're given to your supervisor. He wants to know, does this organization pose a threat? So you did such a good job on the last one, he's asked you to do this one now. So let's look up here. That little letter, the little round one, that's an M in Arabic. The very first word is majama. Rhymes with pajama. It comes from the word jamas, and now when you put an M on the front of any noun in Arabic or Hebrew, it becomes the people that do it, the people in the group, for example. Using a nice example, lamed means to learn in Hebrew. A melamed is the person who teaches you. And Talmud, amazingly enough, the Talmud is the thing that teaches you. So the second word is fukaha. Fukaha is plural for the word fiq. Fiq is law. So this is a group of lawyers. You want to surmise a guess what the third word might be? Sharia. Al-Sharia. And the fourth word is bit-amrikia. Bit means in or with. Bit-amrikia means in America. This is the group of lawyers promoting Sharia law in America. So I'd like to give you a homework assignment. 
Call your state, local, and federal representative and ask him, why is this organization even operating in America? Because remember what I, have anybody read Article 6 lately of the Constitution? Article 6 says that the U.S. Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land. This is an illegal organization. They should not be operating here. But it is. It's a Muslim Brotherhood front group. Not only that, it's not a U.S. organization only. It's a global organization. And every so often, every couple of years, they get together and they have a thing called Ishtama, which means consensus. And they talk about challenges to the Islamic Ummah community in different parts of the world. And in America, they talk about things like whether you should work for the government or law enforcement or the military. And the basic bottom line ruling of the fatwas that they order, publish, is that you can join these organizations as, as long as you hate them in your heart. That your alliance remains with Islam. It's called enmity and enmity and, um, I forget the other word, it's a very well-developed doctrine in Islamic jurisprudence. <clears throat> you hate in what you love, enmity and alliance. So you're allowed to join these groups if you hate them in your heart. Fort Bragg. And you remember? That's right. Not Fort Bragg, Fort Hood. Or Fort mm -hmm. Hassan. Nidal Hassan. Yeah. So that's the out. That's according to Sharia law. So this is a U.S. organization. And Khan is one of the affiliates, a pro-Sharia kind of person, with this organization here. The Tablighi Jamaat case, I didn't talk about it a whole lot. You've ever heard me talk about the 67 records that were deleted? Well, this is the case. The guy on the right is Syed Farouk. The one on the bottom picture is also him. If that's his passport picture, and that's what he looked like when he came through Chicago a little bit later, if you were a law enforcement officer with a subject matter expertise in counterterrorism, would you maybe be naturally curious? Syed, what were you doing between that passport picture and that one there? It looks like you just stopped off the plane from Pakistan. My specialty was Tablighi Jamaat, this group that he's part of. And I targeted not only the group, but also the organization called the Darulum al-Islamiyah Masjid, like the one in San Bernardino. And that's the records that the administration deleted out of the system. What does that imply? That we could have stopped San Bernardino. And also, if that's not bad enough, Orlando, Fort Pierce Islamic Center is part of the same network. And the administration deleted the entire case out of the files and then investigated me. Before it was done, the last 11 months of my career I was sequestered. They revoked my secret clearance. They canceled all access to the systems that I've been using my whole career. They took my weapon and they, I waited while three simultaneous investigations were being conducted. One by the Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, Internal Affairs, had two top-notch investigators spent two years. The Department of Justice uh, branch of integrity, Office of Integrity, that was criminal charges. They convened a grand jury to find probable cause to indict me and put me in jail. I would have ended up right next to Dinesh D'Souza. And the third one was the Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security, all three at the same time. In the last 11 months of my career, 
and I talk about it in the book. I did retire honorably, and that's why I always use the caveat honorably, because there was no certainty of outcome during this long ordeal that I would be able to retire, let alone not end up in jail. For what, by the way? Putting this information into the system. That's what I was in trouble for. Not insubordination or moral failure or refusal to follow an order for putting this information in the system. They spent all that time investigating me instead of investigating groups like this. Now, one of the most spectacular things that ever happened in my law enforcement career was right here. Anybody remember seeing me on Megyn Kelly on the 10th of December 2015? Well, I told her that it was Tablighi Jamaat that did the San Bernardino. She had never heard of it. I don't blame her. Except that outside of the United States, Tablighi Jamaat is known as the Army of Darkness. That's their name. 125 million people across the world are part of this group. However, even my colleagues in Washington were telling me, Haney, you really stretched the rubber band this time. Boy, if you're wrong, you're, that's it for you. Because if, if I had said that Saeed Farouk and Tashveen Malik were part of, let's say, Hamas or Hezbollah or any other group, they would have still been terrorists, but I would have been wrong. Meaning I would have misdefined mis them and I would have discredited myself. He doesn't know what he's talking about. See, we told you that's why we investigated him all that time. But a week later, the FBI did something I've never seen do before or since, ever. Anybody here in law enforcement ever heard of the FBI publishing the unredacted affidavit of an interview with anybody, any case, period? Well, they did it with this one. And in paragraph 23, they said, during this time, Marquez and Farouk discussed the Tablighi Jumat, the group that nobody ever heard of. Movement and Marquez began to pray more frequently at Farouk's residence. It proved my case. Yep. Thank you, FBI. It's almost like they gave me one. Here, Haney, here's one for you. Because they didn't have to put that in. They could have redacted that. They may or may not have even known that it was significant, but believe me, it proved my case and it now says the government has blood on their hands. And my simple question, since the day I went public on Megyn Kelly on the 10th of December up until now, including 50 visits to Congress and my public testimony before Ted Cruz's Judiciary Committee on the 28th of June of this year, was a simple question. Why did they delete the records? Somebody please explain that. And nobody has yet. In fact, Jay Johnson, Secretary of Homeland Security, two days after I testified, was brought in and Ted Cruz asked him point blank, do you know about Filipini's claims? Do you know him? No, I don't know him. I wouldn't recognize him if he walked into the room. Well, have you taken the time to look into his claims? No, I told you I don't know him. No, I have not taken time to look into his claims. Remembering this is a Senate Oversight Committee that he's talking to. Then he said, well, would you be concerned if they were true? Um, no, not really. It's an interesting political discussion, but we're really talking about semantics and labels. This is not semantics and labels, friend. This is people's lives. And that incredible hubris, it was a command performance. An Academy Award-winning scriptwriter from Hollywood couldn't have written a better scenario than that dismissive little wave that Jay Johnson gave when he said, I don't know him. 
You should know him because what I'm saying is a national security issue. You either, your responsibility as Secretary of Homeland Security is one of two things. Discredit me publicly or investigate what I'm saying. Don't tell the Senate Oversight Committee. You haven't even taken time to look into it. Compounding that, he was lying because he does know me. He talked about me right here in Detroit in January of 2016 to a group of Muslim students and somebody actually asked him, what do you think about Mr. Haney's op-ed in The Hill about the deletion of the records? He said, I've read it. That was about it. He didn't say he'd done anything. These are the words, the second part of the title. This subject is like a buffet. It doesn't really matter how hungry you are. You can only eat so much at once. So I'm only going to look at a couple of these words. I'm going to look at jihad because we hear endless arguments about the meaning of jihad. That it's a, actually just an inner struggle to make us a better Muslim. Have you heard that before? From people like care? Well, let's read Quran 973. O Prophet, fight hard against the disbelievers and the hypocrites and be harsh upon them and their refuge is hell and wretched is their destination. Is there anything that's even remotely peaceful about that? Jihad occurs 40 times in the Quran. 40. The next word, which is slaughter, etl, as per down there, faqtuluhum, which is not a cuss word, but it sounds like one. And this verse has that same verb repeated six times in the same verb. Or verse. Every time you see kill, slaughter, or fight in Quran 2191, it's the same verb repeated six times. This is the most violent verse in the entire Quran, but it's the strategy and tactics of the global Islamic movement. Because as we're going to see in a minute, it has a companion, Quraj, which occurs 182 times in the Quran. It means to violently dispossess, push away. And these things are what I call operative verbs. Harash and Qatl. We'll toss in jihad too. If you know about chlorine and sodium in a flask, two elements, will they react together? Any chemistry people here? They will not react unless they have a catalyst. And the catalyst in this case is water. When you drop water into that flask with chlorine and sodium, it creates an exothermic reaction, an explosion. And it has a byproduct. It's called salt. Sodium chloride. Well, the catalyst for these verbs, fitna, garage, jihad, is fit, not fitna. Petal, garage, and jihad is fitna. Fitna is opposition. To stand in the way of the advancement of Islam. And you see where it says fitna is worse than killing, or fitna is worse than slaughter. The reason why you such, see such random, not random, wholesale, Widespread killing in the Middle East is because of that concept. It's very difficult. This is the hardest thing of this presentation to convey because it's so counterintuitive to the way we see the world. We rejoice when one person's life is saved because fitna is worse than slaughter means that if you stand in the way of the advancement of Islam, I will use those verbs to kill you and I don't commit a crime because you are opposing the advancement of Islam. Fitna, your opposition is greater than slaughter. Very unsavory. And then the very last verb, 
or thing we'll look at, terhibuna, means to terrify. It's from the Quran verse that I mentioned from the very beginning, down in the bottom of the Muslim Brotherhood icon. See the word up at the top there on the right is that same word, wayayuda, it means prepare. There's a lot of different translations, but it basically means prepare to fight against them with weapons of war and terrify them. The verb for terrify is terhibuna. In other words, terrorism is in the Quran, despite the fact that everybody tells you that people who do this stuff are hijacking the peaceful religion of Islam. It's not true, because remember what we started with? Words matter, right? So remember what I said, I said the people across the country are upset for three reasons. It's an upsetting topic. It is, isn't it? They're upset because no one told them before. If Islam is such a religion of peace, then how can we have them come to terms with this kind of language? And the third one is that we have to talk about it at all. Because after all, isn't that what the Department of Homeland Security was supposed to do? Is to keep this stuff from coming right up and intruding itself into our way of life. Every time we turn around these days, we, f we find it. There are 29,000 and counting terrorist attacks around the world since 9-11. That's one every four hours. Not to count the wars that are being fought in 15 or 20 different countries around the world. All for the same reason. The idealized concept of implementing Sharia law so that finally Islam will dominate the world and it will be a religion of peace. So with that, I believe that's the last actual slide. So what I'd like to do is just take questions. Is our government funding education schools that teach Sharia law on a world stage? Mm -hmm. We're helping support reconstruction in Islamic world, and that's all they do teach. They have it not only in the United States, in the other countries. Remember the case I talked about with the uh, Tablighi Jamaat? That whole network that the X-67 records were part of is a madrasa system operating right here in the United States, right under our noses. And that's why they deleted the records, because it contradicts the narrative. But then we have unfortunate consequences like San Bernardino that can't be erased or made to go away. Is Muslim, or is Jay Johnson part of the Muslim Brotherhood? That's like asking if Tom, the lawyer, and the godfather is part of the Mafia. Was he? Does it actually matter? Is Jay Johnson part of the Muslim Brotherhood? I said it's kind of like Tom, the lawyer, and the godfather, Robert Duvall. Was he a member of the family? No. But did it actually matter? He's helping them accomplish their strategic goal. How can we get the younger generation to open their eyes? Well, spend time with them. Start with that. We are only responsible for what we can do in our own arena. We're not called to change the world, quote unquote. We are called to deal with our own personal integrity first and foremost, and to be wise and discerning of the times we live in, and then influence the people around you, from your immediate family on out from there. And if we all did that, you would see a transformation. Did Sharia develop mostly during this? Oh no, Sharia is 1400 years old. Aren't you afraid for your life? Yeah. No. Why? Because I believe that uh, 
I'm standing for eternal truth and that the creator of the universe promised that he'd never leave or he'd forsake me and that if he gave me the grace to have integrity, then no weapon that's formed against me can prosper. But if I don't have integrity, if I don't have integrity, then nothing will protect me, no matter what. So no, I'm not afraid. I don't like driving my RV on narrow freeways, but I'm not afraid of this. There's a part of me that, I am a cop, you know, and there's part of me that uh, is Chuck Norris in this particular subject. It's Chuck Norris. What a part of the puzzle is Obama? He's a mystery. He's like Second Thessalonians, a mystery of iniquity. But they do have the same goal. As what I said earlier from the Declaration of Independence, to alter or abolish hope and change. Why the left supporting Islam? We talked about that already. They have the same common goal, to alter or abolish the government and replace it with something better. What is ISIL? Levant. That is what it... Levant is the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. ISIS, derived from the word al-shams, which means sunrise. How does the Orient deal with Islam? They haven't made a whole lot of progress, except in places like Singapore and Malaysia which is the largest Muslim population in the world. Philippines, they're intruding there. There's constant civil war in the, in the south of the Philippines. How is our American police force in local cities prepared for a terrorist attack? It's tactical, remember? We're not prepared as we should be because we don't understand the strategy of the global Islamic movement. We keep putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. And as long as we keep doing that, we're going to see the same thing happen over and over again. Well, how, how do they get prepared then? I mean, how, how do they get prepared? Right now, they're being opposed at every turn. Yep. Yeah. And they're, they're risking their careers to even discuss this. Because, by the way, according to Sharia law, I'm, I'm breaking the law right now and I'm committing a capital offense. Because according to Sharia, non-Muslims are not even supposed to talk about the Quran at all. It's blasphemy. But as far as law enforcement, what we need is a new administration who will actually allow them. Because I'll tell you what, if we have a new administration, groups like this are going to double and triple. You'll see this whole room full. Because in all honesty, I think you all know it, people are afraid to come to meetings like this and listen to somebody like me. If the administration becomes more favorable toward law enforcement, you're going to see rooms like this full capacity. And people like myself will be so busy, they will have to hire somebody to breathe for us. I'll forget to breathe because I will be so busy. So our work will just begin if the administration changes. Of course, I don't need to say what will happen if it doesn't. Do you know that the cons will be in Dearborn this week? No, I did not know that. Of course. What difference between Sunni and Shia? Shia means sect, or uh, what do we call it? Denomination. There was a bottle of car. There was a war, a fight called the Battle of Karbala in 680, where they met in Iraq, and they confronted each other, and it was all about authority and leadership. Who should lead the Islamic Ummah? The word we saw earlier. Well, should it be the descendants, the direct descendants of, of Muhammad through Ali and his sons Hassan and Hussein? 
or should it be anyone who's qualified that can represent the, the Islamic Ummah? Shia believe descendants of Ali. Sunni believe anybody that's qualified, like the, the Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan. And that was a conflict and the Sunnis won. They killed Ali and his son Hussein and Hussein in 680, the Battle of Karbala. And they've remained a minority ever since then. Yes, sir? Um, how long do you believe that this, well, not just only this administration, but the federal government has been influencing and purging both our national security agencies and our military? Well, from my direct involvement, it's 10 years. Because that's when I first confronted, was confronted, 10 years ago. And that's where it really metastasized about that time. Oh, I see, Imagine. Anyone else? Please. I just want to make a comment. A lot of the material you presented because of the things I already accessed was new to me. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that I'm angry about right now is that the San Bernardino and the Orlando incidents were preventable. And now those two incidents in particular are being used as fodder to interfere more with Second Amendment rights That's of right. the citizens to be armed. And it's just a, just a comment. Well, it's high-level malevolence. Yeah. There's two main reactions, anger and fear. Most of the time, men are angry and women are afraid. That's not an exclusive distinction. But keep in mind that the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And now we've come to a real critical point. Because if you allow yourself to be captured by the anger or the fear, you become paralyzed or ineffective. How on earth are you going to do that when that is a natural reaction? It's not wrong to be angry. Jesus himself was angry. Remember the story in Mark of the man with the withered hand? He was so furious, the word in Greek is steaming red. This wasn't polite anger, this was red face anger. But then he said, stretch out your hand, and he healed the man's arm. That's the Son of God and the Son of Man working at the same time. He felt the emotion that we felt, but at the same time the Holy Spirit flowed right through him. Now, you try that challenge. But I know about it because I had to survive this experience. If I had succumbed to either fear or anger, I would have been paralyzed or I would have shipwrecked myself along the way. I would have committed an infraction and it would have been over. So I had to seek constant discipline. Yes, please? I've been on the 700 Club, but it wasn't with Eric Stackelback. It was a a girl reporter. I forget her name. This you can query it. You can find it. I I'm like the old-fashioned girl. I wait for the guy to call me. I don't call them, and they will, and they have. Yes, sir. The infiltration into our government. I know it. I, it goes at least to George Bush, but how much farther back? It started with the oil stuff back in the 50s and 60s. The Muslim Brotherhood was kicked out of Egypt by 
um, who's the guy? Nasser. Yeah, and they scattered, and some of them came here, and they set up the first organization was called the Muslim Students Association. That's the one whom Abedin was part of, and her parents were part of the global, the World Islamic League. That's Saudi Arabian Daesh Muslim Brotherhood. So they're up to it, up to their eyeballs. Back in the 50s and 60s. 60s is really when uh, the Muslim Student Association really got going. It started in Indiana. Yeah, the Muslim Students Association started in Indiana, Plainfield. Is there but a question the, back but there, the government itself, oh. administration-wise, when do you think it, it took off? Well, it really metastasized in this administration. Right. I documented at least 150 meetings in the White House between groups like CARE, ISNA, and IMPACT, Muslim Public Affairs Council, just in the time of this administration's duration. It went way up. Yes? It's a quid pro quo arrangement. We won't bother you and you don't bother us. Good question. That's the whole point. See something, say nothing. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I'm not trying to say that it does. That's why I told you, remember from the start, that I put the letters in the back of the book? Because exactly that reaction happens over and over again. And it's like impossible to comprehend. I call it the John Gotti effect. The mafia guy. He looks very handsome and suave in his suit when he appears in court. You can't hardly believe that the guy's a cold-blooded murderer. And that's a deliberate kind of deception. And the other question is, what about Mike Rogers and well, Michelle Bachman's a friend of mine, and in my opinion, he discredited himself along with McCain and Boehner when they publicly criticized the five members of the House for writing those letters to the IGs just to inquire into the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood. They violated their constitutional office because they intruded into the process of a checks and balances form of government and commented publicly against their own colleagues and uh, aborted the process. Why not just let them send the letters in and let the departments, the IGs, make their ruling? Just like Comey. No reasonable judge would prosecute this case. Really? Why don't you just give it to him and find out? It wasn't his position to do that. I'm not sure about Grand Rapids. A lot of the cases I worked on when I was active duty were Han Tramick at Detroit. Very strong. Dearborn, too. I'm along her, her line of questioning, too. You know, I've met a lot of Muslims that want to be just left, left alone by the government. They just want to live their own lives. How do you physically see which one's pushing for trouble and which one wants to be just left alone? Hijab. Hijab. That's the first thing to cover. First indicator. First it's hijab. It always starts with the women. Because Sharia is particularly, emphatically focused on women. 
starts with the covering. That's when you can see it coming. When you see women covering, you know Sharia laws here. Because what they don't realize, perhaps, unconsciously with their advertising is that my husband can marry three other women. And what they don't realize that they're conveying is that he can divorce me at any time and I can say nothing. Nor do they probably realize that if they're advertising that if their husband were to die, they only receive one-sixth of his estate. And that very likely his family will come and take all of it. And they may actually force her to marry a male relative of his family. It just goes on and on. But the first indicator of his hijab. Yes, sir? Doesn't that kind of go along? It'd be awful hard to stop that since Mormonism basically is also polygamy. It's well, it's illegal. So that's what I asked earlier. Maybe they'll all move to Utah. Anybody else first? Did you have a question? I just want to make a comment that um, those of you that are interested in this, you mentioned a mosque uh, in San Bernardino and in Orlando. That same mosque network that Philip studied is in Warren. So Darul or Darulum means House of Knowledge. In Warren, Michigan, you might want to say a few words about that sect. We have the Muslim Brotherhood in Michigan. We have other networks in Michigan. I'll just. One of the default responses every time you do a home, I'll give you another homework assignment. Next time we, Lord, God forbid that we have another attack. But if we do, watch the news cycle. The first thing they will do is tell you that he's a lone wolf, that he's got some kind of mental problem, that nobody knew anything about it, and it absolutely has nothing to do with Islam. But then a day or two or three later, this is your homework assignment. Stay engaged with the story. Because two or three days later will come out inevitably that as a matter of fact he did know other people. And that as a matter of fact there were other people involved. And that he was a person that was well known at the mosque. And as a fact, matter of fact he was an observant Muslim. Just like Omar Mateen. Said Farouk was a Hafiz. Do you know what that is? The San Bernardino shooter? He memorized the Quran. That's not something that you get from the University of Phoenix. The reason why I married Tashreen Malik is because it was an arranged marriage. Organized by the Shura Council, the leadership of his mosque, and the father of the woman that he married, who was a Pakistani doing business in Saudi Arabia. It was an arranged marriage. And he was chosen because he was a pious young man. He had a lot of promise. He could have been an imam. The case that I worked on is in the book called Madrasa Boy is a first generation of American lawful permanent residents or citizens naturalized who have gone out of the country to study in a madrasa in South Africa that is pro-Sharia and pro-Jihad. We have what's called an IDSO, an intelligence-driven special operation on this mosque in South Africa. And I caught the first generation and interviewed them for four or five years straight and watched them grow from boys into men. That's the case they shut down. They just cut the whole thing. I captured the first generation. That's why it's so important. Anybody else first? You please. Uh, yes. Um, Phil, I know we're t talking about uh, Sharia law and, uh, and the courts, and there have been a number of cases that have come before our court system where um, the 
the courts have basically agreed with the, the people and being able to um, you know, practice Sharia law and have um, you know, that really start infiltrating our legal system. How do we get that across to people that these things are really happening um, in our world here in the U.S.? Legalized tar and feathering. <laughs> Article 6. This is what we need. See, we const constantly debate about First Amendment. It doesn't have anything to do with First Amendment. It's Article 6. This Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof and all treaties made which or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. Period. Period. That's it. It's not a religious freedom issue. It's a legal issue. Mm -hmm. But we don't have a corpus of law because it's never been challenged before. Our forefathers were geniuses. They foresaw it. When we take the oath against threat both foreign and domestic, they realized that it was possible that the threat would come from internal. But we didn't. We grew up as Americans thinking that our elected officials had our best interests in mind. And we have come to the point to believe that it's hard for us to believe, I should say, that it's not the case. Because we were taught different. And it's really difficult for us to accept it. It's psychologically quite difficult to accept it. Yes, sir? Uh, it's, I seem to recall that Sean Hannity had mentioned uh, connecting with Donald Trump. Is that going to happen? Well, he says... His term was, put me back to work, which I would be willing to do. I would go back to work as a civilian and uh, help my colleagues upgrade. But again, as I said earlier, I'm like the old-fashioned girl. I will not call them. They have to call me because I'm not going to go out and date me if I have to beg somebody to take me out. And if they're not ready for that yet, then maybe they will be. Maybe it's a matter of time. But if I try to push it, they might end up getting involved in a team that I don't really want to be part of. It has to be lined up. Washington, D.C. is a city of what I call porcupines and landmines. People get bent out of shape all the time and they poke each other or you step on something. So I will wait until they do call me. But I can tell you I know at least five people that are directly closely involved. One of them is Joe Smith, is in the book. He's the one that told me, Philip. We were standing outside the Ford building in Washington. People will kill you for what you know. Yeah. He wasn't talking about jihadis from Yemen. Yeah. He was talking about the people within a square mile of where we were standing. You think he was joking? Yeah. No. no. So I and Michelle Bachman and I are friends. Sean Hannity and I are friends. You know, I know two or three other people that are very close. And if it's going to happen, time will come. It's like apples on the tree. I just came from northern Michigan. They're getting ready to pick them, but they're not quite ripe yet. So being an old entomologist, I like to use agricultural. So if the time is right, when the fruit is, fruit is ready, then they'll call me and I'll go. I'll, I'll go back, but as a civilian, and teach my colleagues how to upgrade their skills. And we'll start at the big ports first. And that will send a written message out to the whole world that the Americans are serious again about counterterrorism. You wouldn't believe how fast it will change. It could change. Take the handcuffs off, 
Remove the blindfold and let us get back to our work. Amen. Yes, please. Tons. Yeah. Well, they usually have to go into hiding or change completely their lifestyle. It's a very serious crime. Remember what Saeed Farouk, not Saeed Farouk, Saeed Qutb said about Christianity? It was a schizophrenic obscenity. Yeah. But the Lord helps them too. They take it seriously. It's not casual. That's right. And they see it. Well, you should know, as I said already, the three major co points of conflict between Islam and Christianity. Jesus was not crucified. It's blasphemy to call him the Son of God and that Muhammad is the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. <coughs> Those points should be forefront in any discussion you have with people who are Muslim. And one of two things will happen. If you're really direct about biblical theology, one of two things will happen. You'll either have a conversion or a confrontation, right. one or the other. There's diversities of operations and differences of administration, but the same spirit that works all in all. Amen. You use the wisdom the Lord's given you. In the back, please. They're enabling it. Well, like I said, you know, there's a parable. Who first builds a house before they sit down and count the costs? As I mentioned earlier, when you get into these areas, you should be very certain the Lord is calling you into it because you do not want to tread into this battlefield without being prepared for it. If He's calling you to do it, then follow Him. It's heartbreaking to see it, but maybe you can seek out somebody that's already had a little bit of experience and find out from their perspective what it's really like. Because you're talking about obscenities at the most deeply intimate level of who we are as people, as cre created beings, destroying the very nature of our identity from the inside out. That's high-level principalities and powers, and severe spiritual wickedness in high places. Okay, one more then, please. That's what, the, that's what the Second Amendment's all about. And I hope that that day doesn't come and we have to really put it to the test. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people in the country who are prepared to stand up for their constitutional rights all over, you bet. 
that we saw last week, they were using military police. They wanted to, they're saying now hiring military police. I'm like, well, what's this all about? We're driving tanks down the road. I know most of my colleagues wouldn't be involved with it, meaning they wouldn't follow orders to fire on their own friends and family. Yeah, it's not what he really asked. Do you what know is he? about the U.S. dollar losing world currency status and, and 140 different countries are going to band together and re-evaluate their currency? Not really, not that much. I don't. I'm not very impressed with their ability to come together on anything else, but maybe they will. It wouldn't be a contradiction of biblical prophecy if they did. Okay, one last one in the corner. Well, they are. They're called mosques. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. All right, you're still here. That is great. Glad to see that. Glad to hear that. And here we go, because we're going to get right into this next one. This one is about 23 minutes long. This is from the IL Family Institute. That is the Illinois Family Institute, where um, Philip Haney spoke. That This is dated October 26, 2017. The title of the video is Philip Haney, See Something, Say Nothing. DHS whistleblower and counterterrorism expert, author of See Something, Say Nothing. Comments are turned off for some reason. That's pretty interesting. So the Illinois Family Institute is one who hosted this. That is IllinoisFamily.org. Check them out. And um, I believe they are actually mentioned in some of the crime scene photos. And, of course, later on we're going to discuss this case in more detail. But I thought it would be a great way to start with the man himself, Philip Haney. Listen to this guy. What do you think? Is it possible he could have killed himself? Of course, it's possible anybody could have killed himself. It's also possible that he didn't. We're just going to look at the evidence here, but it's a good idea for some of the background. Let's listen to, to the man who is being accused of this crime. As we know, if you are a Christian, this is something you do not do. In one of these speeches, he's even questioned about this. Um, the the Q&As are really good. I know in some of the videos, it's hard to hear those Q&As, but the Q&As are really good because that question does come up. Is he scared? He specifically says he's not scared. So there you go. Here we go. Philip Haney is a counterterrorism expert. The former officer with the Department of Homeland Security is the author of See Something, Say Nothing. The whistleblower tells us how the records of Muslims with terrorist ties were deleted by the Obama administration and how the government is submitting to jihad. How many here support missionaries overseas in some way or another? Have you ever had a missionary come and speak to you? You have, just now. You have people from Iran who lived it, and you have a person from Egypt. Both of them are now citizens of our country. They're coming to tell us what they saw firsthand. Now you know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of a missionary. An American who goes to a foreign country is received in exactly the same way as Annie and Usama. Are you going to receive what they say? 
The question I'm sure in all of our minds will be, well, what are we supposed to do about it? Right, is it? What is Sharia law? Actually, let me back up. What is the actual threat that we face? And let me back up even further from that. What are you all here independently and individually and sometimes in groups, what are you fighting against? Can someone tell me what you're fighting against? Okay. Anybody else? Just call out. What are you fighting against? Good. All good things. Now please tell me what are we fighting for? Liberty. Constitution. You're on my team, on the Intel team, right over there. That is what we're actually fighting for. Why? Because if you say you're fighting for liberty, whose liberty are you fighting for? If you say you're fighting for freedom, then whose freedom are you actually fighting for? Illinois version? Wisconsin version? Minnesota version? Iowa? Maybe. But it's not specific enough, is it? What is our country based on? What is our found, the foundation of our country? We hold these truths to be self-evident that God, the Creator, has endowed us with unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that the Creator instituted government among men, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, in order to preserve the liberties that He endowed us with. Which means by default, if we say we believe in the Creator, we are obligated by duty to be participants in the government that the Lord Himself instituted in order to protect the liberties that He gave us. I won't say the word stupid. However, what is it if you're too short-sighted and don't even have the wherewithal to recognize that you're a participant in the government that was created or instituted by the government, the Lord himself, in order to simply protect you from chaos and violence? Do you know what the primary duty of the federal government is according to the Constitution? to protect the states from outbreaks of civil violence. Did you know that? And or to protect the country from foreign evasion. Invasion, those are the two, actually foreign evasion too, now that I think about it, like the Iran deal. That's a good example of foreign evasion. The Constitution is there to protect the country from foreign invasion and the federal government's primary responsibility is protect each state from civil unrest. Are they doing it? So what is the threat? Is it terrorism? No, that's a tactic. What is the threat? The threat is this strategy of the global Islamic movement, which according to its own definition, Sharia law is superior to all man-made forms of law. I said all, underlined, italicized, and emphasized, including the U.S. Constitution. By its own definition, Sharia law is, is, will be, forever superior to all forms of man-made law, including the Constitution. That is the gravitational force that drives the entire global Islamic movement, not jihad. Jihad is a tactic. And as long as we don't recognize the distinction between the strategy, which is the goal of the global Islamic movement, and the tactics that we, they will use to implement it, we will lose. 
because we're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Right? If you fight tactics, anybody here shoot? What are you supposed to do with the target? You acquire it and you aim in, right? And you move with the target. What will happen if you shoot all rounds downrange while the target is moving? You're wasting your ammo, aren't you? That's tactical. But what if you know that this moving target's intention or go, uh, final position will be right over there by that door? This moving target, rather than shooting rounds downrange and missing, why not just go over to the door and wait for it to come? That's the difference between strategy and tactics. Our foreign policy has been based primarily on addressing tactics and not addressing the strategy. It is a fatal error. All the losses that we have suffered in the Middle East since the 9-11 are primarily because we don't understand the difference between strategy and tactics. And now we're about to go back over and do it again in Afghanistan. Whereas, did you know, for example, that there is Al-Qaeda number three now? The shattered remnants of the original Al-Qaeda, which, by the way, wasn't just Osama bin Laden. It was five sheikhs and 12 organizations coalesced into an organization that we know of commonly as Al-Qaeda. ISIS, that we hear about so much, was another step above that. ISIS at the current time has a coalition of 35 different organizations, and I don't know exactly how many sheikhs, qadis, and mahdis and leaders there are in the organizational structure of the global network we hear so often called ISIS. Now they formed a third coalition, and I'm gonna give you a homework assignment I want you to listen carefully on the news and see when the first time will be that you hear of this new organization, which is called AQIS, Al-Qaeda of the Indian Subcontinent. Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Myanmar. Have we been hearing about Myanmar lately? The Rohingyas? The poor, persecuted Rohingyas? You know that there are jihadis seeking to subvert the government of Burma. AQIS, Al-Qaeda of the Indian subcontinent, has now coalesced into a macro-global organization. And if you want to hear what their intentions are, I should say read, they've been very kind to produce it in English, well-written, called the Code of Conduct. AQIS, Code of Conduct. It is the most clearly written, precise, in English briefing on the strategy and tactics of the global Islamic movement that I have read in my entire professional career, which I've been doing since the middle of the 70s. When I used to work in the, in the Middle East as an entomologist, anybody, everybody know what an entomologist is? It's a nerd. <laughs> I, we patented, the, us entomologists patented the white lab coat, the clipboard and the pen holder. We own the patents on that. But then I see my cruise control personality is 50% Clark Kent and 30% Steve Martin because you know humor is still legal and we should use it while we can, right? But I have 20% Chuck Norris. 
if uh, I couldn't have been an armed federal law enforcement officer and wear a gun for a living if I didn't have at least some streak of Chuck Norris, could I? No. AQIS published, it's called DAWA, means promotion of Islam. They are required according to Sharia law to tell us exactly what they intend to do. It's a requirement. They published it in well-written English, a 20-page briefing called the Code of Conduct. And at the top of the list of strategic goals is to kill Americans and Israelis wherever they find them, just like what the verse that he wrote. Terrorize them wherever you find them. That tells you it's deliberate and intentional. It's not arbitrary or accidental. When you look for somebody until you find them, that is direct, deliberate and intentional action. Follow, is that correct? It's not accidental. Please go online, look it up, and read it. And if you have any questions, you can email uh, any of the three of us we're capable of addressing the Quranic and Hadith-based strategy and tactics in the AQIS Code of Conduct. There is no remaining facade, no more pretense, no more warm-ups, no more preliminaries, no more dress rehearsals. Al-Qaeda has now merged into a global macro organization. It's going to suck in jihadi Islamists from all over the world. And what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Now I'm going to connect my story. But before I do that, what is Sharia law, by the way? If you only know one thing about Sharia, the stuff about women is bad enough. But the one thing that if you don't know anything else about Sharia at all, you should realize that according to Sharia law, to leave Islam is a death sentence. There is no freedom of religion in Islam. If you are an apostate, you have a mark on the middle of your forehead, and they will kill you. The only places that you have the luxury of surviving not being a Salafi Muslim is in a liberal country like America, where you have the freedom of religion. But there's a dark shadow coming over our country, and it's called Sharia. That's the threat. The other side of the fret, of course, is the progressive movement that wants to shatter the constitutional republic that we're based on. And people ask me over and over, why are they doing it? And I can tell you, it's in the Declaration of Independence, that when a government becomes tyrannical, it is the right and the duty of the populace to alter or abolish the current form of government and replace it with one that is more suitable to their worldview. Alter or abolish is also known as hope and change. They are seeking to alter or abolish the current form of government and replace it with one. The progressive leftists have their own definition, whereas the Islamic have their own definition too, and that's why they're natural allies. But I will tell you now, the green will always eat the red because the reds don't know what they believe. They're willing to allow other people to die for what they say they believe, but they don't actually have a defined strategy and tactic, whereas Islam does, and that's why they will always devour the progressive left. They're much more dangerous because they know what they believe. So what is the threat? The implementation of Sharia law. So the bottom line is there are three arenas 
social, political, and law enforcement. Each one of you is going to be drawn to one of those three arenas. Social arena trigger point is immigration reform. Look at how much trouble we're having reforming our immigration policy. That is in the social arena, diversity and inclusion. We're going to make this country more diverse and inclusive, whether you like it or not. It's a social experiment. The second one is the political arena, and the flashpoint for that is going to be whether or not we have the sovereign right to establish an embassy in Jerusalem. Of all things, you say, how in the world would that be the indicator? Because the whole world is telling us that we do not have the sovereign right to establish an embassy in the city of Jerusalem with our best ally in the Middle East, and if we do it, we will be de they will declare war on us and attack us. And the third arena is law enforcement. And the flashpoint for that one is going to be the designation of the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. Whether we do it or whether we don't do it will be an indicator whether we have the wherewithal to recover our country or not. Promise you, write them down and keep them in mind. Think about what I said tonight. I was a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security. I was there from the very first literal day. I saw like new corn in the spring. Everybody here knows about new corn in the spring, don't you? And I saw it spring up from the ground and I saw it mature into what it is today. I was there, I saw all of it. And I got into an inordinate amount of trouble because I picked the two particular organizations that are posing the greatest threat to the national security of our country, the Muslim Brotherhood and a group called Tablighi Jamaat which means the party of the promoters. It comes out of the Indian subcontinent, the very place that I just told you about, AQIS. So even though the U.S. government shut the case down, I was right. And that's why I'm standing here today. I just got back from Israel, and I found out that the people in that part of the region see Americans as ignoring and overlooking the nature of the threat, the gravitational force that is emanating out of the Indian subcontinent, which now has coalesced into a macro Al-Qaeda organization. And here I was back 10 years ago warning the U.S. government of the threat of this group. And my case was shut down and I was investigated nine times. My gun was taken from me. My secret clearance was revoked. All access to the systems were removed. I was sequestered for the last 11 months with no assigned duties while I was under investigation from the Department of Justice who were seeking to find probable cause to indict me and put me in jail for the violation of the civil rights and civil liberties and or the privacy rights of foreign nationals. The second investigation was Internal Affairs, Custom and Border Protection and the third investigation was the, the Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security, all three at the same time. That's how I ended my career. I was able to retire, thanks to the Lord about that. And now I'm here standing before you. I saw it. I saw it from inside the federal government in the same way that Osama and, my, and Annie saw it from their world where they came from. We're all telling you the same thing. Am I making my point? So I'm going to leave with, or finish up with an allegory. Imagine this whole room here is a big swimming pool. And there are 192 sponges floating around in the swimming pool. 
I think that's the number of the countries in the world. Let's just say 200 sponges. Each one is a country floating around in the water. What, what is the natural thing that's going to happen when sponges float around in water? Water saturates into them, right? These sponges are all a little different. And the other thing that you should know when I ask you the final question, which is the final question, what can we do? You cannot take the sponges out of the water. Because why? Because the water is the world that we live in. So the sponges are floating around, bumping into each other, and water is soaking into them in various rates, some faster and some slower. Some sponges are already super saturated and are basically about to sink. If you don't happen to be satisfied with the rate of uh, saturation from the water coming from underneath, what are you going to do to speed up the process? You're going to push on the sponge from above. That's terrorism. That's a tactic. The other form of saturation was the water coming from above. That's the Muslim Brotherhood. Saturation from underneath up. Whereas Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hezbollah, Hamas are pushing the sponge from the top. That's why they won't condemn each other. Because they all know that the tactics are different, but the strategy is exactly the same. To saturate the sponge with Sharia. So here's the $64,000 question. I think with inflation, it's probably like, you know, $80,000 question now. How do you waterproof the sponge? Remembering that you can't take it out of the water. So how do you waterproof the sponge? More fundamental than that. You can actually waterproof the sponge without having a border wall. It is actually possible to protect the sovereignty with our country without a physical border. But it can't, isn't possible unless every from, everybody from baby to grandpa is involved in the process. Remember kindergarten cop? Stranger, stranger. If everybody's involved in the process, we don't actually need a, def, a, a physical wall as much as we need to go back to find the answer to the question that I ask you. What? Set what waterproofs the sponge. And now we're back where we started. What are you fighting for? The Constitution. It's the Constitution that waterproofs the sponge. At that point, it doesn't matter what tactic is used to try to saturate the sponge. If the sponge is waterproofed, the Constitution protects us and those endowed liberties that we received more powerfully than any kind of physical wall. And my second homework assignment as I, we will close is that whatever arena that you happen to work in, whether it's the, the um, civil, I mean the political arena, the social arena, the law enforcement, that whatever position you take going now, including all the organizations that are representative, you need to be able to cite literally chapter and verse from the Constitution when you go into the arena and challenge the status quo. You have to be able to point back to the Constitution and say, according to Article 6, the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land and the judges of each state are bound thereby, period.
which means Sharia law is illegal in the United States. Flat bottom line. What constitutes the waterproofing of the sponge is the U.S. Constitution. And of course, it goes without saying that the U.S. Constitution, and here's an irony, is saturated with biblical principles. And that will also help waterproof the sponge. So if you're on the faith side of the equation, you don't have to worry about violating your principles of faith because the Constitution is saturated with biblical principles. If you're not on the faith side of the of the equation, you can still be a valiant defender of the Constitution and help protect our country from threat, both foreign and domestic. How many have taken the vow, either, either in the law enforcement, military, or public office? Does any of you who have ever taken the vow here feel like your vow is retired, even though you might be? Nor do I, and that's why I'm standing here. I took the vow to help protect our country from threat, both foreign and domestic, and protect the Constitution, and write in the vow is the answer to the question. And if you've never taken the vow in law enforcement and or military and or political office, I don't want you to feel left out because you in your heart right now or tomorrow or the next day can take the vow to help protect our country from threat, both foreign and domestic, and get into the fight. Which, is it, which it is. Our forefathers had to make the same choices and they made them. And that's why we're here today. And our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren are going to ask, what did you do back in 2017 when we began to realize that there was an emerging threat? What did you, Papa? What did you, Grandpa and Grandma? And you need to be able to tell them, well, I did this and I did that and I did the other thing. And son or daughter or grandma or grandson or granddaughter, it was all based on the Constitution. And I want you, son or daughter or granddaughter, to carry on my tradition of the example that I set. We all need to be able to do that. And with that, even though I could go on for a month, because I have lots of things to tell you, I'm going to stop because I think it's time for questions. All right, just two more left to go. This next one is from the Christian Reporter News. This was posted on February 5th, 2018 by the Christian Reporter News. Let's look at the description, what we have here. Phil Haney, founding member of Homeland Security, retired in 2015, gives his insightful perspective to the FISA warrant information that was released on February 2nd, 2018. This is going to be good stuff. It's only about 11 minutes here, but he wraps it up very nicely. Check this out. I'm here this afternoon with Phil Haney. Phil, um, I would love to hear your perspective on what the news that has just broken in the last few days on the FISA. Will you kind of pick up the story with kind of your impression and your information on that particular topic? Sure, thank you. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that being a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security, we saw memos written in a similar style commonly. They were classified and we read them internally. But what was remarkable about this particular memo is that it was talking about people and personnel within our own law enforcement structure that were doing things that were either at least extra legal 
right on the edge of legality, or were, as we may well find out as time goes on, actually illegal. They were abrogating their constitutional authority and abusing it. And that's one of the most serious things that anybody with public trust in the law enforcement arena yeah. can do. And so, because of course, we take an oath to prevent or help protect our Constitution and prevent terrorist attacks and threat from foreign and domestic. But then the process, Nunez, I would like to give him a big thumbs up because of all the uh, opposition that he dealt with, simply doing what he was actually taking an oath to do. It's an oversight committee. And yet, didn't we all hear a constant artillery barrage of opposition and reasons and accusations that he was abusing his authority, etc. So then when the memo came out, the FBI often said that they had serious concerns about the memo. Yes. Well, they should have. But it's the interesting thing about the power of language. They're actually right. They should have had serious concerns about the memo, but in exactly the opposite yes. way that they meant it. And so my hope is that as we go forward, this uh, sunshine, bringing this light information out into the light, is going to be curative, just like when you have a sore, it'll help it heal. And if we are going to recover ourselves and find a wherewithal to bring our country back to a position based on constitutional principles, then it may be painful to do it, but we're mm -hmm. going to have to. And it's going to have to start, like in this case, from the inside and work its way out. So I'm very, very heartened. When the memo was released just yesterday, I haven't had a feeling quite like that in a long time, if ever. Because some of your listeners may know that they did the same thing to me. Yeah. They came after me using similar kinds of extra and or illegal procedures to go through my emails, to go through my phone calls, mm. to find any point, point of contact. If I had crossed over the line of mixing my personal email with my work-related emails just one time, wow. over an undefined year's length of service, time, yeah. I would have been fired. I could have even been up to and including put in jail because the very agencies, the FBI and the DOJ, Department of Justice are the ones that were investigating me. And they convened a grand jury to find probable cause to indict me on criminal charges. Imagine what it must have been like to have those forces coming against me but with no Twitter, no, <laughs> no media campaign, and no backup yes. from the administration. And that's why I said, you know, hallelujah, thank you President Trump for having the determination Let's let the process unfold as we are constitutionally allowed to do and bring it out into the light and let the consequences fall where they might. So I had great admire of his strength, meaning Nunez's, to stand up, to walk this thing through the whole process, to take all this various pieces of information and background and condense it down to a manageable four-page wow. memo and it's but the other thing about it is is I think we all un intuitively recognize it's only the beginning this is a mere 
uh, iceberg, the 10% that you can see, most of it is still underwater, so to speak. So do you believe that it'll begin unraveling and, and leading into other areas and departments? Yeah, that's what I call deja vu all over again. Once you start pulling this string, it's going to lead to Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, Department of Justice. Basically, all of the agencies charged with law enforcement are going to eventually be brought into this as long as President Trump in, give, permits them and gives them the authority to go ahead and, and uh, follow it. That's, he'll have to be the lead on it. If he can back up Congress, if he can back up people that are active duty in the FBI with the authorization to dig through this and or the Department of Justice with Secretary, uh, Attorney General Sessions, then yeah, I'm very hopeful. I haven't seen a sign that was just giving me this much hope in quite a long time. And I do know one thing as well, that if President if it was President Clinton, that none of this would have ever come to light. True. So that in itself, even if it's a little bit counterintuitive, it gives you great reason for hope, because otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it at all. So having been through this for more than 15 years now, I hope the time comes that not only these threads are followed, but some of those other connecting threads really even eventually back to my own case because we haven't had remedy for that yet. Mm. And why is it important? Is it about me? Is that why I'm concerned about it? No. I was just a witness to something that happened. Yeah. And I was able to document it and archive it and keep it. And I'm waiting for the day and I have the opportunity to bring those things to light. And why is that all important? Because if we don't find remedy, we're going to see the same things happen Repeat over itself. and over. Yeah. And that's the, the pledge, the oath that I took. That's why I'm still involved. So that's why yesterday was such a great day yeah. for me, because for the first time in a long time, we actually saw the constitutional checks and balances form of government work the way it's supposed to. Yeah. And so I have great hope going forward that we'll see more examples of that. That's wonderful. We need a little hope. Yeah. of a major turnaround in uh, house cleaning at the White House. We do, there. from the top down. Yeah. Or if you want to say from the inside out. Yes, yes. These, these abrogations of constitutional authority did start on the inside. And again, that's what I saw as a founding member. I saw it like watching a slow motion explosion mm. in super slow-mo as this First it blew the walls down of the structure within the federal government. Then it went out to the local and state level law enforcement. And then it went out into the general public. Hmm. You see? And so what we're seeing now is either a slow motion reversal or a glimpse into the destruction that was brought about by these directives and policies of the former administration. We're getting a glimpse into how destructive it actually was. And yeah, it might be horrifying, but there's more. And I hope that they do follow up and don't let the momentum die in the investigation, but take yeah. it wherever it leads. I believe, based on my reading of President Trump, that he's going to expect that and that we may see, well, more kind of uh, revelations in the days to come 
of these connections. And if we follow through, it'll set a precedent, won't it? Yes. That will have repercussions throughout our social political structure. That uh, if you uh, abrogate the Constitution and you abuse your authority, it might not be today or tomorrow or next week or next year, but at some point you will be confronted with the consequences. Yeah. And that's sorely needed. Definitely sorely needed. And if it starts from the top down and then the government of, for, and by the people begins to work from the grassroots level up, then you have this point of contact and the whole system begins to work the way it was originally designed. That might be rather refreshing. It certainly would be because people that care for our country, the biggest question they have, other than why did they do it, is what can we do about it? Yes. And so this gives an opportunity, a motivation, if you will, of hope that, hey, if I get involved and, and I really uh, become familiar with these subjects and these challenges at the local level, that there might actually be some hope that I'll accomplish something. And again, that's why I stood, stood steadfast all this time, because having seen it, I know that it's real. There's no way, there's no way anyone can disprove it or argue me out of the, my conviction or persuade me that it didn't happen, because like life and breath itself, I saw it. Yeah. And I, I know it's real. And again, that's why it was so refreshing yesterday. Finally, these people got a taste of their own medicine. And they don't like it, do they? No, I don't imagine they do. Mm -hmm. Well, we're looking forward to having you back in San Angelo, hopefully in April. Yeah. And uh, I have a feeling by then you'll have even more to share. about Lots of stories coming up, I think. I yes. think so, too. I think that timing will be perfect. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your time today. You're certainly welcome. Appreciate it. I hope you're still with us, because yes, we saved the best for last. Now this one is also from that same Ted Cruz hearing, but this is going to show a lot more of the data from the Ted Cruz hearing. This one is great on video. This video was on YouTube by Samuel Ezel Ezerzer, Samuel E-Z-E-R-Z-E-R. -E Great video that he put together. This is dated October 20, I'm sorry, October 24th, 2016. But I thought it would be great to save this for last year. So much data here. Uh, everyone who has experienced 2000, 2001, 911. Hey, what is truth? 911, all right. Everyone who has experienced that, you may get something out of this. Here's what Samuel writes. Homeland Security whistleblower, devastating testimony, deleted records, DHS whistleblower, Mr. Philip Haney. There's also going to be other people that testify here at the Ted Cruz hearing back in June of 2016. This is a great one. The audio is great, but the video is so much better. So please check out his channel, Samuel, last name E-Z-E-R-Z-E-R. -E -E here we go. Do that. Do you hear me? Yeah, stop all departures. Stop all. Yeah, went in the Pentagon. ISIL's ability to carry out terrorist attacks in Syria, Iraq, and abroad 
has not to date been significantly diminished, and the tempo of ISIL-linked terrorist activity is a reminder of the group's continued global reach. Uh, gentlemen, you have a very difficult task trying to defend our homeland, trying to keep Americans safe. But I, in, in, in reading this, I just want to make the point that it's been two years since President Obama laid out our goal, America's goal toward ISIL, which was defeated. Two years. It took us about four years to defeat Nazi Germany. And the like. This makes for a more complicated and challenging homeland security, public safety environment. I think I speak for all three of us when I say that the prospect of the next terrorist-inspired attack on our homeland is the thing that keeps us up at night most often. Engine 108, we have a report of a plane crash somewhere in the area of the Pentagon. We're trying to... An effective deterrence policy. Therefore, if a decision is prematurely made to separate NSA and Cyber Command, I will object to the confirmation of any individual nominated by the president to replace the director of the National Security Agency if that person is not also nominated to be the commander of Cyber Command. This committee and this chairman are tired of the way that Congress in general and this committee is treated by this administration. Okay. No more. That is a very important way in which we're transformed, and it's a testament to the quality of people doing this work. I'm proud to be able to represent them. And so I appreciate your support of the FBI in our work, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Director Comer. So this is Senate hearing. We're expecting it to start shortly. The Senate in session today. The House out until July 5th. Earlier today, the Senate in a 52 to 48 vote blocking a Zika funding bill. That's a near party line vote. 60 votes needed to move forward. President Obama heading to Canada tomorrow. He'll be meeting with leaders of Canada and Mexico. And there may or may not be coverage of a state dinner in Ottawa. If there is, we'll bring it to you. Good afternoon and welcome. On November 5th, 2009, at Fort Hood in Texas, an Army major named Nadal Hassan gunned down 14 innocent persons including an unborn child, while shouting Aluha Akbar. Prior to this terror attack, and apparently folks in the gallery find it amusing, a terrorist murdering 14 innocent souls. Prior to this terror attack, federal officials were aware that Hassan had attempted to contact al-Qaeda and exchanged numerous emails with the terrorist Anwar al-Awlaki. A self-professing soldier of Allah, Hassan had also worried many colleagues with his promotion of an extreme or radical interpretation of Islam. Yet, for fear of being branded as politically incorrect, 
or otherwise. They did nothing. Then after the fact, the Obama administration classified these terrorist killings as mere workplace violence. In January of 2010, the Department of Defense issued a report entitled Protecting the Force, The Lessons from Fort Hood. The report did not mention Hassan by name, nor did it use the terms Islam or Jihad. I would like nothing more than to speak with a government official about these bizarre decisions and omissions, and about the pattern that has characterized seven years of the Obama administration, especially in light of the most recent terror attack in Orlando by a radicalized man who'd been interviewed three times by the FBI, and yet whose terror attack was not prevented. Indeed, this subcommittee invited two such witnesses. John Carlin, an assistant attorney general for the Department of Justice's National Security Division, and Michael Steinbach, the executive assistant director for the FBI's National Security Branch. Both members of the Obama administration have refused to appear before this Senate hearing. Three months after Fort Hood in February 2010, the Quadrennial Homeland Security Review made zero references to Islam, radical or otherwise. Again, this subcommittee would have appreciated speaking with government officials about this deliberate omission. Again, they have refused to appear or testify. In 2011, the group Muslim Advocates sent a letter to the Obama administration claiming the federal government had somehow become infected with, quote, false and highly offensive training materials about Muslims and Islam and demanding that, quote, such bigoted and distorted materials be purged. And I would note that was their word, not mine. Purged. And as also advocating for the creation of interagency task force to address this problem. In a lightning quick response, a rather unusual occurrence in our bloated bureaucracy, Current CIA Director John Brennan, then the President's Homeland Security Advisor, agreed to create such a task force and claimed that the federal government had indeed produced, quote, offensive training that urgently needed to be dealt with in order to, quote, reflect the vision that the President has put forward. Yet again, this subcommittee would like to discuss this critical issue of national security with the relevant officials from the Obama administration. After all, should it really be the top concern of counterterrorism, whether their efforts, quote, offend anyone, rather than whether they work and keep Americans safe? Yet no one from this administration is even willing to show up and defend their scrubbing of anti-terror materials. Let's take several more. In November 2011, the Department of Homeland Security released its Domestic Terrorism and Homegrown ex Extremism Lexicon. It made no reference to Islamic terrorism, despite being, on its face, an alleged lexicon 
that included anarchist extremists, animal rights extremists, environmental extremists, and racist skinhead extremists. Yet somehow, radical Islamic extremists were no long, nowhere mentioned in the FBI's supposed lexicon. Similarly, the FBI's counterterrorism analytical lexicon makes no reference to Islam, radical Islam, jihad, or any other such term. By way of comparison, the 9-11 Commission report released in 2004 mentioned jihad 126 times and Islam 322 times. Even worse, in March 2012, under pressure from advocacy groups, the FBI purged 876 documents from its training materials at the behest of three unidentified quote-unquote experts. Some of the purged materials, according to the FBI, were, and here's that word again, quote, offensive. One article was purged because it was, quote, highly inflammatory and inaccurately argued that the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization. It should come as no surprise that I and many others are concerned by this, given that I've introduced a bill in this Senate to designate the Muslim Brotherhood for what it is, a terrorist organization. Hamas, after all, is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood and is a terrorist organization that openly celebrates murdering women and children. The Obama administration, of course, has declined to appear and explain its policies. In 2014, the president stated that ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, was, quote, not Islamic. Again, the Islamic State is somehow not Islamic. Because, according to President Obama, quote, no religion condones the killing of innocents. Somehow no one has told that to the terrorists. Also in 2014, a former White House counterterrorism strategist claimed that the federal government, quote, cannot directly address the warped religious interpretations of groups like ISIL because of the constitutional separation of church and state. U.S. officials, he argued, quote, are prohibited from engaging in debates about Islam. That's more than a little troubling. Are government officials, under the terms of this administration's policy, prohibited from debating anything about Islam, from confronting Islamism, the radical theology that mandates the forcible murder or forcible submission to Sharia of the infidels? This committee deserves to hear an explanation of that. Let's finish with some more recent examples. This year alone, the Obama administration has twice purged mentions of ISIS and Islamic terrorism from highly significant public records. 
one involving French President Hollande's remarks about the Paris terror attacks and the other involving the terrorist 9-11 call during the horrific Orlando attack. The administration was forced to abruptly reverse course when the public outcry became too great. Around the same time, the Homeland Security Advisory Council was admonishing DHS personnel in a report about countering violent extremism to reject, quote, religiously charged terminology such as jihad, sharia, takfir, and ummah. Does anyone notice a trend here? A consistent effort by this administration to scrub any reference to radical Islamic terrorism, to, prevent, to, to pretend that the threat does not exist, and tragically as a consequence of that, over and over again, we have instances where the administration has ample evidence of radical Islamic terrorists, whether it is the Boston bombers or Nadal Hassan, whether it is the terrorist in San Bernardino or the terrorist in Orlando. The administration has had over and over again ample evidence to step in and prevent these terror attacks. But the consequence of the willful blindness of a policy that is a matter of administration policy refuses to acknowledge the threat means over and over again this administration has allowed the threats to go forward. We cannot combat and defeat radical Islamic terrorism without acknowledging it exists and directing our resources to stopping it. And an Orwellian doublethink that seeks to exert any reference to it, as the administration did to the President of France, or erase pledges of allegiance to ISIS, as the administration did with the Orlando terrorist, is counterproductive to keeping this country safe. That should be the number one obligation of the Commander-in-Chief. It should be the focus of this administration and the purpose of this subcommittee hearing is to assess the degree to which the administration is willfully turning a blind eye to radical Islamic terrorism and the consequences for the safety and security of the American people. Senator Coons. Chairman Cruz, I appreciate this opportunity for the first hearing of this calendar year. In my view, today's hearing uh, presents the American people with a false choice. Its very premise suggests that we can either keep America safe or preserve our fundamental values, and I reject that premise. We can and must defeat terrorism without sacrificing our constitutional principles. And to compromise these principles and blame over a billion Muslims for the twisted actions of an extremist few only serves to divide Americans, to alienate the Muslim world, and to legitimate the murderous groups who falsely claim to speak for Islam. This makes us less safe. To truly tackle and destroy the extremist ideologies that lead fanatics to do us harm, we will be best defended by maintaining our values of openness, tolerance, and religious freedom. We cannot fight radicalization with further radicalization. As we hold today's hearing, the country is still trying to make sense of a tragic attack in Orlando 16 days ago 
a man entered the Pulse nightclub armed with dangerous weapons and massacred 49 innocent people, injuring 50 more, leaving our nation and world shaken. These acts of violence are sadly all too familiar and leave us asking why this Congress refuses to take simple actions to prevent them. With the invited uh, witnesses from the administration regarding their schedules, it is my expectation they are busy keeping our country safe and, as you surely appreciate from your work at the Justice Department, asking witnesses here to speak about the ongoing investigation into the Orlando incident uh, would not have produced any productive testimony. And I will note that the Homeland Security Secretary, Jay Johnson, will be before this exact committee in two days prepared to answer questions. Let me close uh, by quoting uh, what I've just submitted for the record, an article from General David Petraeus. Quote, those who flirt with hate speech against Muslims should realize they are playing directly into the hands of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Demonizing an entire religious faith and its adherents not only runs contrary to our most cherished and fundamental values as a country, it is also corrosive to our vital national security interests and ultimately to our success in this war. I look forward to what I hope can be a productive conversation about our national security, our civil liberties, and respect for Muslim Americans. Thank you. I thank my friend from Delaware for his comments. I would note that Senator Kuhn suggested that perhaps it was scheduling issues that prevented the government's witnesses from attending. This hearing was noticed two, two weeks ago. And indeed, just a few days ago, we received a letter from the Department of Justice that did not claim any scheduling conflicts, simply stated that the Department of Justice declined to attend. I would suggest that was not inadvertence. I would note as well that Senator Coons followed the lead of President Obama in invoking two shibboleths, neither one of which this hearing concerns. The first one, he said, is that we have no war with Islam. That is certainly correct. There are millions of peaceful Muslims across the face of the globe, and President Obama and Senate Democrats do grave disrespect to them when they suggest some sort of equivalence between peaceful Muslims and radical Islamic terrorists. To suggest that confronting radical Islamic terrorists is somehow hostile to peaceful Muslims bears no bearing on reality. I would note as well that Senator Coons, like President Obama, suggested this is just about uttering a few words, radical Islamic terrorism. No one has suggested the words radical Islamic terrorism are some magic incantation that saying them out loud will suddenly make it go away. But you cannot fight an enemy you do not acknowledge, that you pretend does not exist, and that you refuse to confront. It's not simply that President Obama, like Senate Democrats, won't say radical Islamic terrorism. It is that they have engaged in a, quote, purge to erase any focus on radical Islamic terrorism. Senator Coons mentioned a minute ago that we are, quote, still trying to make sense of the terror attack in Orlando. One is only still trying to make sense of it if one ignores the actions and words of the terrorist. A terrorist who pledged his allegiance to ISIS and whose pledge of allegiance was edited out of his 9-11 call by the Obama administration. 
an action that would make George Orwell proud. It only makes no sense if you do not listen to the promises to murder as many innocents as possible. And the purpose of this hearing is to focus on the connections between that policy of willful blindness, of insisting there is no such thing as radical Islamic terrorism, and the repeated failures of this administration to prevent terrorism. When the Orlando terrorist tells his co-workers that he's affiliated with Al-Qaeda, when the Orlando terrorist is interviewed three times by the FBI, when the Orlando terrorist has connections to an American suicide bomber, when the Orlando terrorist's father is publicly proclaiming on YouTube his support for the Taliban, the administration focused on fighting radical Islamic terrorism would have watched that individual very, very closely to prevent the terror attack that he was giving signal after signal after signal was a real risk. And Orlando is not the only instance. Over and over and over again, this administration has the warning signs, but because of political correctness doesn't act on them, and the result is innocent Americans are killed. Now, at this point, I would like to recognize Mr. Carlin and Mr. Steinbeck to provide their testimony, but they have refused to attend. So with that, I will invite the members of the second panel to please come forward. And each of you will be sworn in momentarily. And while you're coming forward, I will begin by introducing each of the members of the second panel. The first witness is Dr. M. Zudi Jasser, who is the founder and president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy in Phoenix, Arizona. A graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and the Medical College of Wisconsin, Dr. Jasser is a former commissioner of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, and he served as a medical officer in the United States Navy. Dr. Jasser is currently in private practice in Phoenix, specializing in internal medicine and nuclear cardiology. Ms. Farhan Akara is the president and executive director of Muslim Advocates in Oakland, California. A graduate of Wellesley College and Cornell Law School. She has previously served as counsel to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee and has worked as a litigation associate with several prominent Washington, D.C. law firms. Mr. Philip Haney is a former Customs and Border Protection Officer in the Department of Homeland Security. Officer Haney completed several tours at the National Targeting Center near Washington, D.C., and he has won numerous awards and commendations for producing material that led to the identification of hundreds of terrorists. Having retired in July 2015, Mr. Haney now resides in Marietta, Georgia. Mr. Richard Cohen is an attorney and the president of the Southern Poverty Law Center, a graduate of Columbia University and the University of Virginia School of Law. Mr. Cohen has previously testified before the House Committee on Homeland Security and has served on the Department of Homeland Security's Countering Violent Extremism Working Group. Mr. Chris Galbitz is a businessman, activist, and national security consultant based in Franklin County, Virginia. 
He has spent nearly a decade researching the threat to America posed by radical Islamic terrorism and developing expertise on the network of public and private organizations that terror groups rely on for support. Mr. Michael Gurman is a fellow with the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School. A graduate of Wake Forest University and Northwestern University Law School, Mr. Gurman previously worked as a special agent of the FBI. He has taught at the National Defense University, the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and spent several years with the American Civil Liberties Union's Washington Legislative Office. And Mr. Andrew McCarthy is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute and a contributing editor to National Review. A graduate of Columbia and the New York Law School, Mr. McCarthy served as a federal prosecutor for 18 years in the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. He was the lead prosecutor in the terrorism case against the so-called Blind Sheik and 11 others convicted in 1995 of conspiring to wage a war of urban terrorism against the United States. Mr. McCarthy is the author of several books on terrorism and national security. And I would ask that each of you stand and raise your right hand. Do you affirm that the testimony you are about to give before the committee will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? You may be seated. And you are each sworn in, and we will begin the testimony with Dr. Jasser. Please be sure to turn your microphone off by pressing the button. Thank you. officials are not willing to give up on America, that you will do everything in your power to uphold and defend America's defining values and principles. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Haney. Testing. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, thank you very much for the opportunity to testify here today. Also, I'd like to express my appreciation for the patience of the members on the committee and Senator Coons while obtaining a copy of my written testimony. I'd like to start with a visual aid. This is the Homeland Security Advisory Council Countering Violent Extremism Subcommittee Interim Report for 2016. My colleague referred to it earlier as a, a, a suggesting that we should refrain from using words like UMA or jihad, or sharia. I would like to also show you another visual aid, and this is what is called the Words Matter Memo that was published in January of 2008. And my story today is going to be what happened between these two documents, these two touchstone documents, 2008 and 2016, because it was during that period of time that what we know now as the countering violent extremism policy came to be. 
And one of the expressions of that policy is what we heard all about in the media in, in a few days after the Orlando shootings, that R Attorney General Lynch was going to release partial transcript of Orlando 911 calls with all references to Islamic terrorism removed. That is a con condensation of what was actually happening behind the scenes with subject matter experts like myself who were sworn officers to protect our country from threat, both foreign and domestic. Between these two dates, 2008 and 2016, came what I call the first great purge. When I was ordered by the Department of Homeland Security headquarters to modify a euphemism, removing all linking information out of approximately 820 text subject records in our law enforcement system that almost exclusively had to do with Muslim Brotherhood Network here in the United States. I was told to remove all unauthorized references to terrorism, that I was no longer allowed to do what are called memorandums of information received, what we call MOIRs, no more text records, no more research, and no more special treatment from the agency. But during that time, hundreds of law enforcement actions had been taken in the three-year period when those 820-plus records were still in the law enforcement system. At exactly the same time, a controversial inaugural meeting took place on January 27th and 28th, 2010, between American Muslim leaders and the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano, which was hosted by the Department of Homeland Security Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. It was controversial because several of the individuals attended the invitation-only conference in D.C. were known affiliates of at least two of the same Muslim Brotherhood front groups that had just been named as unindicted co-conspirators in the largest terrorism trial in the history of the United States, the Holy Land Foundation trial. Also that spring, at least six individuals with known affiliations to the Muslim Brotherhood front groups were appointed to the Countering Violent Extremism CVE Working Group, which was convened under the authority of the Homeland Security Advisory Council. I would like to show you now the logo of the Muslim Brotherhood the moderate organization that this administration chose to ally itself with. Across the middle it says Al-Aqwan al-Muslamin, which means the brothers of the Muslim or the Muslim Brotherhood. And at the bottom, taken from Quran 860, is the word Wayayuda, which means prepare yourselves to terrify your adversaries with steeds of war or weapons of war. That is the motto of the Muslim Brotherhood. By the spring of 2010, we had come to the point that a CBP officer was literally moving, linking information, meaning the dots, on Muslim Brotherhood-linked individuals from text while the administration was bringing the very same individuals into positions of influence to help create and implement our counterterrorism policy, both in the domestic arena and in the foreign policy arena, as evidenced in our overt support of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, Libya, Algeria, and Syria. Fast forward to August 30, 2011, when the Tablighi Jamaat court uh, case that I worked on was approved by the Chief Counsel of Department of Homeland Security. And this is an icon of the Tablighi Jamaat movement, one of the largest in the world outside of the United States. It's called the Army of Darkness. I began a TDY assignment, meaning temporary duty, at the National Targeting Center in November of 2011. Within six months, we had instituted 1,200 law enforcement actions on the case that we had started. But in September of 2012, what I call the second great purge, 
when the administration removed 67 linking records out of that case that had direct ties both to the San Bernardino Mosque, Darulum al-Islamiyah San Bernardino, and the Islamic Center of Fort Pierce down in Florida. In other words, the network that we had worked on at NTC is tied directly to the terrorist attacks that we've seen recently. At the end of my career, I was relieved of my service weapon. All access to text was cut off and suspended. My secret clearance was revoked, and I was sequestered for 11 months while the, re while the results of three simultaneous investigations from three different branches of the government were concluded. In July of 31 of last year, I retired honorably. In conclusion, the threat of Islamic terrorism does not just come from a network of armed organizations such as Hamas and ISIS who are operating over there somewhere in the Middle East. In fact, branches of the same global network have been established here in America, and they are operating in plain sight, especially among those of us who have been charged with the duty of protecting our country from threats both foreign and domestic. The goal, meaning the strategy of the global Islamic movement, is based on Quran 2, 191 through 193, and is actually quite simple, to establish Sharia law everywhere in the world, including here in America. And there is an organization in the United States that's actively doing that. It's called the Assembly of Muslim Jurists of America. Very benign-sounding name, but in Arabic is Majama Fukaha al-Sharia bi-Amrikiya the group of lawyers implementing Sharia law in the United States, which is unconstitutional. The threat that we face today that continues growing despite the willful blindness of those who insist on pretending otherwise are not the tactical methods of violent extremism, terrorism, or even operative verbs such as jihad, but rather the historical and universally recognized Islamic strategic goal of implementing Sharia law everywhere in the world so that no other form of government, including the United States Constitution, is able to oppose its influence over the lives of those who must either submit to its authority, become second-class demi-citizens, or perish. Thank you very much for uh, your attention. Thank you, Mr. Haney. Mr. Cohen. Thank you, Senator Cruz. It's good to see you again. Our country faces threats of violent extremism from many sources. The horrible massacre at the Orlando Gay Nightclub earlier this month by a gunman pledging allegiance to ISIS is but the latest example. A year ago this month, it was the massacre of black churchgoers at the Charleston's Mother Emanuel Church by a white supremacist. Two years ago this month, it was the murder of Las Vegas police officers by anti-government zealots who had been at Clive and Bundy's ranch. I would not take issue with the Obama administration's assessment that terrorism from those affiliated with or inspired by groups like ISIS represent the preeminent threat to our country. But I would point out that the threat of violent extremism from those blinded by racial hatred and rage at the government are serious ones as well. And while I would not go so far as to say that our government has been willfully blind to these latter threats, I would say that the record shows that both Republican and Democratic administrations, as well as the Congress, have not always given these latter threats the attention they deserve. The clearest example of this point comes from the history of the Domestic Terrorism Task Force that the Justice Department established after the Oklahoma City bombing. The task force was scheduled to have one of its regular monthly meetings on 9-11. But not only was that meeting canceled, the task force didn't meet again for 13 years, 
as the threat associated with groups like Al-Qaeda came to dominate the government's attention. During this period, the number of hate and conspiracy-minded anti-government groups skyrocketed, and the level of violence from the radical right increased by a factor of four. President Obama, of course, has been a particular lightning rod for the radical right. The day after he was elected, Stormfront, the world's leading neo-Nazi website, whose members have committed numerous murders, reported that it was getting six times its normal traffic. There are a lot of angry white people looking for answers, the site's publisher, a former Klansman, explained. When DHS released a report in 2009 assessing the likely backlash to the election of our first black president, the reaction from groups like the American Legion and members of Congress was so fierce that the report was withdrawn and the DHS unit that produced the report was allowed to wither. In 2014, the Justice Department finally revived its domestic terrorist task force after a white supremacist, Glenn Miller, killed three persons in Overland Park, Kansas, that he thought were Jewish. But still, there are indications that the threat of terrorism associated with groups like ISIS dominates the government's thinking. The Oklahoma City bombing was the first incident that, ter that the first terrorist incident that President Obama mentioned in his speech at the White House summit of countering violent extremism in 2015. But it was virtually the only mention of radical right terrorism during the entire summit. Two weeks after the Charleston massacre, the House Homeland Security Committee released a terror threat snapshot that didn't mention the Charleston killings. Congress has held multiple hearings, as it should, on the threat of terrorism associated with groups like Al-Qaeda. But as far as I know, neither the House nor the Senate has held hearings on terrorism directed at law enforcement officials in the West by gov government zealots such as the Bundys. In fact, Members of Congress, as well as state and local officials, have actually sympathized with the Bundys at times. Again, the threat of extremist violence from individuals associated with or inspired by groups like ISIS is deadly serious. But it's not the only threat that we face. Furthermore, as the recent study by Duke University's Triangle Center on Terrorism and Homeland Security concluded, Law enforcement's virtual singular focus on the threat of terrorism associated with groups like ISIS and its heavy-handed tactics risk fraying the bond of trust between law enforcement and Muslim communities that is so essential to effective law enforcement. President Bush said it best, we are not at war with Islam. Muslim communities are part of the solution, not part of the problem. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Cohen. Mr. Gobbets. Thank you, Senator Cruz. I'm a national security consultant with a company called Understanding the Threat, or UTT. UTT is the only organization in America which trains law enforcement, intelligence professionals, military and leaders on the threat from the global Islamic movement, the doctrine of jihadi groups, and how to identify, investigate, and dismantle them. At UTT, we hold the firm belief that in order to defeat the global Islamic movement, we must understand the enemy. U.S. military warfighting doctrine, specifically the Intelligence Pre Preparation of the Battlefield Manual, states that war planners must begin all analysis of the enemy with who the enemy says they are and why they are fighting us. 
that becomes the basis for determining the enemy threat doctrine, which in the case of jihadis is Sharia. Universally, the enemy, jihadis, whether it's al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Muslim Brotherhood, they all state that they are Muslims waging jihad in the cause of Allah to establish an Islamic state under Sharia. I'm going to discuss one jihadi group, the Muslim Brotherhood. Based on evidence entered into the largest terrorism financing in a mosque trial ever successfully prosecuted in U.S. history, and my own experience conducting undercover research with Hamas doing businesses care, the Council on American-Islamic Relations. The Holy Land Foundation trial was adjudicated in Dallas, Texas in 2008 and identified CARE as a member of the Muslim Brotherhood or the U.S. Muslim Brotherhood's Palestine Committee, which is Hamas, a designated foreign terrorist organization. The U.S. government identified Hamas as an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood. Documents entered into evidence in the Holy Land Foundation trial also revealed that ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, is a Muslim Brotherhood organization which financially supports Hamas, again, a designated terrorist organization. At the time it was indicted, the Holy Land Foundation was the largest Islamic charity in the United States and was convicted on 108 counts for funneling over $12 million to a foreign terrorist organization which Hamas, which is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood creed states, quote, Allah is our goal, the Prophet is our guide, the Quran is our constitution, jihad is our way, and death for the glory of Allah is our greatest inspiration or ambition. The Muslim Brotherhood bylaws state, the Islamic nation must be fully prepared to fight the tyrants and the enemies of Allah as a prelude to establishing the Islamic State. Again, the Muslim Brotherhood agenda is no different than that of Al-Qaeda or ISIS. The Muslim Brotherhood logo, as Mr. Haney showed, has two swords cradling a Quran with a reference to ayah or verse 860 of the Quran, which states, against them make ready your strength to the utmost of your power, including steeds of war, to strike terror into the hearts of the enemies of Allah and your enemies. This verse is also referenced in the Al-Qaeda training manual, which was discovered in May 2000 by British investigators conducting a search of Al-Qaeda operative in Asalibi. Now, during my time conducting undercover research as an intern for Hamas, both at CARE Maryland, Virginia, and Herndon, Virginia, and CARE National in Washington, D.C., I preserved documents that revealed Hamas doing business as CARE conspired to cover up fraud committed by one of their immigration attorneys, discussed coordinating with bin Laden and his associates, placed staffers and interns inside congressional offices, conspired to influence Congress, specifically judiciary, intelligence, and homeland security committees, impacted congressional districts, tasking each Hamas chapter office with influencing at least two legislators, and ordering books from the Saudi embassy on the virtue of jihad and martyrdom. Worked with a Muslim law enforcement officer to influence a major terrorism investigation by accessing a classified federal police database and tipping off the suspect. And the current administration and the U.S. national security apparatus continues to use leaders of Muslim Brotherhood groups like ISNA, the Muslim Public Affairs Council, CARE, and others to provide direct input into American foreign policy and domestic counterterrorism strategies. 
One of the results of this situation is to order the removal of terms like jihad and sharia from our counterterrorism lexicon. I attended a convention in Columbus, Ohio in 2008 organized by Muslim Brotherhood Group ISNA and both the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice Federal Bureau of Prisons had recruitment and outreach booths. Both Congressman Keith Ellison and Andre Carson spoke at the Muslim Brotherhood event and I witnessed Imam Siraj Wahaj, who is a vocal advocate for the implementation of Sharia and an unindicted co-conspirator in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, solicit donations for Hamas at CARES annual banquet. Siraj Wahaj was the first Imam to offer prayers in Congress. Often when understanding the threat offers training to federal, state, and local law enforcement, Muslim Brotherhood groups work to intimidate the hosts of the uh, training venues into canceling the training by threatening them with ties or with cries of Islamophobia and racism. Documents entered into the evidence in the Holy Land Foundation trial entitled An Explanatory Memorandum outlined the role of the Muslim Brotherhood in North America. Quote, the, the process of settlement is a civilization jihadist process, with all the word means. The Aquan must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands and the hands of the believers, so that it is eliminated and God's religion is made victorious over all other religions. According to our enemy, the global Islamic movement, made up of many groups, including Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Muslim Brotherhood, Tabliki Jamaat, Boko Haram, Hamas, Hezbollah, and many nation states, including Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and many others, they all seek to impose Sharia. It is the, the blueprint from which they create their warfighting strategies. From a U.S. warfighting pers perspective, that naturally makes Sharia the enemy threat doctrine and adherence to Sharia, direct threat to the Republic. Until American leaders and national security professionals identify the threat and formulate policies and strategies that address adherence to this ideology, we will continue on our current path of defeat and eventually lose this war here at home as we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Mr. German. Chairman Cruz, Ranking Member Coons, members of the subcommittee, thank you for inviting me to testify. Though it's clear our counterterrorism efforts are not as effective as they need to be to reduce political violence abroad and build public resiliency to terrorism at home, I respectfully disagree that the Obama administration's reluctance to use the term radical Islam is part of the problem. Policymakers and anti-Muslim advocacy organizations have ensured that radical Islam has remained a predominant part of the counterterrorism discourse since the 9-11 attacks. Congress has held more than a dozen hearings on the topic. Biased and factually flawed counterterrorism training materials produced by the FBI and the Departments of Justice, Defense, and Homeland Security vividly demonstrate these groups had substantial influence on the instruction these agencies provided over many years. The problem is not that there has been too little talk of radical Islam, but too much. I agree with President Obama that this rhetoric offends American values of equality, religious liberty, and free expression and undermines the national unity and international cooperation necessary to effectively counter terrorist violence at home and abroad. This is not political correctness, it is factual correctness. 
Radical Islam is no more accurate or appropriate a descriptor of the source of terrorist violence committed by Muslims than the label Radical Christianity would be to describe the violence perpetrated by the Ku Klux Klan, the Army of God, or the Lord's Resistance Army. Radical Islam is a term that lacks objective meaning and doesn't withstand scholarly scrutiny. It only serves to stoke public fear, xenophobia, and anti-Muslim bigotry. It's been used broadly and arbitrarily to include disparate groups like Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the Liberty City Seven. The fact that the first five are locked in armed conflict with one another and the last wasn't even a Muslim group doesn't seem to matter to those determined to see them as parts of a global conspiracy. More damaging, however, is when radical is used to smear Muslim civil rights groups, charities, and religious institutions in the same way the FBI did to labor organizers, civil rights, and peace activists during the Red Scares. As in the past, we err in thinking that we can improve our collective national security by undermining the security and liberty of some subset of fellow Americans. The skewed focus on terrorism committed by Muslims has clearly impacted law enforcement priorities, policies, and practices, which have disproportionately and indiscriminately targeted American Muslim communities with surveillance and infiltration, often to the exclusion of other violent threats. Half of the violent crimes, including a third of the roughly 15,000 homicides in the U.S. each year, go unsolved, even as the FBI investigates tens of thousands of false leads based on flawed radicalization theories. Meanwhile, if a 2011 triple homicide in Waltham, Massachusetts had been solved, Tamerlan Tsarnaev would not have been free to mastermind the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. In foreign policy, our inordinate focus on extremist ideology as the lens through which we evaluate many different civil wars blinds us to the true nature of these political conflicts and puts us on a path to perpetual war with predictable consequences to civil liberties, human rights, and the rule of law. Ideas cannot be killed and ideologies cannot be destroyed. Though we defeated Nazi Germany in World War II, my undercover work against neo-Nazis in the 1990s and the political assassination in Britain this month show fascism was not defeated. We respond appropriately to this threat by criminalizing the violent behavior, not by attempting to destroy an ideology. Today, Americans know little about ISIS except to be deathly afraid of it, which is exactly the way ISIS likes it. The flawed narrative that likens radical Islam to an ideological virus spreading unseen through vulnerable American Muslim communities is generating mutual distrust and animosity, leading to more strident calls for discriminatory policies and increasing anti-Muslim violence. This is self-defeating, as alienation and the experience of discrimination are often identified as the conditions that lead to greater radicalization. A counterterrorism discourse that pits Americans against one another and amplifies public fear will not improve our national security. We need to develop more effective strategies designed to build national unity and assuage public fear by providing objective information about the nature of this many nature and scope of the many threats we face, and the efficacy of the major measures we're taking to address them. Protecting American values and our commitment to the rule of law is what will ensure our lasting security. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Mr. McCarthy. Thank you, Chairman Cruz, members of the committee. Thank you for inviting me to testify today. As my 
Submitted testimony summarizes, I worked on terrorism investigations, trials, and changes in counterterrorism law in various capacities over the years. It taught me that there are very much two sides to this story. The first Muslims I met in our investigation after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing were not terrorists. Uh, they were Muslims who were seized with a patriotic fervor for the United States, without whom we could not have infiltrated terror cells and stopped a, a massive murder attack, uh, the plot on the New York City landmarks, which would have killed thousands of people. In my second career as a writer in 2008, I penned a, uh, an account of my experiences entitled Willful Blindness, a Memoir of the Jihad. The title is obviously a double entendre. My principal defendant, Omar Abdel Rahman, is a blind and willful exponent of Sharia supremacist ideology. Our government's response to the threat he represents has been and continues to be willfully blind to this ideology, the belief system that catalyzes the threat against us. To grasp this dangerous phenomenon, we need only consider the blind sheikh himself. After the World Trade Center bombing, our government represented to the American people, just as it does today, that the terrorist attack executed by Muslims in express reliance on Islamic scripture was a wanton act, unrepresentative of any mainstream of Islamic thought. But think about the blind sheikh. He was not merely blind, he was beset by several other medical handicaps. Terrorism is hard work. Yet here was a man who was the unquestioned leader of a terror cell who seemed utterly incapable of doing anything that would be helpful to a terrorist organization. He couldn't build a bomb, he couldn't hijack a plane, he couldn't carry out an assassination. All he could do was command murder. How could that be? The answer was straightforward, though it was plainly not one that we wanted to hear and still one that we do not want to hear. The Blind Sheikh is a doctor of Islamic jurisprudence graduated from Al-Azhar University in Cairo, the seat of Sunni Islamic learning for over a millennium. His area of expertise is Sharia, Islam's legal code and societal framework. The jihadists who listened to him did so because he is an internationally recognized authority in Islamic scripture, specifically of the political ideology drawn from that scripture that inspires attacks against the West. The centrality of ideology tells us why terrorists obeyed the blind sheikh. It tells us why terrorists act, something that we must grasp if we have any hope of defending ourselves and defeating them. Yet, instead of focusing on this ideology, we have wasted much of the last two decades on a fool's errand, attempting to define a true Islam in the futile hope of discrediting terrorists as purveyors of a false Islam. The stubborn fact is there may not be a true Islam. Islam has a rich and diverse history, and there are various interpretations of it, all vying for the mantle of true Islam and denying it to one another. Innumerable factions of Muslims have been debating one another, often violently, for 14 centuries. They have not settled the question, what is the true Islam? The United States is not going to settle it either. From the standpoint of American national security, it is irrelevant whether there is a true Islam. What matters is that there is a Sharia supremacist construction of Islam to which hundreds of millions of Muslims have adhered for centuries. They are su uh, supported by centuries of scholarship and scriptural literalism, 
and we are not going to convince them that they are wrong. Sharia supremacism, their interpretation of Islam, uh, is less a religion as we understand it as it is a political radicalism with a religious veneer. It is virulently anti-Western, misogynist, anti-Semitic, homophobic. It rejects basic tenets of Western liberalism, including the power of people to chart their own destiny and make laws in contravention of Sharia. It rejects individual liberty and equality. It brooks no separation between spiritual life and civil society. It endorses violent jihad to implement and spread Sharia. And it regards the United States, closely trailed by Israel and Europe, as the principal enemies to, of Islam who must be defeated. This is something we desperately need to understand and highlight, not obscure and avoid. There has been a reluctance to do this, and this is not a partisan issue. Government counterterrorism policy has been willfully blind for a quarter century to the ideological underpinnings of radical Islamic terrorism. The reluctance has been uh, rationalized on the wayward theory that because a person's religious beliefs and political speech are constitutionally shielded from prosecution, they are similarly shielded from mere inquiry and investigation, notwithstanding that we know these are often the precursors to violence. A sensible national security policy cannot regard evidence as if it were hate speech. There is nothing inherently wrong with, much less constitutionally offensive about, the concept that radical religious beliefs or political beliefs should trigger investigations. That is especially the case if those beliefs are conveyed by aggressive language or by association with other radicals or mosques known to endorse jihadism. Here is an important principle we must get right. It cannot be that evidence an investigator may use to prove guilt of terrorism offenses is somehow insulated from an investigator's suspicions about potential terrorism offenses. The goal of counterterrorism is supposed to be the prevention of jihadist attacks, not the hope that there may be a living terrorist or two still around to be indicted and tried only after Americans have been murdered. In 1996, I was awarded the Justice Department's highest honor for proving the nexus between jihadist commands in Islamic scripture, their exploitation by Sharia jurists like the blind sheikh, and the commission of jihadist atrocities by young Muslims that he inflamed. Today, to say aloud what the Clinton administration honored me for 20 years ago is to be ostracized as an Islamophobic bigot. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, that is no way to protect our country. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. McCarthy, and I'd like to thank each of the witnesses for your testimony today. I want to begin my questioning with Mr. Haney. And I would note, Mr. Haney, that I think your testimony before this subcommittee today is, is exceptionally important. And I would commend both members of the media and members of the American public to examine your testimony closely because you have described a systematic policy, uh, indeed, of scrubbing, sanitizing, erasing references to radical Islam. Uh, indeed, you described in your oral testimony that as the, quote, first great purge, where 876 documents were edited 
by the FBI to remove references to radical Islamic terrorism. And, and am I understanding your testimony cor correctly that the administration has been systematically scrubbing law enforcement and intelligence materials to remove references to radical Islam? Yes, it happened a year after the Holy Land Foundation trial when it was proven in federal court irrefutably that these networks were tied to financial support of Hamas. The 800 and plus records that I was ordered to modify, removing all the linking information out of the system called TECS, were virtually all linked directly to the Muslim Brotherhood network of individuals and organizations established right here in the United States. And, Mr. Haney, I want to draw your attention to the following chart that compares the 9-11 Commission report, which had 126 references to, to jihad, 145 references to the word Muslim, and 322 references to Islam. Now, if we fast forward to the FBI counterterrorism lexicon, we see the relevant numbers are zero, zero, and zero. Suddenly, jihad, Muslim, and Islam have disappeared. They have likewise disappeared from the National Intelligence Strategy in 2009, zero, zero, and zero. From the Strategic Implementation Plan to Prevent Violent Extremism, zero, one, one slipped in apparently, zero. And finally, the National Intelligence Strategy, 2014. Is this pattern of Orwellian editing of law enforcement and national security materials consistent with your experience and what you observed helping protect this nation? Yes, the first great purge I referred to was in 2009, but that wasn't the last one. There was another great purge in 2012 when they didn't just modify the records, they completely eliminated them out of the system, which com bypasses the security protocol for the Department of Homeland Security. And uh, it may not have mattered except for one tragic consequence. The masjid in San Bernardino and the one in Fort Pierce were directly related to the case of those 67 records that were deleted out of the system. Mr. Haney, would you elaborate on, on how potentially focusing on this threat might have helped prevent the San Bernardino terrorist attack or the Orlando terrorist attack? The networks are made up of individuals and organizations. In individuals don't exist without a network of organizations. You have to look at both of them. That's why there's no such thing as a lone wolf terrorist, because they don't function in a vacuum outside the, the, the uh, structure of the community, just like planets don't rotate around the sun without the gravitational force to hold them in place. So to look at these acts as separate from the community is a, is a flaw, because we're looking, first of all, at tactics, not strategy. The strategy is implementation of Sharia law. If we only look on tactics, they are kaleidoscopic, and they will change constantly, and we can never acquire a target. If we understand that the underlying strategy of the global Islamic movement, then we understand why these organizations exist in the first place. And then we understand why the people that go there are going to be affected by that gravitational force, if you will, and orbit their lives around that central structure. That's why the mosque in Fort Pierce is called Islamic Center, because it provides a center to their life. Uh, Ms. Kara, your organization asked John Brennan and the Obama administration 
to, quote, purge references such as this from law enforcement training materials, and, and at the request of your organization, the administration complied. Is it the position of your administration that the references to jihad and Muslim and Islam in the 9-11 Commission report were somehow offensive or bigoted? So our, my organization's position is that training materials as well as intelligence products that were produced by the FBI are not only offensive and inflammatory and alienating uh, Muslims and American Muslims, but more importantly, they make us less safe. Um, and, and the reason they make us less safe is that I think if what the tragedies, the recent tragedy, tragedies have shown us, including in Orlando, is that we need law enforcement more than ever focusing on finding the needles in the haystack. And by broadly painting an entire faith community um, with a, a, a broad brush of suspicion, we're actually dumping more hay onto the haystack and making law enforcement's job more difficult. Mr. If, Mr. If, if I may, if Mr. I could Mr. just Mr. give an Mr. example. With, with, with respect, I, I would like to ask you to just answer the specific question I asked, which is, is it your organization's position that the 126 references to jihad by the 9-11 Commission were somehow offensive or bigoted? The, let, let, let me, uh, I, I, I want to make it clear, uh, Mr. Chairman, that our concern is about not just terminology, but it's about what these materials are communicating. So it's not just about using the word jihad or Muslim, but it's, it's what it's communicating to agents and what it's communicating so to the general public. You, you don't think it was bigoted to use jihad? I just want to understand your organization's position, whether or not it is bigoted to use the word jihad. So this, this, is when I, this is when I think it's problematic. I think it's when we have public officials, whether it's members of Congress, members of the administration, who are going out and describing the problem as a problem of jihad or a problem of radical Islamic terrorism. That's a problem because it's actually playing in to the propaganda frame of ISIS, and it makes us less safe because ISIS wants this to be a war against Islam. And by using religiously loaded terminology like jihad, we're playing into their into their mindset. And it would be, I might add, it's, 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 it would, it's, it's, it's not only that, but it's also just grossly inaccurate. I think we need to call the threat what it is. It's ISIS. It's Al-Qaeda. And it's no different than the KKK or those who attack abortion clinics. We wouldn't go and say there's a problem with radical Christianity or radical Christian terrorism. We call the threat what it is. It's the KKK. It's those who are attacking women's health clinics. So, Ms. Kara, I, I will note that, I, that I've asked you now twice if you're if your organization has the view that the 9-11 Commission report was bigoted or offensive, and, and twice you have declined to answer that pretty straightforward question. So let, let me try it a different direction. Oh, well, maybe I didn't understand your question pro uh, properly, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the use of the term in general by the 9-11 Commission report I don't think is, is problematic in itself. I think it's in general as officials are talking about what the threat is. I think that's what Th that's what the threat, that's what my concern is. Well, so, well, if it wasn't a concern, then why would it be purged from 126 down to 0000? zero, zero, zero? I, I can't explain at, the, at the administration's... Of your organization. Uh, I, I can't, uh, I, I obviously cannot speak for the administration and these government agencies that did that um, and, and what their thinking was and, and developing those but documents. They did but so what in I response say, to a request from your organization in writing calling for a quote purge. We asked. Training materials. That's what we called for.
Well, let me try it a different direction. On March 16, 2015, the Long Island Press quoted Glenn Catan, who is the legal director for your organization, as saying, quote, like, what are you going to do about radicalization in the Muslim community? That's nonsense. There is no such thing. I'm curious, do you agree with the legal director of your organization that there is no such thing as radicalization in the Muslim community? This is what we do believe, Mr. Chairman. What we believe, and this is based on attacks we've seen in our country in just the last year alone, whether it's the Orlando shooting, the attack on a women's health clinic, the attack at the AME church in Charleston, South Carolina, we know that extremist violence takes many forms and people motivated regardless of their race, religion, or ideology. And what we also know is that there's no, uh, there's no pathway, so to speak, to, to get to that point of engaging in violence. What the national security and law enforcement experts say is that there's, it's, the common thread that you see is vulnerable individuals who are seeking a sense of purpose. And um, so we, we totally disabuse and, and do not believe in this canard that there's somehow a pathway to radicalization. Uh, and that's what numerous studies have shown as well. So I want to give you just one more opportunity to answer the question directly, because I don't believe you did. Do you agree with your legal director who said, quote, there is no such thing as radicalization in the Muslim community? There are violent individuals in all communities, including the Muslim community, but there is... There, is it connected to any ideology? It's, there are some people who, uh, where there is ideology that's apart, but ideology is not the center or even part of the center of the causation um, for what causes people to engage in violence. And it's not just me that's saying that. It's experts like my colleague, Mr. German, and law enforcement and national security experts who say that. So I'm just going to give you one more opportunity to, to say whether yes or no you agree with the legal director that there's there, no such thing as radicalization in the Muslim community. Uh, as, I'll, as, I'll note for the direct record, Senator Durbin apparently doesn't want you to answer that question. <laughs> I would like you to show the courtesy of this witness instead of badgering her. Thank you, Mr. Senator. Chairman. You've been very courteous. <laughs> well, yeah. I'd like an administration that shows the courtesy to the victims of radical Islamic terrorism and doesn't edit a 9-11 call from a terrorist who's murdering 49 people in Orlando and pretending the threat doesn't exist. Mr. Chairman, I would like to say that I think you've been very respectful to this witness. The witness has not... The witness has not answered your question, and I think you had a right to pursue it. And you did it in a gentlemanly, professional way, and I'm disappointed that Senator Durbin would not understand that. Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, because uh, I do think it is important for us to allow a broader conversation uh, than that one question. Let me uh, go back to the opening uh, testimony, if I might, to Dr. Jasser and to Ms. Kara. Um, Dr. Jasser, you, you took issue, and many witnesses today took issue with President Obama's alleged refusal to use the very term radical Islam. One of the questions we have is what we're going to do to keep our country safer going forward. The presumptive Democratic nominee, former Secretary Clinton, has used the term radical Islamism. Is this entire hearing dedicated to the difference of those three letters? And in my view, um, it is worth considering whether proposals made by candidates for president, including the chairman 
and Donald Trump to conduct patrols of so-called Muslim neighborhoods, to require a national list of Muslim Americans, to bar Muslims from coming to this country, or to conduct surveillance of First Amendment protected religious activities. I have to ask a question for both of you, if I might, at the outset. Would those proposals make us safer? We've had a lot of testimony here today from this panel about whether or not there is willful blindness, whether or not there is actions taken by dedicated professional law enforcement officials as a result of alleged political correctness by this administration. I think a pressing question for this panel and for the members of this committee as we look forward to the next administration is whether we will address this whole problem by simply having a nominee who speaks of radical Islamism or whether we will address this problem by inflaming uh, the entire Muslim world against us by proposing things that are unsound as a matter of law enforcement practice and unsound as a matter of our own constitution. Ms. Kara, Dr. Jasser, I'd be interested in your response. Yeah. Uh, Senator Coons, if I may, I, I absolutely agree with you that I think just talking about the terminology is not going to just swipe the problem away. And I think the issue is, is that we need to actually focus on uh, the actual activity of violence, what's causing the violence, and, and ensuring that law enforcement has the resources they need to actually focus on finding the, those needles in the haystack, so to speak. And, um, and I think you know, having this, this dispute about the terminology is not helping law enforcement do its job. Uh, we, need, we need to focus on the real threat. And, uh, and I might add that what I said earlier, that the, the use of this kind of terminology is also potentially counterproductive because it actually feeds in to the narrative and the frame that our enemies want. ISIS wants this to be a war against Islam, a war against Muslims. And um, to be frank with you, as I was sitting and listening to, to some of the comments um, from my colleagues on this panel earlier, I was just really disturbed because I thought, gosh, if ISIS is watching this hearing now, half of these panelists have just given them so much ammunition to go out and create recruiting videos to say, look, th this is what the U.S. Senate is doing. They're actually giving um, a, a mouthpiece to this kind of, frankly, garbage. Thank you, Ms. Kira. Dr. Jasser? Uh, Senator Coons, I... I wholly reject the moral equivalency that somehow having this conversation is going to unleash hatred and bigotry against Muslims. It actually tells the most democratic country in the world that we can't... Didn't Ms. Kara earlier testify to a significant rise in hate crimes against Muslims within the last few years? The cause and effect relationship, first of all, I, I would reject. Second of all, I would believe, and I believe, as many Muslim reformers will tell you, that denial actually fuels bigotry. Denial of the problem and the diagnosis creates a treatment that is, is a short-term whack-a-mole program mm. rather than treating the disease and the cancer at its core, which is theocracy. And it actually polarizes our community in this country into two sides. One that says there is no problem, almost like the alcoholic that doesn't want to deal with it. And the other says that every Muslim is a possible terrorist. And actually, this conversation and the reason the CVE terminology is adopted by the Saudis and the Turks and the Iranians is because they love it. They love the fact that they want this U.S. Senate not to talk about political Islam because they can continue to say that they are our allies, all the while 
The death cult that you say is just a cult is exactly what the Saudi regime does in their country. Beheadings and Sharia through Wahhabism and Khomeinism through Iran. They say they're with us on countering violent extremism because they don't want us to unravel, to peel the onion of theocratic Islam, which is the terminology we have to do to treat the real disease. So it's not just terminology. Adding the ISM, Islamism, changing CVE to CVI would allow us... To, to engage Muslim reformers. Ms. Kara and others don't want reformers to have this debate in public. They want us to continue to let our Muslim community be dominated by Islamist apologists from Saudi, Iran, who say, oh, close your eyes. It's not, America can't deal with this because they're a bunch of bigots who really can't separate between theocrats and free-thinking Muslims. So therefore, let the Islamic the theocrats of the planet dominate who is Islam. Thank you, Dr. Jesser. Senator, Ms. Kerr, if you'd respond, is that the case that you don't think we can have a robust debate? Yeah, th thank you, Senator. And let me just say, I think where, where my colleague, Mr. Uh, Jasser, is going, I think he's trying to have a theological debate, and, and there may very well need to be a theological debate, whether in the United States or in, in other Muslim countries. What I'm focused on is, is how we can keep our country safe. How can law enforcement do its job? And I've been in this work for 15 years. And I've spoken to senior law enforcement officials in the FBI and the Justice Department, in the Bush administration, in the present administration. I never once have heard a senior law enforcement official say that the problem is Islam, that the problem is um, radical Islam. That's just not an accurate description of the threat, and we frankly make our country less safe if we continue to not focus on the true threat. And the Saudis Thank are happy. Mr. German, if, if I might turn to you. Uh, you served as an FBI officer for 15 years, is that correct? 16. 16. And you conducted numerous investigations, both undercover and uh, direct investigations of radical and extremist groups, both white supremacists and anti-government, but also um, those who draw some connection to or inspiration from perverted versions of Islam. Would that be roughly accurate? Uh, roughly. Okay. Um, and your suggestion uh, in your testimony was that removing from training materials um, suggestions that are um, unfounded in fact and that are misleading and that are bigoted actually will make law enforcement more effective, more focused. Um, talk further about that, if you would. Sure. Uh, a lot of the materials that were uncovered uh, through an ACLU FOIA uh, and later uh, work by investigative journals, uh, Spencer Ackerman and others, uh, showed that this material was not just openly biased against Arabs and Muslims, and actually other groups, too. There were Chinese uh, uh, cultural awareness trainings and, and, and many others, and they had a lot of factual flaws. And as an investigator trained to do investigations, we want to focus on facts and focus on what it is we're trying to accomplish. And we're trying to accomplish a reduction in violence. When I was working undercover in neo-Nazi groups, there were a lot of people who said a lot of things that I didn't like. And what I had to do, working within the guidelines I had at the time, was objectively evaluate where there was a reasonable indication of criminal activity. And by focusing on the, on the handfuls of people that were actually engaging in criminal activity, I could ignore the vast numbers that were expressing themselves in ways I considered hateful and abhorrent, but weren't illegal. And I believe that our society is robust enough that we can live with those sorts of expressions uh, because they fail by, by their own lack of merit. And what we need to do is make sure our law enforcement officials and our counterterrorism officials are focused on the facts on the ground 
rather than theories that don't uh, survive scholarly scrutiny. So let me make sure I hear you right. Does, does the removal of factually based, facially biased and factually flawed counterterrorism training materials make us less safe? Does it weaken the ability of law enforcement to identify and intercept potentially violent folks who might engage in acts of terrorism? No, it makes our law enforcement more effective. And one of the comments that I made in my opening that the chairman took some um, difference with was I suggested that uh, Omar Mateen and his actions will be the subject of ongoing scrutiny. Uh, what I meant, if I could clarify, was that there are and will continue to be debates in this Senate about whether we should take actions to close the terror watch list loophole that some would argue, I would argue, made it possible for him to acquire powerful weapons. Uh, others might argue, as I do, that we should more adequately fund uh, federal, state, and local law enforcement in order to ensure we've got more boots on the ground, more folks capable of the law enforcement work that you did. Others, and that's, I think, largely the point of this hearing, would suggest that the right response would be to focus on whether there are a few words in a few important guidebooks and whether or not we correctly understand Islamism versus Islam. Um, do you think closing the terror loophole or do you think taking stronger actions to support local law enforcement um, are important to a successful strategy to keep Americans safe? Um, I, I'm afraid that the terrorist watch lists have been fraught with problems from the very beginning and particularly the lack of due process makes it impossible for the public uh, to judge whether these are effective methodologies. Clearly we've seen cases uh, where People like Tamerlan Tsarnaev were on the watch list, but because the watch list is so bloated, it creates so many false alarms that that dulls the response. So, in fact, nobody responded to those alarms when the system worked as it was effective. So uh, I, I would hope that we could see uh, clarity and, and due process brought to the watch list to make it better. As far as certainly providing more resources to law enforcement is always something that's welcome, but if the... The model that the FBI using now, is, now, is using now, which includes mass surveillance and then trying to whittle down who may or may not present a threat, combined with see something, say something tip lines that flood them with information, what the Webster Commission called the data explosion within the FBI, is actually making it very difficult for them to focus on real threats. And what we need to do is go back to the standards that I worked under, which required an objective, reasonable indication very low standard, but you're working with a reasonable indication based on actual evidence of illegal activity rather than flawed theories and mass suspicion that's difficult to clear. In other words, classic law enforcement work that relies on indication of acts, substantive acts, uh, exactly. further um, assaults on innocent civilians, rather than loose theories about what Islam is or isn't in the modern world. Exactly. And if you look at the tens of thousands of investigations that do, the FBI is doing with these broad authorities, very few of them even find enough information to justify the next level of investigation, which only requires an allegation. And an inspector general report from 2010 suggested that the FBI was actually, the FBI agents were actually making their own allegations. So it's not a very high standard to meet that second level, but it was a tiny percentage, I think just over 4%, that even made it to that level. So we're spinning our wheels a lot, creating a lot of false alarms that make it easier. Put out alternative voices and, uh, you know, not have a uh, narrative that we are opposed to them or that we are attacking their religion. Uh, you know, there was this big study done by the people at Duke 
and they surveyed almost 400 law enforcement officials and, and talked to over 200 community members in a variety of uh, focus groups. And the sense was that there was sort of an oppressive atmosphere from law enforcement toward these communities. And that, I think, is pernicious and counterproductive. So I think we have to maybe restart and rethink some of these programs uh, and, of course, provide alternative narratives for the young people. If I could add one more thing, if I could. You know, a lot of the rhetoric in the presidential campaign uh, has been, I think, pernicious for young people. You know, we did a nationwide survey of teachers to ask, what has happened in your classroom as a result of this? And there are a lot of kids who are feeling bullied, a lot of kids who are feeling scared, especially young people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I heard the same thing. Yeah, and, uh, and, and that's a dangerous thing, too. And so I think it's really quite important that all of us, especially people in your position, positions of other persons on this committee, speak out against that. Right, and that's something that President Bush actually focused on after 9-11. It made um, a big difference. Yes. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Sessions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, well, Mr. Cohen, you know, I remember during the Civil Rights days, and your organization was uh, standing firm for equality, and Morris Dees sued the Klan and forfeited their entire headquarters and went after them aggressively and condemn their radical ideas. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, Mr. Jasher. Aren't you saying that it's all right if someone advocates a position that's extreme or, or violent or incompatible with the Republican doctrines of America, the, the constitutional order, that they should be challenged on those beliefs? Isn't that the honest way we debate issues in this country? I believe there is nothing that would melt away Muslim bigotry more than for America to see Muslims step to the plate and counter theocracy. Once they see that we are the most essential head of the spear in this battle, and they see our Muslim reform movement that has a declaration of 15 principles that we signed where we condemn all concepts of the Islamic State, we condemn violent jihad, we condemn the Sharia State, we condemn the Caliphate. We sent this to every mosque and Muslim organization in America and have gotten crickets back. Why? Because the media, academia, and government are complicitly giving Muslims a pass in weighing in about whether they side with American constitutionalism. And I hear references to President Bush's administration and what he said post-2011. It's completely different. The Arab awakening has unleashed the need to counter the regimes that have fixed the narrative in the West. So to compare what we did pre-2011 to what we're doing post-Arab awakening, I think it just, is just folly and ignorance. Mr. Jasser, I remember during the civil rights days, um, national TV networks, maybe they were atheists, maybe they were Jewish or Catholic or whatever, going into churches in the South, sticking a camera in the face of a preacher and asking them, can an African-American, can a black person worship in your church, yes or no? This was a difficult question, and it was pretty tough, uh, but I thought, in retrospect, um, that kind of challenge uh, caused people to realize the position was untenable and it could not be defended in public debate. And it went away, essentially. Uh, is that the kind of 
challenge you think that ought to be made to extremist groups uh, that within the uh, Islamic um, rubric? Absolutely. We need to challenge Muslims to realize that violent homophobia comes from nonviolent homophobia. Violent misogyny evolves from nonviolent misogyny. So when the president goes to a mosque, he went to the Islamic Society of Baltimore. Here's a mosque that had gender apartheid as a policy within its mosque. It had a sermon which was a screed against homosexuals a year prior that our Muslim reform movement publicized and said, look at why is he going to this mosque? And it appeared to be a bigotry of low expectations that somehow we don't hold Muslims accountable to the same values we do everybody else in the West and in this country. But no, on the National Prayer Breakfast, we'll get lectures to Christians, to Jews, and others. But when it comes to Muslims, the mosque he chooses as a backdrop is in the 13th century when it comes to women's rights, gay rights, and other rights. So the issue is, treat us with tough love, hold us accountable, and the bigotry that exists in America will melt away because they'll see us as essential in this battle. Islamic world and the Muslim religion is a great religion. Millions of people, millions of people follow its doctrines and don't believe in these things. Um, villages and cities throughout the world, uh, this occurs. And I don't see there's anything wrong with challenging uh, that uh, doctrine that some adhere to. Uh, uh, Mr. McCarthy, they say, well, this is not Islam. But the people who practice this ideological, violent, terroristic idea believe they're practicing Islam, do they not? They certainly do, and they have <clears throat> a lot of basis for doing so. As I, as I... With regard to Ms. Kara, uh, I think there's some theological issues here. If you believe your religion calls for certain things, you may not believe that, but some do. And this causes part of the problem, does it not, Mr. McCarthy? Yeah, I, I think the biggest problem you have is the imputation of um, bigotry and bias to fact. I mean, when I was a prosecutor doing these cases, it was simply a fact that there are commands to violence in the scripture, that they are mediated and exploited by people like the blind sheikh, and they inspire young Muslims to commit violence. Now, the way he interpreted those verses is certainly not the only way to interpret them. And a lot of the heroic work I think that Dr. Jasser does is precisely to try to either correct what may be translation errors or to contextualize these, these very bellicose, disturbing verses. But are we really going to put our head in the sand about whether they're there? I, that, that's what we're dealing with, colleagues. Um, I wish it were not so that there are people that can find um, verses within the Quran or the Haditha that justify violence, and we can say it's not religious if we want to, but they think it is. Mr. Um, Haney, um, did you, I understood you say that... Uh, that uh, Sharia law, is it a part of the Quran itself? Is a call to Sharia law a part of the Quran? I didn't know that it was. It's called the Deen. Speak up. The button. It's called the Deen. There are several names for it in Arabic. Deen means law and or belief or religion. Sharia is derived from a combination of the Quran itself 
the hadith, the sayings and actions of Muhammad and the rightly guided caliphs, and also what you might call tradition, all combined together into one what's called ishtama, one consensus. So it's partially Quranic, partially hadith. It is the gravitational force that brings order to the universe of Islam, and it's a very important concept. Sharia is the driving force of the global Islamic community and simultaneously of the global Islamic movement. What we see are expressions, are tactics, ways to implement, or I should say ways to achieve the goal of implementing Sharia law, tactical ways, all the way in a spectrum from what is called dawah, promotion or invitation to join Islam, up to what we call jihad, and other operative verbs like haraj and qetl, which means slaughter or push away. Those verbs are more frequent in the Quran than jihad. So if we are going to have an honest discussion about the strategy and tactics of the global Islamic movement, like several have said here, then what we really need to do is address honestly and with courage the actual verbs and meanings of the words that we have been constantly told to ignore or purge away and what they actually mean and how they drive the individuals that we've seen like Syed Farouk and Tashween Malik and Nidal Hassan and Omar Mateen and other people like that, the Sarnaya brothers. Well, Mr. McCarthy, you very accomplished prosecutor. I recall the uh, Manson trial. They proved the ideology the motivating factors to the Manson group and why they did the murders. Uh, that's what you did in your case, did you not? You had, you, you identified and proved as part of your case the motive uh, based on what they interpreted their faith to mean. Yeah, and I respectfully find it mind-boggling to have a conversation in which it's suggested that we need to turn a blind eye to ideology when, when you actually get into the four corners of a, of a trial on most of the charges that we bring, which, which are essentially conspiracy cases in almost every single instance. The very evidence that they say we shouldn't look at for purposes of the investigation is the evidence that the prosecutor has to admit at the trial in order to prove willfulness, in order to prove intent, and in order to prove knowledge. So we're actually saying that in investigating people who might potentially commit a terrorist attack, we have to close our eyes to their ideology. But if we're lucky enough to indict them at some point, and we get them to trial, then we can put into evidence all the things we didn't look at when we were investigating. Well, you're a lawyer. How crazy is that? Well, just briefly, if um, you're... If we, this nation cannot admit everybody that would like to come here to immigrate to America and there are two Muslim applicants, uh, is it appropriate to ask whether one has an extremist ideology and ask questions about how they interpret it uh, or not? Uh, can you, is it some it, it, constitutional protection that the United States cannot inquire to see who might be the most successful immigrant? I don't think there's any constitutional impediment to it. That said, during the 1960s into, I guess it's the early 80s, there was a lot of statutory work that was done 
supportive of the proposition that we needn't be worried about ideology, that it's not a causative trigger of violent action, and therefore we're only going to look at violent action, not ideology, when we decide whether to bring people in or not. Now, it was not constitutionally necessary to do that, and I think a lot of it was caused by the fact that the Supreme Court in the 60s and 70s gave expanded First Amendment protection to radical ideology, which was a terrible mistake, but I think made out of a calculus that the Soviet threat had been uh, overwrought. But whatever you think about that, we're now in a threat environment where it's not a hypothetical question about whether there's an ideology that triggers mass murder attacks. We're seeing it. Well, thank you. Mr. Chairman, thank you, and I appreciate the hearing. And uh, we are seeing, um, I think, a spasm, I've called it, uh, within Islam, that experts have testified before Armed Services Committee that's so real. Uh, there's some radical ideas that are leading to these kind of attacks, and it's going to take a long time for us to see that wane, and maybe it's incumbent on us all to be firm and defend our country, but at the same time uh, think deeply about the right way to handle it, because religion is something we all in this country respect, the freedom of religion. Thank you, Senator Sessions. Mr. Chairman, um, could I just uh, respond to something that was said earlier during this panel questioning? Uh, well, yeah. we're going to recognize Senator Durbin, and he may okay. well give you the opportunity okay. to do Thank that. You. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I listened to Senator Sessions' questions, and I really think uh, he really is moving us to where we ought to be. <clears throat> Mr. Cohen, when you went after the, or your organization went after the Ku Klux Klan, you were aware that their symbol was a flaming cross? Yes, sir and that they believed that somehow they were espousing the teachings of Christ? Right, they were purifying the, the race, yes. And these <clears throat> race purifications ended up in hateful and violent and murderous tactics against African Americans? That was, their, that was the way they did business, yeah. Catholics, Jews, they were a hate-filled group that used a flaming cross and their purified Christianity for justification. Yes. Westboro Baptist Church sends demonstrators to the funerals of our fallen soldiers. They, I've seen them in Illinois. And they put up these hateful signs that say, this soldier died because of sodomy, because of gay marriage. Their homophobia, they believe, is part of their Christian belief. I think the point that has been made over and over by three members of this panel is it is a mistake for us to then call the Ku Klux Klan radical Christians or to call Westboro Baptist radical Christians. They are extreme, they're violent, they're radical, they're unacceptable. But it reflects on all of us who count ourselves as Christians if you use a term that is so broad in its application. No one is arguing, Mr. McCarthy, that someone who is, possesses a dangerous ideology, dangerous to the United States, should ever be allowed to immigrate. But presumptive Republican nominee Donald Trump isn't making that distinction, my friends. He wants to exclude all Muslim immigrants. That, to me, is where he has gone way beyond the needs of protecting America into territory which I hope this country will never, ever embrace. It's interesting to me that last week we had a debate on the floor of the Senate on terrorism. And the debate got down to the question as to whether or not we should be wary or careful when a suspected terrorist wants to buy an assault weapon, a firearm, and many of us said, let's err on the side of safety. 
and unfortunately only eight Republicans would join Senator Collins, another Republican, when she suggested that maybe we keep the guns out of their hands until we find out whether they truly should be on the no-fly list. We couldn't carry the day, so the presumption when it came to the Second Amendment was give them the gun, ask questions later. Now we have this hearing. And instead of dealing with suspected terrorists, we're dealing with a suspected religion, according to some. That's where I think we've crossed the line. If there are those who would abuse their religious beliefs, threaten others, and threaten America, for goodness sakes, use all of our power to protect us. But the notion that we would call for radical Christians, radical Islam, and such, and, and therefore... Thank you for having the hearing. Um, I'm interested in light of the statements of allegiance that were made by the San Bernardino and the Orlando killers and um, the credit taken by ISIS for at least the Orlando massacre. What objective evidence there is that ISIS is inspiring or supporting terrorist extremists here. And I think there is evidence of it, if only the evidence that has been made public. I understand there is other evidence as well. It troubles me greatly. And I think the nation has to be more vigilant and vigorous in countering the efforts of ISIS to inspire and support extremist violence here. And extremist violence can take a lot of forms, but killing 49 people with an assault weapon qualifies for me as violence. And when it's done with a claim of allegiance to ISIS, then I think it raises some red flags. So let me ask you, um, Ms. McCarthy and, and others, what objective evidence you see of ISIS inspiring or supporting Senator, that kind of violence? I, I, I think that, the, um, that ISIS, like al-Qaeda, like other terrorist organizations, is less important than the ideology which transcends them all and will outlast them all and is what is actually the catalyzing feature here. Now, specifically with respect to ISIS, we know that the organization has made it quite clear that it would like to see jihadists in place in the United States and elsewhere in the West commit acts of terrorism that they can you know, attribute to ISIS and then take advantage uh, of. But I, I would suggest to you that it's the, it's the ideology more than the organization that, that is doing the inspiring. Yeah. Also, uh, I would go a step further and just to, just to point out how serious of a problem this is, the threat doctrine with Sharia. We could kill every member of ISIS tomorrow, and it wouldn't affect the global Islamic movement. It wouldn't affect the global jihad. It would slow it down until they caught up. We could kill every member of al-Qaeda tomorrow if we don't address strategies and implement policies to address Sharia and the spread of Sharia doctrine. Like uh, Dr. Jasser said, will we play a whack-a-mole with, 
with uh, jihadi groups. It, it won't end. Mr. Germain. I, I think we need to, to be careful. Clearly, where there's a conspiracy, law enforcement should track down everybody who is involved in the conspiracy. But what we have to understand about terrorist methodology is, is the appeal for anywhere, anyone anywhere to do something is an act of desperation, right? It, it's a reflection of their weakness, not their strength. So we have to be very careful when we talk about somebody who answers that appeal to not do what ISIS wants us to do, which is to make believe that they actually are that strong and that there actually is a connection and this person actually was ISIS rather than some misanthrope who was reaching out for whatever was going to get him in the newspaper and on TV. And if we reward this behavior, whether they're reaching out to ISIS like Omar Mateen was doing or reaching out to white supremacist groups like Dylan Roof was doing, you're giving them an opportunity to be famous and to be a soldier of, of whatever the cause is. And we need to be very moderate in how we talk about this thing. So we're focusing on real conspiracies because then, as we've seen, co-conspirators can go out and commit other crimes. But if we're talking about somebody just claiming allegiance with no actual connection, I think we should be very careful in actually attributing that to the group that they claim. Senator Blumenthal. Yes, Mr. Mr. Jasser. If I can address something I think is really very, very important is that, uh, you know, ISIS taking credit is sort of like the rooster taking credit for the morning and that they will put out the, the virus out there. These are not lone wolves. It's a global ideology that taps into vulnerable individuals for whatever reason may be vulnerable. But the root cause is, and I, I think if you look why domestic policy against radical Islam is also connected to our foreign policy, same thing. The vacuum in Syria, you cannot get rid of ISIS in Syria with also, without also ending the Assad regime. The two are two evils that feed off of one another. Secular autocracy and the relationship of this battle within the House of Islam it will, is a cancer that rooted in Syria right now and is spreading all over the planet as they seek recruits and will take and, and try to mobilize their recruits into, they tap into this fervor of political Islam, the allegiance to the Islamic State and that identity. And until we have a coherent domestic and foreign policy with a unifying vision of where we are and the role American Muslims should play in that battle happening within the House of Islam, we're going to continue to see this recur and recur. We could get rid of ISIS tomorrow with six-month operation to do it in Syria, and it'll re-come up because of the dictators there like to see radical Islam as a foil in order to suppress their populations throughout the Middle East. I understand. Uh, Mr. Haney, would you, were you going to make a point? I, I saw you leaning forward. Yes, thank you. Um, during my time as a law enforcement officer, we conducted what we call IDSO, Intelligence-Driven Special Operations. Over the course of four or five years, I interviewed about 25 to 35 young American citizens who were going to a madrasa in South Africa. And they were in a program called the Alim program. It takes seven years to go through it, and they become qualified to be imams. They were all Hafiz. They'd all memorized the Koran in madrasas right here in the United States, not overseas. They never finished public school. They memorized the Koran. When they became graduation high school age, they went to the madrasas in South Africa because they teach in English. 
I saw it up close and personal with a large cohort of American citizens and or sons of immigrants, still lawful permanent residents. I saw them transform from young men into adults, not only in physical nature, but in terms of their commitment to the ideology that they were studying in South Africa. So I know it's real. That was my specialty. I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of individuals coming back into the United States, both American citizens, lawful permanent residents, and foreign visitors, and virtually every single time it was exactly the same motivation, commitment to ideology that I saw in every single one of them. Well, I, I understand the point that destroying ISIS, destroying the movement of ISIS, destroying the military force of ISIS doesn't destroy the ideology, doesn't destroy the idea, and that's why I asked not just about support but also inspire, by which I meant ideology as well as potentially recruiting, training, and physically providing support. Uh, and I think there are analogies, there have been throughout our history, of forces that want to do us harm through opposing ideology, forces that oppose freedom and democracy and the values of tolerance and free expression and religious freedom that make us the greatest, strongest country in the history of the world. So that's why I'm looking for evidence that ISIS as it's constituted now, is providing inspiration and support because we want to stop not only ISIS, but also whatever it's doing to uh, inspire and support extremism and violent extremism in this country. Acts of hate and acts of terror. And Orlando was both. I think the president was right about that fact. And the attorney general of the United States was right about that fact. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, found Mr. Jasser's point about the responsibility of your effort being bipartisan so compelling. Use that word. And I think it's important that we in the Congress be bipartisan in this effort. And the more we are partisan, the weaker we will be. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Blumenthal. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Cruz. Uh, let me uh, just quickly ask three more questions, and then I'm going to conclude if I can. Um, I, I just I wanted to follow uh, up a little bit on this idea that ideology uh, is a trigger to violence and how aggressively or actively we should be going after an ideology rather than actions based on an ideology that Mr. McCarthy suggested. And, Mr. McCarthy, I may have, I may have misunderstood, but I, I thought I heard you say that um, the expansion of the First Amendment in cases during the 1960s to protect radical ideas was a mistake. Is that correct? I, I did say that, yes. Okay. Then let me just, if I could, Mr. Cohen, because you... Do you, want, do, you wanna, do you want me to explain what I meant by it, or...? Very concisely, if you would. Sure. Give them um, they carved out an exception for the advocacy of ideology that calls for the violent overthrow of the United States as if there were a firm difference between advocating it and inciting it, which I think has been much more difficult to apply than perhaps they thought. 
Mr. Cohen, you've dedicated most of your life uh, to the pursuit of um, finding and closing down those uh, who engage in not just dangerous ideology, but dangerous actions against yes. other Americans. And yes. um, Senator Sessions had some um, interesting, curious comments on the central role of the Southern Poverty Law Center in pushing back against the Klan. And you previously uh, made a point that, you know, just because groups like the Klan, or I would suggest the Lord's Resistance Army, a horrific terrorist group in Central Africa, just because they miscite the Bible, we wouldn't refer to them as radical Christians, and we are similarly making a mistake here if we demonize Islam as radical Islam. Help me understand, in your view, um, whether we should be engaging in widespread surveillance uh, of the Muslim community and whether we should be indulging the proposals of some candidates for president in uniform uh, bars on Muslim admission to the United States or patrols of so-called Muslim neighborhoods um, in an effort to contain a dangerous ideology. Where do you think that boundary lies between appropriate um, investigation of those who might have a proclivity to violence and demeaning an entire religion? I think we're on a very slippery slope and a very, very dangerous one. If I can respond to one thing that Mr. McCarthy said, and perhaps I will put it into context, you know, the abstract advocacy of violence in our country uh, is a constitutionally protected is constitutionally protected speech. What's not protected is you know stealing a group and preparing a group for violence. The la the first is protected by the First Amendment. The latter is a conspiracy, a criminal conspiracy. Uh, I think that if we don't hold that distinction sacred. Uh, our country will be in trouble. I think that some of the uh, some of the some of the implicit suggestions that we should uh, surveil entire communities uh, it are not only ineffective but wildly un-American. Uh, and I um, I can't believe that we would countenance that kind of activity in our country. Uh, I think it would drive. Uh, I think it would more likely drive. Uh, terrorism than it would root it out. Well, that is exactly um, the challenge I think Senator Klobuchar was referencing in her home community, the, the challenge of striking a balance uh, between um, investigating, prosecuting um, those very few individuals who are committed to acts of violence yes. and breaking up conspiracies and engaging the much broader Muslim community that is loyal and wants to fully enjoy the freedoms of the United States and without their uh, partnership um, and effective intervention of that very small number of folks uh, who want to turn an ideology into an action uh, is really going to be um, at some risk. Ms. Kara, um, there was a, a previous exchange about the importance of removing from training manuals information that was just bigoted and wildly misleading. If you just um, re renew the point you asserted in your testimony that stigmatizing and marginalizing uh, an entire community based on their faith both um, chills our First Amendment um, um, and also puts us at risk because it, it frays the very relationship between uh, law enforcement and millions of Americans. Would you just elaborate on that for a moment? Um, you know, and specifically on your last point, I think the concern is, is is that if you create mistrust between law enforcement in our communities, people are going to be reluctant to interact with law enforcement and potentially report crimes. And so that means 
people who are engaging in potential crimes are not going to be caught and brought to justice. So I think there's a real public safety concern there. Um, and specifically, just to kind of tease out what that um, the concern is, is, is that these uh, your, your, these materials were basically setting up a situation where it was calling for either innocuous activity or religiously First Amendment protected activity to now be seen as an indicator of violence. So, for example, growing a beard, attending a mosque or a prayer group were specific items and behaviors that were listed in an FBI intelligence product as being a so-called indicator of violence. So, in other words, actions that could equally be in- indicators of being a faithful Muslim. Correct. Or in some people's perspectives could be seen as a gradual movement towards radicalization. Removing that from a training manual makes it more likely that law enforcement agents trying to understand Islam um, will not make the mistake of assuming that all Muslims are radicalized and are inclining towards a violent ideology. That is is correct. That's your basic assertion. That's correct. Mr. German, last, if I might just close with you. So the assertion's been made um, indirectly and then directly um, that the Obama administration has literally put American lives at risk because of political correctness, or even worse, that career law enforcement agents, uh, because of a fear of somehow being uh, politically incorrect, stepped back from doing their job to keep Americans safe. In the instance of Omar Mateen, um, he was surveilled several times by FBI agents, both uh, directly and indirectly, undercover agents and um, folks who were sent in to try and see what he might commit to or what he might do. There's two different possible theories of the case here. Um, One is that the Obama administration is disloyal, treasonous, and putting America's safety at risk, and so willfully said, we're not going to take any actions uh, against this dangerous radical. I find that disrespectful to what I know of those in state and local and federal law enforcement I've worked with for many years, uh, who frankly, when they see a clear threat to public safety, uh, don't care about political correctness, they care about doing their job. An alternative theory would be that despite repeated attempts to build a credible case against this individual, he didn't bite. He didn't take action. He didn't actually begin a conspiracy. He didn't take proffered offers of opportunities in a way that allowed agents to build a real case against him and proceed. And as Senator Klobuchar indicated, um, in one of the largest uh, Muslim American communities in America, they have taken case after case after case to trial and actually successfully prosecuted those who took steps to participate in conspiracies. Um, First, does it seem credible to you that career law enforcement agents look the other way out of a concern for political correctness? Or does it seem more credible to you um, that a deeply disturbed individual um, who was pleading, who was at different times saying he supported or was involved with groups that are literally fighting each other on the battlefield, um, was not taking enough credible steps to develop a, a working case. And then second, um, New York City Police Commissioner Bill Bratton recently said that wide-scale surveillance programs like an NYPD program that targeted the Muslim community um, failed to produce a single piece of actionable intelligence and, frankly, didn't work. I'd be interested in your comment on how we could strengthen the hand of federal and local law enforcement to keep us safe. Uh, On your first question, uh, I do believe the men and women of the FBI are doing everything in... in 
possible under the law to, to try to protect us from threats. And in the cases where red flags are raised, investigations actually were pursued. My concern is they're not looking for the right thing. They're not looking for indicators of violence. They're looking for indicators of radicalization, depending on whatever model that is. And in some of these cases, what we see is those clear models uh, are not accurate. Um, and I, I also agree on the issue with Chief Bratton, where the, the broad surveillance of entire communities dilutes the ability to actually focus on real threats. And I think that's why, during the period those programs were in place, Najibullah Azazi and Faisal Shahzad, cases were missed because they were looking too broadly rather than focusing uh, on real threats. In both those cases, they traveled overseas to terrorist training camps. That's something that maybe we should put more resources in rather than surveilling innocent Muslims. And Thank you. Well, I just want to thank um, the whole panel um, for your testimony, the members of this committee who have engaged today. Uh, I do think we have important and unresolved questions uh, about how to keep Americans safe, how to strengthen the hand of federal, state, and local law enforcement, but in a way that respects our most fundamental values uh, and doesn't come up against the boundaries of cherished uh, First Amendment freedoms. Uh, and I frankly think whether you call it radical Islam, radical Islamism, Islamic extremism, spending three hours arguing about these semantics, in my view, hasn't really moved us any closer towards developing uh, new and more effective ways to combat terror uh, and to defeat ISIS. And I look forward to the upcoming hearing where we will have Secretary Jay Johnson here, and we can both ask uh, more pointed questions about the Department of Homeland Security and the strategy we will all uh, follow going forward. Let me just close by saying um, that I am deeply troubled by proposals in our current election season. Proposals made by Mr. Trump to ban all Muslims from coming to the United States. Proposals made to keep a list of all Muslims in the United States, to actively and aggressively surveil mosques, to patrol so-called Muslim neighborhoods, I think are profoundly unhelpful as we try to respect America's constitutional traditions and keep our country safe. And I frankly worry um, that proposals such as these and the broad following they seem to have gotten harken back to some of the worst chapters in American history. In particular, I'll just remind us that after the attack on Pearl Harbor, this great nation turned its back on Japanese Americans, forcing the relocation and incarceration in camps of over 100,000 people based solely on their Japanese ancestry, not based on any actions taken or any expression of intent to harm Americans or to be disloyal to the United States. And the majority of those, in turn, were American citizens. As I prepared for today's hearing, I could not forget a meeting I had with the daughter of Fred Korematsu, uh, whose name was um, given to a signal U.S. Supreme Court case. I met uh, his daughter uh, at a ceremony at the White House. And in 1983, when Mr. Korematsu's conviction for violating the internment order was finally overturned, he said, and I quote, I would like to see the government admit they were wrong and do something about it so this will never happen again to any American citizen of any race, creed, or color. It is my hope that in this debate and in this election season, we will set aside proposals that seem more in keeping with the errors made in the past, where we went after entire groups of American citizens, regardless of their substantive actions, and that we would instead live up to our core constitutional commitments and creed and find the right balance between respecting constitutional liberties, welcoming all Americans of whatever background, and finding a bipartisan path forward that will genuinely keep Americans safe.
Thank you. Thank you, Senator Coons. Uh, I want to thank each of the witnesses for coming and participating in what I believe was a very important hearing. Uh, I'm going to very briefly make three closing observations. The first, several of my colleagues on the Democratic side of the aisle uh, made invocations of the Ku Klux Klan uh, and drew the analogy of blaming the Klan on Christians to addressing directly and candidly the threat of jihadism and radical Islamic terrorism. I would hope that all of us on both sides of the aisle could agree that the Ku Klux Klan is bigoted and evil and has no place in civilized society. And I would note the suggestion that 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 could somehow be extended to the Christian faith. Dr. Martin Luther King and many of the civil rights pioneers were Christian ministers, Reverend King, and indeed one of the most powerful pans to justice ever written, a letter from the Birmingham jail, begins, my dear fellow clergymen, no faith, whether Christian or Jewish or Muslim or any other, has the right to murder others because they do not share that faith. And we should speak candidly and vigorously against anyone advocating for the murder of innocents because of religious hatred and intolerance. A second observation that is disappointing. After hearing a tes testimony that include Mr. Haney's testimony that some 876 documents were edited or deleted as a result of a purge, it saddens me that not a single one of my colleagues from the Democratic side of the aisle asked even a single skeptical question about that purge, the purge that resulted in deleting the word jihad, dropping it from 126 in the 9-11 report to zero in report after report after report that apparently the Orwellian censorship of law enforcement materials and intelligence materials is not a concern to my colleagues. I would note the Senate has a long history of holding the executive accountable regardless of party. And at a time when we're facing a global war on terror, I hope that my colleagues on the Democratic side of the aisle will express real concern about a censorship and editing of law enforcement materials. And the final observation, several times it has been suggested in a nod towards presidential politics, and I understand the lure of senators to inject themselves in presidential politics a few months before a general election may be irresistible, and I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> but yet, not a single one of my Democratic colleagues asked questions or expressed concerns as to why over and over and over again the administration has failed to respond to red flags, failed to respond to real significant evidence of radical Islamic terrorism before these terror attacks was carried out and has failed to connect the dots. Law enforcement can't be perfect. We shouldn't hold them to that standard. But it is the obligation of the Senate to hold them in account when over and over and over again from Little Rock to Fort Worth to Chattanooga to San Bernardino to the Boston Marathon to Fort Hood to Orlando, the red flags are there, the signs are there, and yet the administration doesn't connect the dots and act to prevent those acts of terrorism. It saddens me that not a single question from the Democratic side of the aisle
focused on why didn't we do more to protect, prevent these acts of terrorism before they happen. This isn't a question of semantics. This is a question of whether the administration is willing to acknowledge what the threat is and willing to act to prevent acts of murder and terrorism before they occur. With that, I want to once again thank each of the witnesses for being here. We will keep this hearing record open for an additional five business days, which means the record will be closed at the end of business on Thursday, July 7th, 2016. And with that, this hearing is adjourned.
All right, good peeps, and that wraps up this one. I hope you made it this far. I really appreciate all of you that have. Oh, it was only 5 hours, 48 minutes. Come on, no data. This is great stuff, and we haven't even gotten started. We're just scratching the surface here. We are going to begin a new series right here in the podcast and on my YouTube channel, Greg Fernandez Jr. This is going to be Philip Haney questions, similar to David Crowley questions, Philip Marshall questions, uh, Barry Jennings questions, lots of questions out there, but we're going to look at some of those questions here. So that will be our next episode of the What is Truth podcast with me, Greg Fernandez Jr. So get ready because we're going to take a deep dive at looking at some of the early posts, some of the posts that were in the Justice for Philip Haney Facebook group. And then we're going to take a very deep dive into the documents that we have and into the photos. Speaking of those documents, if you do want to download those, just go to my website, whatistruth911.wordpress.com, and you can download all of those documents that we have. Let me just go over three, because we only have three, to be honest, but we have the Phil Haney press release. So you'll find that one right there. That's two pages. Then we have the coroner's report. This one is 188 pages of data. Interesting. And the third one that we have here on my website is FBI case file. You know how big this one is here, folks? 278 pages. Good stuff. All right, so I have not gone through any of it yet. So as we do, we will make some more podcast recordings, some more video recordings. So if you like this podcast, thank you very much for listening. If podcasting, if the audio is not really your thing, you like video, we'll have the video version. But for all of you commuters, maybe you like this version here better. So until next time, um, we also I also have three videos of the crime scene photos, and I'm going to make them into one long extended video with all of the crime scene photos. These photos were given in three separate folders. The for first folder was the, the Nissan, which is the one that they say... Philip Haney shot himself in. Uh, the second set is the motorhome, which was where that was Philip Haney's motorhome. So you have all of that. And the third one, it was just labeled, the third file was just labeled um, uh, additional scene photos or additional scene. But there's a photo right there of, of the gun. But check out those um, crime scene photos if you have some time. You can watch all three of those videos right there on my website. If you need to download them, they're still up. And um, pretty soon we'll have them backed up. So if you want to download all of the crime scene photos to look at them in high res for yourself, we're working on making that a possibility for you. God bless you all. Until next time.